This is Audible. Penguin Random House Audio presents The Aeronaut's Windlass, The Cinder Spires by Jim Butcher Read for you by Ewan Morton Prologue Spire Albion, Habble Morning, House Lancaster Gwendolyn Margaret Elizabeth Lancaster, said Mother in a firm, cross voice. You will cease this nonsense at once. Now, Mother, Gwendolyn replied absently, we have discussed the matter at length upon multiple occasions. She frowned down at the gauntlet upon her left hand and rotated her wrist slightly. The number three strap is too tight, Sarah. The crystal is digging into my palm. Just a moment, Miss. Sarah bent nearer the gauntlet's fastenings, eyeing them over the rims of her spectacles. She made a series of quick, deft adjustments and asked, Is that better? Gwendolyn tried the motion again and smiled. Excellent. Thank you, Sarah. Of course, miss, Sarah said. She began to smile but glanced aside at Mother and schooled her expression into soberly appropriate diffidence. There has been no discussion, Mother said, folding her arms. Discussion implies discourse. You have simply pretended I wasn't in the room when I broached the subject. Gwendolyn turned to smile sweetly. Mother, we can have this conversation again if you wish, but I have not altered my intentions in the least. I will not attend Lady Hadshaw's finishing academy. I would be more than pleased to see you enter the Etheric Engineering Academy along with... Oh, Gwendolyn said, rolling her eyes. I've been working with those systems in the testing shop since I could walk, and I'm quite sure I will go mad if I have to endure two years' worth of introductory courses. Mother shook her head. Gwendolyn, you cannot possibly think that... Enough, Gwendolyn said. I will enter the Spyrarch's guard. I will take the oath. I will spend a year in the service. She turned to regard her reflection in the long mirror, adjusted her skirts marginally, and straightened the lapels of her short bolero jacket. Honestly, other daughters of the high houses take the oath. I cannot imagine why you're making such a fuss. Other houses are not the Lancasters, Mother said, her voice suddenly cold. Other houses do not rule the highest habble of the council. Other houses are not custodians of the sternest responsibility within all of Spire Albion. Mother, Gwendolyn sighed. Honestly, as if the people living in the lower levels of the Spire are less worthy somehow. And besides, those great vats and crystals all but mind themselves. You are young, Mother said. You have little appreciation of how much those crystals are needed, and not only by those of Hebel Morning or the fleet, or of all the planning and foresight that must go into producing a single crystal over the... The course of generations, Gwendolyn interrupted. No, apparently I have not been enlightened to your satisfaction. I would, however, submit to you that another repetition of this particular bit of pedantry seems unlikely to correct the situation, and that therefore the least frustrating course of action for all involved would be to abort the attempt. 
Gwendolyn, Mother said, her eyes narrowing. You will return to your chambers in the next ten seconds, or I swear to God in heaven that I shall beat you soundly. Ah, now they came to it. Gwendolyn suppressed a flash of purely childish fear, and then one of much more reasonable anger, and forced herself to consider the situation and the room in a calm and rational manner. Mother's outburst had been so entirely appalling as to freeze Sarah in place. The maid was perfectly aware that such a display of emotion from one of the leading ladies of Habble Morning was not something that should be witnessed by the hired help. Mother, in her anger, had been quite inconsiderate, since Sarah didn't dare simply leave the room either. How was the poor girl supposed to react? Sarah, Gwendolyn said. I believe I heard Cook mention that her back was still giving her trouble. I would appreciate it if you ease her duties this morning. Would you mind, terribly, delivering Father's breakfast to him and sparing Cook the stairs? Of course not, Lady Gwendolyn, Sarah said, bobbing in a quick curtsy. She flashed Gwendolyn a swift smile containing both gratitude and apology, and moved from the room with sedate efficiency. Gwendolyn smiled until Sarah had left the room, then turned and frowned faintly at Mother. That was not very thoughtful of you. Do not attempt to change the subject, Mother said. You will take off that ridiculous gauntlet at once or face the consequences. Gwendolyn arched one eyebrow sharply. You realize that I am armed, do you not? Mother's dark eyes blazed. You wouldn't dare. I should think I would have no need to do such a thing, Gwendolyn replied. However, I care to be beaten even less than I care to live out my days in this dreary mausoleum or one precisely like it. I dare say that at least in the service I should find something to interest me. She lifted her chin, narrowed her eyes, and said, "Do not test me, mother." "Impossible, child," mother said. "Take her." Gwendolyn realized at that moment that mother's threat and outrage alike had been feigned, a pretense that had distracted Gwendolyn until a pair of the house armsmen could approach her silently from behind. She took a quick step to one side and felt strong hands seize her left arm. Had she not moved, the second man would have had her right arm in the same moment, and her options would have been far more limited. Instead, she seized the wrist of her assailant, pivoted her weight into him, robbing him of his balance, breaking the power of his grip at the same time, and continued her smooth circular motion into a throw, dumping him over one hip and onto the floor at the feet of the second armsman. The fallen man tripped the second, who struggled to push up from the floor. Gwendolyn lifted her skirts slightly and kicked the second man's arm out from beneath him. He dropped down onto the first man with a surprised grunt and glared up at her. "I'm terribly sorry," Gwendolyn said. "It isn't personal." Then she gave him a calm, sharp kick to the head. The man let out a short grunt and dropped limply, stunned. "Esther Brooke," Mother said sharply. Gwendolyn turned from the two downed men to find Estherbrook, captain of House Lancaster's armsmen, entering the room. 
Esther Brooke was a lean, dangerous-looking man. His skin worn and leathery from years of the pitiless sunlight borne by aeronauts and marines. He wore a black suit and coat tailored in the same style as the uniform of the fleet marine he had once been. He bore the short, heavy copper-clad blade of a marine on one hip. The gauntlet on his left hand was made of worn and supple leather, though the copper cagework around his forearm and wrist was as polished and bright as Gwendolen's newer model. Gwendolen focused her thoughts at once, stepping away from the stunned men and lifting her left hand to present the crystal held against her palm to Estabrook. She sighted her target, the captain's grizzled head, in the V-shape made by the spread of her first and second fingers. By the time she had, her gauntlet's crystal had awakened to her concentration. Cold white light blazed from it, changing all the shadows in the room and causing her mother to blink and squint against the sudden radiance. "'Good morning, Captain Estabrook,' Gwendolen said in an even tone. "'I am well aware that your suit is lined with silk. I feel obliged to advise you that I am aiming at your head.' Please do nothing that would require me to put my training to such tragic and wasteful use. Estabrook regarded her from behind his shaded spectacles. Then he reached up very slowly with his right hand, removed them, and blinked a few times against the ether light of the weapon Gwendolen held trained upon him. His eyes were an eerie shade of gold-green, and his feline pupils contracted into vertical slits against the light. Quick, he commented. Gwendolen felt herself smile slightly. I had an excellent teacher, sir. Estabrook gave her a very small portion of an ironic smile and tipped his head to her in acknowledgement. Where in the spire did you find someone to teach you the way? Cousin Benedict, naturally. She replied. Ha! Estabrook said. I kept smelling the perfume on him. Thought he'd taken up with the woman. Mother made a wordless, disgusted sound held tightly within her throat, barely audible past her tight, closed lips. I have expressly forbidden your close association with him, Gwendolyn. Quite, Mother. Yes. Gwendolyn agreed. Captain, if you would be so kind as to disarm yourself, please. Estabrook stared at her for a moment more, and then the lines at the corners of his eyes deepened. He inclined his head to her, then moved only his right hand to unbuckle his sword belt. It fell to the floor. What are you doing? Mother demanded of him. My lady, Estabrook said in a polite tone, Miss Gwen holds a deadly weapon, and one which she is fully capable of using. She won't use it, Mother said, not upon you, and not upon her family. Gwendolyn felt a surge of frustration. Mother was quite right, of course. Such a thing would be unthinkable, but she had no intention of continuing to live her life cloistered within Lancaster Manor, venturing out only for the constant, meaningless, regular, deadly, dull, boring routine of balls, dinners, concerts, and school. She could not allow Mother to call her bluff. So she shifted her arm very slightly and unleashed radiant, etheric energy from the crystal against her palm.
There was a howling scream of suddenly parted air and a blinding flash. It was followed an instant later by a deafening roar like thunder, and a marble statuette sitting on a side table just behind Estabrook exploded into dust and flying fragments. The fragments rattled and bounced around the room in the silence after the blast, and grew quiet only a few seconds later. Mother stood staring with her mouth open, her face pale. Half of her body already coated with fine marble dust. Estabrook was coated with the dust as well, but he hadn't moved or changed his expression. Captain, Gwendolen said, "If you would be so kind as to continue, Miss," he said, bobbing his head again, moving very slowly and keeping his left arm completely still and at his side, he unbuckled the straps of the gauntlet and let it fall to the floor. Thank you, Captain," Gwendolen said. "Step aside, please." Estabrook looked at Mother, spread his hands in a silent, helpless gesture, and took several steps back and away from his weaponry. "No," Mother snapped. "No." She took three quick strides to the chamber's fantastically expensive door, made from wood harvested from the deadly, mist-bound forests of the surface and bound in brass. She twisted its key until it locked, and then withdrew it. She returned to her original position with her chin lifted in outrage. "You will obey me, child." Honestly, mother," Gwendolen said. "At the rate we're going, we'll bankrupt ourselves redecorating." Gwendolen's gauntlet howled again, and part of the door was blown to splinters and twisted brass. The rest was wrenched from its brass hinges, and flew out into the hallway beyond, tumbling once before it crashed to the ground. Gwendolen raised her arm until the crystal at her palm was parallel with her face, and walked calmly forward toward the door. The armsmen behind her groaned and began to gather themselves together. Gwendolen felt a flash of relief; she hadn't wanted to inflict any serious harm upon the two men. Benedict. Had informed her that with blows to the head, one could never be sure. No, mother breathed as she walked by. Gwendolen, no, you can't. You don't understand the horrors you might face. She was breathing very quickly and, merciful builders, mother was crying. Gwendolen hesitated and stopped walking. Gwendolen, mother whispered. Please, you are my only child. Who else then will represent the honor of the Lancasters in the service? Gwendolen looked at her mother's face. Tears had made clean tracks through the thin layer of dust. Please don't go, mother whispered. Gwendolen hesitated. She had her ambitions, of course, and her proper Lancaster reserve, but like mother, she also had a heart. Tears, tears were unprecedented. She had never seen her mother weep except once with laughter. Perhaps she could have been somewhat more thoughtful about how she had approached her decision to enlist. But there was no more time for discussion. Enrollment for the guard was this morning. She met her mother's eyes and spoke as gently as she could, and she would not cry. She simply would not. Regardless of how much she might wish to, 
I love you very much, she said quietly. Then Gwendolen, Margaret, Elizabeth Lancaster walked out over the shattered door and left her home. Lady Lancaster watched her daughter go, tears in her eyes. She waited until she heard the large front doors of the manor close to turn to Estabrook. Are you well, Captain? A bit surprised, perhaps, but well enough, he said. Lads? Lady Gwen, said one of the guardsmen, touching his cheek and wincing. Hurts. You didn't show the opponent sufficient respect, Estabrook said, amused. Go get some breakfast. We'll work on takedowns this morning. The men shambled out, looking rather embarrassed, and Estabrook watched them, evidently pleased. Then he paused and blinked at Lady Lancaster. My lady, are you crying? Of course I am, she replied, pride swelling in her voice. Did you see that? She stood up to all three of you. All four of us, Estabrook corrected her gently. Gwendolen has never had a problem standing up to me, Lady Lancaster said in a wry tone. Estabrook grunted. Still don't see why you feel a need for such dramatics. Because I know my daughter, she said, and I know very well that the only way to absolutely ensure that she pursues any given course of action is for me to forbid her to do so. Reminds me of someone else who insisted on joining the service, my lady, Estabrook said. Let's see. I was quite young and willful at the time, as you know very well. But when I left, it was nothing like that. Indeed not, Estabrook said. As I recall it, my lady, you reduced three doors to splinters on your way out, not one. Lady Lancaster eyed the captain and sniffed. Honestly, Estabrook, I'm all but certain that you're exaggerating. And half a dozen statues. They were tasteless replicas. And a ten-foot section of stone wall. Mother was standing in the door. How else was I to leave? Yes, my lady, Estabrook said gravely. Thank you for correcting me. I see now that there is no comparison to be made. I thought you'd see it that way, she said. You have good sense. Yes, my lady. But... Estabrook frowned. I understand that you wanted to steer her toward the service. I'm still not sure I understand why. Lady Lancaster eyed him thoughtfully for a moment. Estabrook was a faithful soldier, an invaluable retainer, and a lifelong friend and ally. But the warrior-born's feline eyes tended to focus best on their immediate surroundings. She had no doubt that Estabrook, if she so requested, could close his eyes and tell her the exact location of any object she could name in the room. But he'd have no idea where they were before the room's most recent redecorating, or where they should go now that the centerpiece statue had been destroyed. The warrior-born dealt best with the present, whereas she, like the Lancasters before her, had to concern herself with the far past and the near future. Events are in motion in the spires, she said, 
quietly. Signs and portents appear. No fewer than four fleet aeronauts have reported sightings of an archangel, and swear that they were neither drunk nor sleeping. Spire Aurora has recalled her embassy from Spire Albion, and our fleets have already begun to skirmish. The lower Habbles have become increasingly restive, and Estabrook tilted his head. My lady, the crystals are behaving strangely. Estabrook arched a sceptical eyebrow. Lady Lancaster shook her head. I don't know how else to explain it, but I've worked with them since I was a small child, and something isn't right. She sighed and turned to regard the shattered door. There are dark times ahead of us, old friend. Strife such as has not been seen since the breaking of the world. My child needs to see it for herself, to learn about those who will fight against it, to understand what is at stake. She'll do that in his service, as she cannot anywhere else. Strife. Estabrook said, "Strife seems something of a handmaiden to Lady Gwen already." Lady Lancaster looked at the shattered door and at the drifting dust still swirling in the wake of her daughter's passage. "Yes," she said quietly. "God in heaven, archangels, merciful builders, please, please go with my child." Chapter One, Albion Merchant Ship Predator. Captain Grimm flicked the telescopic up off of the right eyepiece of his heavy goggles. The Auroran airship was a faint blot against the thick clouds below, while Predator was hidden high above in the aerosphere by the glare of the sun. A storm was roiling through the mesosphere. The layer of heavy cloud and mist that lay beneath them, but there was still time to reach the enemy vessel before the storm began to interfere with the ship's systems. Grim nodded once decisively. "We'll go in on the currents, general quarters. Run out the guns. Spread the web, top, bottom, and flanks. Full power to the shroud. Set course for the Auroran vessel." Sound general quarters, Commander Creedy bawled. And the ship's bell gave three quick rings, repeated in a surging clamour. Guns, make ready! The command was echoed down the length of Predator as the gun crews raced to their turrets. Spread the web round the clock. Leather-skinned men in goggles and surplus fleet aeronautical leathers leapt into the masts and rigging of the airship, shouting back their compliance. Creedy grabbed the end of the speaking tube and called. Engineering, engineering, I came the tinny-sounding answer. Full power to the shroud, if you please, Mister Journeyman. Full power to the shroud, I, and tell the captain to blow the hell out of them before they can touch our shroud. That storm's too close. He times the approach wrong, and we'll be naked. Maintain discipline, Mister Journeyman. Creedy said severely. Maintenance is what I do, idiot. Snapped the engineer. Don't tell me my business, you jumped-up wallypog. Let it go, Exo. Grim said very quietly to Creedy. 
He was smiling, if only barely, at Journeyman's response. The etheric engineer was quite simply too valuable to replace, and the man knew it. The taller, younger man scowled from behind his own goggles and folded his arms. He should be setting an example for the other men in his compartment, Captain. Grim shrugged a shoulder. He isn't going to, Commander. You can't squeeze blood from a stone. He folded his hands calmly behind his back. Besides, he might be right. Creedy gave the captain a sharp look. Sir, it's going to be very close, Grim replied. Creedy stared hard at the Auroran ship and swallowed. It was one of the rival spires. Cortez-class ships, a large merchant cruiser, much more massive than the Predator, carrying heavier guns and bearing a thicker shroud. Though the Cortez-class ships were officially trading vessels and not warships, they were well armed and had been known to carry an entire company of Aurora Marines. This ship, Grim was sure, was the vessel responsible for the recent losses in Albion merchant shipping. Prepare boarders, sir," Creedy asked. Grim arched an eyebrow. "We are bold and daring, Commander, but not maniacs. I'll leave that to Commodore Rook and his friends in the fleet. Predator is a private vessel." "Aye, sir," Creedy replied. "Probably best if we didn't linger about. We'll rake their web hard, force them down, drop a buoy, and let Rook go after them," Grim confirmed. If we stay for a slugging match, that storm could come boiling up and disrupt our shroud. And theirs, Creedy pointed out. Good exos did that in the fleet, playing the devil's advocate to the captain's plans. Grim found the practice mildly irritating. If he hadn't owed Creedy's sister a favor, they have more and larger guns than we do, Grim replied, and much more ship than we do. If we hang naked in front of a Cortez, the worst captain in their fleet would send us all screaming down to the surface. Creedy shuddered. "I, sir." Grim clapped the young man's shoulder and gave him a brief smile. "Relax. When fleet disciplines young officers so decisively, they do it to make an impression, so that when they return to their duties in fleet, they won't repeat their mistake." They mean to put you to work again, or it would have been a simple discharge. They'll not leave you hobbled for long. Then you'll be clear of Predator and in a properly armored hull again. Predator is a fine ship, Captain," Creedy said stoutly. "Just a little more fragile than I'd like, and Grim thought considerably less fragile than he knew. Buck up, Exo." Even if we don't bring a prize ship back with us, the bounty for laming her and leaving her to Rook will earn us a tidy bonus—a hundred crowns a head at least. Creedy grimaced, while Rook rakes in hundreds of thousands of crowns in prize money, and buys his house a few more councillors. Grim closed his eyes and lifted his chin slightly as the men unreeled the nearly transparent ether silk webbing. He didn't need to watch to know the way the etheric web would change as the power runs carried electricity to it, making it stir and rise, becoming seemingly weightless. 
It caught the invisible currents of etheric energy coursing through the aerosphere, and the translucent silk strands spread like great cobwebs for a good two hundred feet around the vessel itself. Caught the force of the unseen etheric currents coursing through the skies, and began pulling Predator forward. The slender ship gathered speed rapidly. The wind rose cold and dry. Distant thunder from the sullen storm rumbled through the thin air. The thought of Commodore Hamilton Rook gaining even more influence in the spire didn't particularly trouble Grim. Most of the affairs of Spire Albion didn't trouble him. Let the trogs in the spires chew one another's lips off if that was what suited them. As long as he had Predator, he had everything he needed. Kettle. The sailor at the control grips of the ship, a few feet behind and above Grim and Creedy, let out a short whistle. Grim turned and lifted an eyebrow. Mister Kettle, the grizzled sailor nodded down toward the approaching storm with his chin.、Uh, skipper, you might consider a steeper descent than normal. Gravity will get us there quicker, and if the exchange doesn't go well, we can just go right on past them into the clouds. Mind yourself, Aeronaut," Creedy snapped. "If you have a suggestion, you can pass it to the captain through me. Those are the regulations on a fleet vessel." "Xo, this isn't a fleet vessel," Grim said quietly. "This is my ship. Let me think." Mister Kettle's suggestion had merit. The extra speed of the dive would make the gunnery tricky, but their ship was sound. And they shouldn't need miraculous shooting to disable the enemy ship in a surprise attack, and they would commence the engagement a few moments sooner, ahead of the storm. He far preferred their chances if the predator shroud was intact around them. Creedy, who could ride out a storm without blanching, began to look a little green at his captain's views of fleet regulations. But he glanced over his shoulder at Kettle and valiantly attempted to continue to do his duty as he saw it. A steep dive seems unnecessary, sir. In all probability, they won't even realise we're upon them until the guns open up. We're a long way from home, Exo. I'd rather not deal in probability. Grim nodded back to the older sailor. We'll do it your way, Mister Kettle. Inform the gun crews to adjust their firing angles. Aye, sir. Grim tilted his head and considered the strong breeze blowing across the deck. "Mr. Creedy," he said, "have the men rig sail, if you please." Creedy paused and blinked in surprise. "Captain," Grim didn't blame the younger man for his reaction. Few airships utilized wind sails these days. Steam-driven propellers and the new screw-like turbines were the preferred means of locomotion in the event that a ship dropped out of the aerosphere or was becalmed in some portion of the sky without etheric currents strong enough to propel a vessel. But sails had advantages of their own. They didn't require bulky, heavy steam engines to function, and they were, compared to steam engines at least, nearly silent. It was funny. Grim mused, "How often in life a bit of judicious silence could come in handy." Keep them reefed for now, Grim said, "but I want them ready." "Aye, sir," Creedy said, 
with even less enthusiasm than a few moments before, but he relayed the commands firmly. After that, there was little to do but wait, as the predator took position for her dive. Standard battle gear included a harness with a number of attachment points on it. A lifeline was a six to nine foot length of heavy braided line of leather with a clip on either end, and every man was required to have three of them on him when general quarters were sounded. Grim and Creedy both hooked a pair of lines to the various rails and rings set about the airship for that exact purpose, cinching them in tight. Once fastened in, Grim paused to straighten his uniform, as the captain of an Albion merchant ship. He was not strictly required to wear one, but the crew had commissioned one for him after their first highly successful run as privateers. It was identical to the uniform of fleet, but instead of his leathers being coloured deep blue with gold trim, they were jet black trimmed in blood red. The two broad stripes of an airship captain adorned the end of each sleeve of his long coat. The coat's skull-shaped silver buttons had seemed a bit excessive to him, but he had to admit that they did lend the outfit a credibly piratical air. Last of all, as always, he cinched tight the strap of his peaked cap, securing it tight to his head. Aeronauts considered it very bad luck for the captain to lose his cap when his ship dived into battle. And Grim had seen too many odd things in his day to be entirely liberated from the superstition himself. It took several moments to cover the miles of distance between the Auroran vessel and Predator, and tension mounted the entire while. Thick in the chill air, its rigidity visible in the spines of the gunners and aeronauts. Ship-to-ship -ship combat was the most destructive violence known to man, and everyone on Predator knew it. Grim played his role as he always did. The men were permitted to be nervous and fearful. It was the only sane response to their situation, after all. But fear was a disease that could swell and spread, incapacitating crews and bringing on the destruction that had been dreaded in the first place. The captain was allowed no such luxury as fear. The men had to be sure, not only suspect, but be absolutely certain. That their captain knew precisely what he was doing, they had to know that their captain was invincible, infallible, immune to defeat. That sure and certain knowledge was critical to the crew. It allowed them to ignore their fear and to focus their minds upon their duties, as they'd been trained to do. Men who function as trained, even in the hellish fury of an aerial battle, were absolutely vital to victory. Such a crew tended to suffer far less injury and loss of life, and Grim would sooner hurl himself off Predator's ventral mastworks than needlessly spend a drop of his crew's blood. So he did what he could to make them fight as efficiently and ferociously as possible. He did nothing. Grim stood calmly on the deck, his lifelines neat and taut, his hands folded behind him. He stared ahead. And allowed himself to show no emotion whatsoever. He could feel the eyes that shifted to him from time to time, and he stayed steady, a reassuring and confident presence. Creedy attempted to emulate his captain, with limited success. 
he clutched one rail so tightly that his knuckles had gone white and his breath was coming too hard through his flared nostrils. XO, Grim said quietly, smiling. Perhaps your gloves? Creedy looked down at his hand and hurriedly removed it from the rail. He spent a moment fishing his gloves from his pockets and donning them. Grim couldn't blame the young man. This would be his first battle aboard Predator, a civilian vessel. Built of little more than wood, she was not clad in the sheets of brass and copper-shrouded steel armor a military vessel boasted. Should enemy fire penetrate her shroud, every blast would inflict hideous damage upon the ship and her crew alike, and a lucky shot could destroy her core crystal, unleashing a blast of energy that would spread both ship and crew across miles and miles of sky. Creedy's fears were grounded in years of experience upon warships of Spire Albion's fleet. Everything he knew told him that he was about to engage in a battle that could very well end in mutual annihilation, that Grimm was taking a horrible risk. It wasn't the Exo's fault that he had never fought upon Predator before. It was time. His ship was in position, perhaps a mile and a bit more above the Auroran vessel. Sound manoeuvres! Grimm called. The ship's bell began to ring in a rapid staccato, a last warning to the ship's company to secure safety lines before Predator went into battle. Grimm felt a wolfish grin touch his mouth. He reached up to tighten the band of his peaked cap in preparation for the dive, and nodded slightly to one side. Mr. Kettle, he said, you may begin your dive. Chapter 2 AMS Predator Grimm stood firm as Journeyman cut the power to the lift crystal's suspension rig, and Predator dropped from the sky like a stone. An attack dive was a small vessel's maneuver. The actual fall would inflict little damage on a vessel of any size, but the sudden reduction of speed on the far end of the dive could be a severe strain upon her timbers. Larger ships with their far heavier armour, suffered more from such pressures, and in order to decelerate slowly enough to ease those strains, a large ship had to lose so much altitude that it often could not return to the level of the engagement effectively. A truly efficient combat dive required a brief, severe period of reduction in speed, and Grimm had read accounts of battleships and dreadnoughts that had attempted a dive only to have their lift crystals tear themselves entirely free of the ship when attempting to arrest their descent too rapidly. Sane captains rarely tried a combat dive with anything heavier than a light cruiser, but for a relatively tiny destroyer-sized ship like Predator, the dangerous feat dwelled at the heart of battle doctrine. Kettle kept his hands firm on the control grips, riding the ship into the dive, keeping her steady with the manoeuvring planes mounted on her hull and in her tail. The etheric web still hauled the ship forward as before, but now she was rushing down as well, coming toward the Auroran ship almost directly out of the midday sun. The deck began to buck and jolt as their speed built, timbers moaned and flexed in protest, the pitch rising steadily. 
Only the safety lines of his harness held grim in place, and he was once more glad to be a man of only middling height. Poor, towering Creedy was trying to imitate Grimm's stoic posture, and his head was being yanked about randomly as the ship bucked its way into battle. The auroran grew larger and larger, and the sound of predators straining timbers continued to rise in tone and volume. All ships made their own individual sounds during a dive, though no one was sure precisely why. Grimm's midshipman's tour had been aboard a destroyer named the Speck. It had howled like a damned soul when it stooped upon a victim. Other ships wailed like enormous steam whistles. Still others took up a regular pounding rhythm, like the beating of some vast drum. Once Grimm had been aboard the light cruiser Furious, which literally boomed out enormous snarls as it charged to combat. But his ship outdid them all. When Predator sailed into war, she sang. The rapid winds and rising shrieks suddenly blended into a single harmonious tone. Lines in the rigging and the yards and the masts themselves quivered in time and began giving off their own notes of music in harmony with one another. As the speed increased, the chord rose and rose and built and built until it reached a crescendo of pure, eerie, inhuman fury. Grim. Felt the music rise around him, felt the ship straining eagerly to her task, and his own heart raced in fierce exultation in time with her. Every line of the ship, every smudge upon her decks, every stain upon the leathers of his aeronauts, leapt into his mind in vibrant detail. He could feel the ship's motion. Forward and down, could feel the wind of her passage, could feel the rising terror of his crew. One of the men screamed, one of them always did, and then the entire crew joined in with Predator, shrieking their battle cries together with their ships. The ship would not fail them. Grim knew it. He felt it, the way he could feel sunlight on his face or the rake of wind in his hair. And he also felt it the instant their speed, their course, and their position were absolutely perfect. Now, he thundered, raising his arm in a single sharp motion. Kettle pulled the altitude throttle from zero back up to its normal neutral buoyancy and hauled hard on the steering grips. Though Grim couldn't see it, he knew what was happening. The engine room would have seen the throttle indicator. And even now, Journeyman and his assistants would be unleashing power from the core crystal back into the lift crystal again, and the ship suddenly groaned as she began to slow. At the same time, Predator pirouetted upon her center axis, leaning over to her port, and brought her port side broadside to bear upon the Auroran ship. Even with the protection of his goggles' dark lenses, the flash of seven etheric cannon forced him to wince and look away as they sent their charges screaming toward the Aurorans. Each cannon was a framework of copper and brass around a copper-clad barrel of steel. A row of weapon crystals was suspended in the exact center of the barrel's length upon copper wires. 
and when the weapon was activated, it behaved in much the same manner as a common gauntlet, except on a far larger scale. Then the energy of a cannon crystal was added to the outgoing rush of power, and the result was pure destruction. A cannon bolt unleashed massive energy upon impact. A single hit from one of Predator's cannon, if placed in precisely the right place, could incinerate most of an unarmored vessel. Seven such weapons turned their fury upon the Auroran ship, targeting the tips of her masts, where her etheric web spread out around her. Grim watched intently for the results of the first salvo. In theory, the light cannon aboard Predator could fire a bolt that would strike effectively from nearly two miles away. In practice, it took a steady ship, a steady target, skilled gunners, and no small amount of luck to hit something at more than half a mile. Perhaps more if they used the heavier chase gun, Predator's only medium cannon. A light ship's defense was in its agility and speed. And they rarely cruised stably when they went into battle. Such cold-blooded trading of fire was for the heavier warships, armored to withstand multiple hits and carrying weapons ten times the size of Predator's arms. His gunnery crews were all veteran aeronauts of the fleet, and he would match them against any active warship's crew. Though Predator was moving swiftly, the target stood barely two hundred yards off her beam, and the men had known the exact angle at which Kettle would hold the ship. Ships did not dodge broadsides at this range. One could hardly see a cannon's blast in flight; it simply moved too quickly. There was the flash of the gun, and the flash impression of a glowing comet dragging a tail of sparks, and then impact upon the target. With a barely detectable delay in between, not a single crew missed its target, and not a shot landed. Instead, there was a flash of emerald illumination, perhaps twenty yards short of the enemy vehicle, as the cannon blasts struck the enemy ship's shroud. The shroud was a field of energy generated by a ship's crystal power core. When a cannon blast struck the shroud. It illuminated like a hazy spherical cloud, flickering with lightning, absorbing the incoming fire and dispersing its energy safely before it could strike the ship. Shrouds were a strain upon a ship's core, a tremendous demand upon the core's energy reserve. One did not simply sail along with the ship's shroud raised and in place. Grim's eyes widened as time seemed to stop. Predator's cannon had ripped deeply into the enemy shroud. The energy of the blasts, chewing away at the defensive field, almost all the way to the Auroran's hull, but they had not inflicted any damage. The Auroran vessel's shroud was up and in place. Therefore, she had seen Predator coming. Therefore, she had been watching. Therefore, the Auroran had intended to be spotted. Sitting fat and lazy on a sluggish current just above the mesosphere, a perfect target, and she would be ready to return fire. Even as Grim flashed through those thoughts, he saw signal rockets flare out from the Auroran, as if the shrieking thunder of discharged cannon wouldn't have alerted the Auroran's allies. Creedy screamed in fury. He had obviously reached the same conclusions Grim had, and he'd likely thought 
that it would be his death scream. After all, no ship the size of Predator, unarmored, could survive the weight of fire the Auroran could throw back at her. And an instant later, the Auroran returned fire. The deck was nearly bleached away by the flash of light that spilled forth from Predator's shroud when the Auroran guns spoke. The enemy ship carried twelve light cannon in her broadside to Predator's seven, and if they were slightly less powerful individually, the difference was hardly worth noticing. The enemy fire lit up Predator's shroud like a bank of fog and wiped it away almost before it could be seen. But her shroud held, stopping the worst of the enemy fire no more than a dozen feet from her hull and bathing the ship in the sharp smell of ozone. Creedy's scream broke off in a shocked choking sound. Grim would laugh about that later, if he survived the next few moments. For now he had a manoeuvre to complete, and then a trap to escape. Kettle! he boomed, signalling with his hands at the same time. Complete the dive and take us into the mist. Aye, sir, answered the veteran pilot. Then he set his feet and hauled on the steering grips, his teeth clenched, his neck straining with the effort. Predator had stooped upon the Auroran from above her, and to her starboard. Now, as they dived beneath her, Kettle rolled the ship again, far onto her port side, presenting her starboard broadside to the Auroran's lower hull and ventral rigging. Again, Predator's guns howled their fury, but this time there was a difference. Lieutenant Hammond, the starboard gunnery officer, had spotted the enemy's shroud, and in the bare seconds between that stunning revelation and his crew's chance to fire, he had reassigned targeting. Now Predator's guns fired in a rippling sequence, one after another, each aimed exactly amidships on the Auroran. Ripple fire was an old tactic for hammering through a ship's shroud, though it took tremendous training and skill to pull off. The first shot blew aside a portion of the shroud, creating a cavity in its defences. The second lanced in deeper, into the opening created by the first, before it also claimed its portion of the shroud, then the third, and the fourth, and so on. The number six gun's blast left black scorch marks on the enemy's hull, Number seven's shot exploded almost exactly in the centre of the enemy's belly. There was a roar of released energy, a flash of hellishly bright light. A section of hull a good thirty feet across simply vanished, transformed into a cloud of soot and deadly splinters that flew up through the ship above them, hurled like spears by the force of the blast. Fire consumed the hull around the hole and roiled and boiled through the vulnerable guts of the Auroran ship above them. Shattered ventral web masts fell from the ship, only to become tangled in their own rigging and in the finer, nearly invisible shimmers of her ventral web. The sudden drag and the abrupt absence of her ventral web changed both the ship's propulsive balance and her centre of gravity, and she began listing heavily to port. The blast had also smashed one of her two ventral planes to splinters, and as she rolled, she began to yaw as well. Creedy, 
kettle, and every crewman on the deck let out fierce, savage cries of triumph. Though they had by no means dealt the Auroran a mortal blow, she was for the moment severely lamed. She was still deadly with her more numerous guns, blooded but whole behind her mostly solid shroud. But in a duel between the two ships, Predator would now have the upper hand. Grim didn't watch the secondary explosions in the other ship as flickering discharges of etheric energy found volatile crystals aboard the Auroran, probably upon the gauntlets in a weapons locker. He had already flipped his telescopic back down and was raking the surrounding skies with his gaze and the telescopic lenses, searching for whomever the Auroran had been signalling. The second vessel rose out of the mists of the mesosphere. Murky clouds roiling off of her spars and rigging, boiling down off of her plated flanks, and leaving her armored sides gleaming as she rose into the harsh light of the sun. The banner of the Armada of Spire Aurora flew bold from both dorsal and ventral masts, two blue stripes on a field of white, with five scarlet stars spangled between the blue stripes. Across her prow was painted in gold, A S A, Itasca. Staring at her, Grim felt his bones turn cold. Itasca was a ship of legend, with a battle record stretching back more than five hundred years, and the Aurorans considered her a fine prize to be given to veteran captains on the fast route to their own admiralty. Grim couldn't remember her commander's name at the moment, but he would be one of the Auroran's best. Worse, Itasca was a battle cruiser, a vessel designed specifically to run down ships like Predator and hammer them into clouds of glowing splinters. She could take the full punishment of Predator's guns without flinching, and her own weapons, some four times Grim's own broadside. And nearly as heavy as those of a battleship, would slam aside Predator's shroud and destroy the ship and crew behind it in a single salvo. Worse, trusting in her armored plates and shroud, Itasca could stand off and fire accurately from a range Predator could never hope to match. Even worse, she had an armored warship's multiple power cores and could store. Deploy and charge a far greater length of web than Predator, so that even with her vast additional mass, Grim might not be able to outrun Itasca before her guns brought the race to a premature conclusion. The only thing they had going for them was blind luck. The Auroran warship had come up from the mist almost two thousand yards away. Though Grim thought it worth noting that if Predator had come down at the standard angle of attack instead of at Kettle's more daring dive angle, Itasca would have come up barely a hundred yards to port. Itasca's captain, whoever he was, had been lucky in positioning his vessel. After all, the Albion privateer could have dived down on the merchant cruiser from any angle, and Itasca's captain had no way of knowing from which way he'd come. But he'd outthought Grim and predicted his attack successfully. That was the kind of luck a smart captain made for himself. Kettle, he snapped. Dive now. 
The helmsman's hand was moving toward the throttle in instant obedience, even as he blinked in surprise, and then looked past the captain to see Itasca turning her overwhelming broadside to them. The ship dropped again without any maneuvers warning, catching many off guard. There were screams. Grim saw Lieutenant Hammond fly upward from the deck, held down by only a single safety line. The gunnery officer had to have rushed up and down the line of gunners, giving his crews instructions in rapid succession in order to pull off his ripple fire maneuver. Grim thanked God in heaven that the man had remembered to keep one line secure despite his haste. For an instant, Grim thought he'd avoided engaging Itasca entirely, and then, just as Predator reached the top layer of the mists, Itasca opened fire. Grimm's ship was a small target as ships went. Predator was barely more than a destroyer in terms of mass. She was moving fast as well and at an oblique angle. Considering how far away Itasca rode, it would take a fiendishly skilled or lucky gunner indeed to place blasts on target, especially with crews whose eyes were used to the dimness of the mists and now rose into the brilliance of the aerosphere. Someone on Itasca was skilled, or lucky. The blast of the warship's heavy cannon ripped a hole in Predator's shroud as easily as a stone hurtling through a cobweb. The round burst at the top of the rearmost dorsal mast, and only the steep angle of Predator's renewed dive saved her. The explosion tore her topside masts away completely, hungrily devouring her entire dorsal web in a lacework of fire as it went. Shards and splinters of wood went flying, and Grim heard crewmen scream as a cloud of deadly missiles ripped into the starboard gun crews. Shrapnel hit the main crystal of the starboard number three gun, and it went up in a green-white flash that killed its crew and left a gaping wound a good twelve feet across in the ship's flank. An aeronaut named Ericsson in one of the adjacent crews screamed as the section of deck to which his safety lines were fastened went flying out and away from Predator, dragging him with it. He shrieked in terror for an instant, and then man and scream both vanished into the mist as the swirling sea of fog reached up and swallowed Predator whole. Evasive action, Grim ordered. The distant screaming roars of the Itasca's guns continued, and he heard the hungry hissing of blasts streaking through the mists around them, making them glow with hellish light. They had been lucky to survive a single glancing hit. Thirty guns raked the mist, and Grim knew the enemy ship would be rolling onto her starboard side, giving the gunners a chance to track their approximate line of descent. If the same gunner or one of his fellows got lucky again... Predator would not be returning home to Spire Albion. Kettle turned the steering grips hard as the cold mist enveloped them, and the ship slalomed lower into the mezosphere while Grimm waited for the round that would kill his ship and his crew, forcing himself not to hold his breath. All the while, Predator sang her defiance to the mists, the cord shifting and changing with each alteration of her course, and the sound drifted up behind them like mocking laughter. Grim clenched his fists and ground his teeth. 
It was all very well for a ship to behave in such a fashion, but he sometimes wished that Predator could think as well as taunt the enemy. There was nothing to be done for it. Grimm simply had to hope that the mists of the mesosphere would muffle and confuse the source of the sound, giving Itasca's gunners no clear target. He waited for as long as he dared, nearly a minute, and then screamed, "Pull her up!" Kettle signalled the engine room, and their wild descent began to slow. A few measured breaths later, Predator levelled out, and they simply waited. Everyone on deck entirely silent, while Kettle struggled to trim the wounded ship as she completed her dash. After a time, Grim slowly exhaled and bowed his head. He reached up and wearily removed his goggles. The wet air felt cold and sticky against the skin around his eyes. They aren't chasing us, Creedy breathed, bringing his own goggles down. Course not. Itasca's too damn big," Grim replied. His voice sounded hoarse and thin in his own ears. His neck and shoulders felt as if they'd been replaced with bars of brass. A monster like that can't dive with predator. Besides, no Auroran captain would try to follow us in this murk for fear of looking ridiculous. Two blind men can't have a very dignified chase. Creedy snorted through his nose. Damage control, Grim said quietly, unfastening his safety lines. Make sure Doctor Bacon has everything he needs to see to the wounded. Call the roll. I'll be in my cabin. Creedy nodded, looking slowly around them. Sir, Grim paused. This ship's shroud. It's extremely powerful for a vessel of this size. The young officer hadn't actually asked the question, but it hung unspoken in the air between them. Grim didn't like prevarication; it complicated life. But though he thought the young officer was a decent enough sort, he wasn't ready to extend that much trust. Not yet. So he gave the exo a flat gaze and said, "See to the ship, if you please, Mister Creedy." Creedy snapped to attention and threw him an academy perfect salute. Yes, sir, Captain. Grim turned and went to the privacy of his cabin. He closed the door behind him and sat down on his bunk. The battle was over. His hands started to shake, and then his arms, and then his belly. He curled his chest up to his knees and sat quietly for a moment, shuddering in the terror and excitement he hadn't allowed himself to feel during the engagement. Erikson's scream echoed in Grimm's head. He closed his eyes, and the purple blotch the dying number three gun had burned on his retina hovered in his darkened vision. Stupid. He'd been stupid. He'd been tearing huge swaths of profit from the Auroran merchant fleet. It had been inevitable that they would eventually respond to him. Some idiot would probably say that the fact that they'd sent Itasca to deal with him was a high compliment. Said idiot wouldn't be visiting the families of the dead men to give them his condolences and their death pay. He knew that he'd made sound decisions, given what he'd known at the time, but some of his men were dead because of them, nonetheless. They were dead because he'd commanded them, and they'd followed. 
They had known the risks, to a man, and every one of them was ex-fleet. Things could have gone immeasurably worse than they had, but that would be little comfort to the newly minted widows back at the home spire. He sat and shuddered and regretted and promised dead men's shades that he wouldn't make the same mistake twice. He was the captain. By the time Creedy arrived with the damage report, Grimm had reassembled himself. Captain, Creedy said respectfully, I don't think your accomplishments have been properly appreciated at home. Oh? Grimm asked. Yes, sir, Creedy said. Controlled admiration crept into his tone. I mean, for the Aurorans to dispatch Itasca to mousetrap a lone privateer, when you think about it, it's really a kind of compliment, sir. Grimm sighed. Captain Castillo is one of their best, Creedy went on. His attack was nearly perfect, but you slipped right through his fingers. If you were a captain in the fleet, you'd have merited tactical honours for... Creedy's face reddened and his voice trailed off. There are worse things to happen to a man than being drummed out of the fleet, XO, Grimm said quietly. Casualties, then damage reports. How bad? Bad enough, Creedy said. Five dead, six injured, shrapnel mostly, and a concussion from an aeronaut in engineering who unhooked his second line too soon. Grimm nodded. The ship? The dorsal masts are stubs. We'll need to get to a yard to replace them. We had to cut the rigging loose and drop it, so we lost most of the dorsal web. And there's a hole in the gun deck where the number three gun was. We'll need a yard to repair that, too. And we blew two cables in our suspension rig. Grimm took a slow breath. The suspension rig was the central structure of the ship, built around the main lift crystal. The weight of the entire ship hung suspended from the rig and was distributed through its cables. There were eight of them. Any two enough to bear the weight of the entire vessel. But the more cables broke, the more likely it was that those remaining would break, especially during any high-speed manoeuvres. The loss of the occasional cable was expected, but was never to be taken lightly. You're saving the best for last, I think, Grimm said. Creedy grimaced. Chief Journeyman says there are fractures in the main lift crystal. Grimm stopped himself from spitting an acid curse and closed his eyes. That second dive, so soon after the first. That was his theory, sir. He's cut power to the lift crystal and is running extra to the trim crystals to make up the difference in buoyancy and keep us afloat. Grimm smiled faintly and opened his eyes. There will be no prize money on this trip, and no bounty either. The trim crystals that helped adjust the ship's attitude were expensive, and using them to help maintain the ship's lift would be hard on them. But replacing them was a standard operating cost. The large crystals, sufficiently powerful to suspend airships, were another matter. They were far rarer and much more bitterly expensive. Only a power core cost more, 
assuming one could be found at all. Where would he get the money? I see, Grim said. We'll simply have to replace it, I suppose. Perhaps Fleet will put in a word with the Lancasters. Creedy gave him a smile that contained more artifice than agreement. Yes, sir. Well, Grim said, it seems we need to return home. A bit earlier than we'd planned, but that's all right. Set course for Spire Albion, sir. We're in the mist, Exo. Grim replied. We can't take our bearings until we get back up into open sky, where Itasca is doubtless hunting for us. A low groaning tone rumbled through the cabin's portal. After several seconds, it rose higher and higher and higher, into a kind of distorted whistle, and then faded away. Creedy stared out the portal and licked his lips. Sir, was that? Missed more, Grim replied quietly. Yes. Um, isn't that a danger to the ship, sir? Swallow us whole, Grim agreed. They aren't usually aggressive this time of year. Usually? Grim shrugged. If it decides to come eat us, we can't stop it, Exo. Our pop guns will only make it angry. The beasts are that big? Grim found himself smiling. They're that big. He inhaled and exhaled slowly. And they're attracted to powered webbing. Creedy glanced out the portal again. Perhaps we should cut power to the web and reel it in, sir. I think that would be very wise, Exo, Grim said. Though I expect journeymen cut power to the web within a moment after we pulled out of the dive. Unfurl the sails. We'll spend the night moving with the wind, come up sometime tomorrow, and trust that Itasca won't be sitting there waiting for us. Creedy nodded. Once again the strange, long call of the sounding mistmoor vibrated through the cabin. Sir, what do we do about that? The only thing we can, Exo, Grim said. We stay very, very quiet. He nodded a dismissal to Creedy and said, Raise sail. The sooner we get moving, the sooner we get back to Spire Albion. Chapter 3 Spire Albion, Habel Morning, Targwin Vattery Bridget sat in the dim vaults of the Vattery, back in the shadowy corner where the cracked old vat had been removed. She wedged her back against the corner and held her knees up close to her chest. She was cold, of course. The chamber was always cold. She noticed only when she paused to think about it. She'd lived too much of her life in this room for it to be truly uncomfortable. Bridget, called her father's deep voice from the entrance of the chamber. Bridget, are you back here? It's time. Bridget hugged herself harder and pushed a little farther back into the corner. The rows and rows of vats scattered the sound of his voice, sending it bouncing around the chamber. She leaned her head against the cold, reassuring solidity of the cinderstone wall and closed her eyes. This was her home. She didn't want to leave her home. Her father's voice, gentle and deep, 
came again. Take a few more moments, child, and then I want you to come out, please. She didn't answer him. She heard his gentle sigh. She heard the doors to the chambers shut, leaving her with the quietly gurgling vats and the faint glow of a few scattered second-hand lumen crystals. It wasn't fair. She was perfectly happy doing exactly what she'd done ever since she was a small child, and it was a good and necessary duty. Her father's vats provided the finest meats in all of Hebel Morning. After all, without someone to tend them, people would starve, or at least eat inferior meat. She supposed. Personally, she took pride in her craft. She'd rather starve. To death, if necessary, than eat that ridiculous rubbery chum that Camden's vatery produced. It was ridiculous. Her family wasn't one of the high houses, except in a fussy technical sense. She and her father were the only remaining members of the Tugwin line, for goodness' sake. And it wasn't as though they were running out buying new ether silk outfits every other week, or at all. They lived no better than anyone else in Havel Morning. She hadn't asked to be born to the lineage of some overachieving, bloodthirsty fleet admiral, no matter how respected a role he played in the history of Spire Albion. It wasn't as though she and her father enjoyed any particular privileges. Why on earth should she submit to an outdated, rigidly traditional obligation? She felt a small surge of outrage and tried to ride it into something larger and more determined, but it dwindled and flickered out again, leaving her feeling small. She could pretend all she liked. She knew the real reason she didn't want to spend her year in the service of the Spyrarch. She was afraid. There was a rustle and a very light thump, and she looked up to see one of her favorite people bound lightly from the top of the next vat. Land in silence, only a few feet away, and sit down, regarding her with large green eyes. Good morning, Raoul," she said. Her voice sounded little and squeaky in her own ears, especially compared to her father's basso rumble. The dark ginger cat purred a greeting and padded over to her. Without preamble, he climbed into her lap. Turned a lazy, imperious circle and settled down, still purring throatily. Bridget smiled and began to run her fingers lightly around the bases of Raoul's ears. His purr deepened and his eyes narrowed to green slits. "I don't want to go," she said. "It isn't fair, and it isn't as though I can actually help anyone with anything. All I know is the battery." Raoul's purring continued. We don't even own a gauntlet or a sword, unless you count our carving knives. We don't have enough money to get them either, and even if we did, I don't have the faintest idea of how to use them. What am I supposed to do for the Spyrarch's guard? Raoul, having had his fill of getting his ears rubbed, stretched and turned over onto his back. When she didn't begin immediately, he swatted lightly at her hand with a soft paw until she started scratching his chest and belly. Then he sprawled in unashamed luxury, enjoying the attention. But, you know, father, he's so, so good about honouring his obligations. When he gives his word, he keeps it. When he sets out to accomplish something, it's not enough simply to accomplish it. He needs to be the best at it too, or at least try to be. 
He served his time. He says it's important for me to do it too. She sighed. But it's a whole year. I won't get to see him at all. And, and the neighbors, and the people in this corridor, and, and the vats, and the shop, and. She bowed her head and felt her face twist up in pure misery. She gathered Raoul in her arms and hugged him to her, rocking back and forth slightly. After a few moments, the cat murmured, "A little mouse, you're squishing my fur." Bridget jerked guiltily and sat up, loosening her embrace. "Oh," she apologized. "Please excuse me." The cat turned to meet her eyes with his and seemed to consider that for a moment. Then he nodded and said, "I do." "Thank you," Bridget said. "You are welcome." The cat flicked his tail back and forth a few times and said, "Wordkeeper wishes you to leave his territory." It isn't that he wants me to go," Bridget said. "He thinks it's important that I do so." Raoul tilted his head. Then it is a duty. That's how he sees it," Bridget said. "Then there is no matter for consideration." The cat replied, "You have a duty to your sire. He has a duty to his chief. If he has agreed to loan one of his warriors to his chief, then that warrior should go." But I'm not a warrior," Bridget said. The cat looked at her for a moment and then leaned his head forward to rub his little whiskery muzzle against her face. There are many kinds of war, little mouse. What's that supposed to mean? She asked. That you are young," the cat said, "and less wise than one who is old. I am wiser than you, and I say you should go. It is obvious. You should trust a wiser head than your own. You aren't any older than I am," she countered. "I am cat," Raoul said smugly. Which means I have made better use of my time. Oh, you're impossible," Bridget said. "Yes, cat." Raoul rose and flowed down onto the floor. He turned to face her, curling his tail around his paws. "Why do you wish to dishonor and humiliate Wordkeeper? Would you change his name?" "No, of course not." Bridget said, "But I'm just—I'm not like him." No, Raoul said. That is what growing up is for. I am not a child," she said. The cat looked around speculatively, and then turned back to her. Rather than do your duty, you are hiding in the darkest corner of the darkest room in your home. This is very wise, very mature. Bridget scowled and folded her arms over her stomach, but she said nothing. She was acting like a child. Raoul was right; he generally was, but did he have to be so irritating about it? You are afraid," Raoul said. 
You are afraid to leave the territory you know. Bridget felt the tears welling up again. She nodded. Why? Raoul asked. What is there to fear? I don't know, she whispered. Raoul just sat, green eyes penetrating. Bridget bit her lip. Then she said in a very small voice, I don't want to be alone. Ah, Raoul said. The cat turned and vanished into the deep shadows of the chamber, leaving her feeling smaller and colder and even more alone than before. Bridget wiped at her eyes with her sleeve and swallowed the tight feeling in her throat. Then she stood up. She left her hand against the cool stone for another long moment and tried to think of that familiar sensation coursing into her, infusing her with strength. Raoul was right in his smugly annoying way. Her family did have a duty. There might not be much left of House Targwin, but it was still a good house. After all her father had done for her, after all the love he had given her when her mother passed, she owed him more than embarrassment, even if no one thought it embarrassing but him. It was only a year, only one long, strange, lonely, terrifying year. She walked slowly to the chamber door. When her father opened it, she looked up at him. Franklin Tarquin was an enormous block of a man, his shoulders almost as wide as the doorway. His arms were thicker than many men's legs, and the muscles sloping up to his columnar neck were like slabs of stone. He wore his white apron and his belt with its vaterists' carving knives. His rumpled hair was the color of bare iron, and his eyes looked tired and concerned. She tried to smile for him. He deserved it. His answering smile was tired, and she knew she hadn't fooled him. He didn't say anything. He just enfolded her in a gentle hug. She put her arms around his solid warmth and leaned against him. There's my brave girl, he said quietly. My Bridget, your mother would have been so proud of you. I'm not brave, she said. I'm so afraid. I know, he said. I won't know anyone, she said. I expect you'll make friends quickly enough. I did. She huffed out a tired little breath. Because I've made so many friends in the houses already. Bridget, he said, his voice a gentle reproof. You know you've never really tried. Of course not. They're pompous, spoiled, egotistical brats. His chuckle was a low rumble against her cheek. Yes, I know that they seem that way to you. But you had more responsibility thrust on you than most children when you were young, especially the children of the houses. You had to grow up so fast. He leaned his cheek against her hair. I can hardly believe it myself. Seventeen years went by so quickly. Daddy, she said quietly, I know you haven't cared much for the other children of the houses, but they aren't all bad, and most of them will grow up. Eventually, you'll see. He leaned back from her and held her at arm's length. There's something I must speak to you about. One more responsibility I must ask of you. She nodded. Of course, father. 
He rested his huge hand fondly on her head for a moment, smiling. Then he said, I need you to look after someone for me. She tilted her head and blinked. Pardon? Behind her father, two cats sauntered into the room. The first was a very large grey male, a muscular beast with many scars in his otherwise smooth fur and notched ears. The second was Raoul. The ginger cat sat down behind and slightly to one side of the grey, and his whiskers quivered with amusement. His father spoke very seriously. Clan Chief Maul has decided that it is time for the Spyrarch to recognize his tribe as citizens of Habble Morning, which, to his way of thinking, obviously means that his line is no different from one of the other high houses. As such, he acknowledges his obligation to detach a member of his family for service to the Spyrarch. I offered you to Raoul as a guide, to help him learn the ways of the Spyrarch's warriors. Bridget blinked for a moment and then felt her face turning up into a wide, wide smile. Wait, are you saying... Are you saying that Raoul is going with me? No, Raoul said smugly. You are going with me. It is much more important that way. Chief Maul glanced at Raoul in what might have been vague disapproval. The younger cat blinked his eyes once, slowly, and seemed to Bridget to be insufferably pleased with himself. This is an important duty, her father said. Laughter sparkled in his eyes, and I know it will be a sacrifice for you. But are you willing to do this for the sake of House Tarquin's good relations with the chief and his clan? Bridget turned to Raoul and held out her arms. The ginger cat padded over and leapt up into them, nuzzled his cheek against hers again, and settled down comfortably. His softness was a favourite blanket, and his purr was as familiar as one of her mother's barely remembered lullabies. Well, Bridget said, she nuzzled her cheek against Raoul's fur. If it's for the house of Tagban, then obviously it is my solemn duty. I'll manage. Chapter 4 Spire Albion, Habble Morning For Gwen, the following two weeks were absolutely dreadful. I really don't quite see the point of all this, she panted. Her legs hurt, her feet ached, her chest felt as if it were on fire. All in all, she saw little reason for this running about the Spyrarch's manor, and they'd done so for increasing amounts of time every single day during their training. It's good for you, Cousin Benedict said. He was a tall, lean young man, less than two years older than Gwen herself, with tawny brown hair cut into a soft, thick brush. He wore the same exercise uniform Gwen did, though he loped along beside her lightly, without any apparent effort at all. There was no detectable strain in his voice, none at all. The rotten, cat-eyed, thoroughly disgusting lout. It's all very well for you, Gwen gasped. You've done it before. For the last two years, yes, Benedict agreed. You aren't wearing these ridiculous clothes. I'm wearing exactly the same clothing, Benedict countered. Yes, but you're used to them. Ugh, 
pants. How do you stand running in these things? Better than I would in skirts, I dare say. He answered. I thought you'd love the running, Gwen. I personally grew to find it invigorating. Gwen sputtered, invigorating. Benedict Michael Sorrelin Lancaster, you may personally kiss my, as you wish, Cuz. Benedict said, smiling. I must say, you're shaping up rather nicely. Gwen kept pushing herself to keep moving, and felt that she hardly had the energy to regard the compliment with the proper suspicion. What? The tall young man smirked. You were barely able to complain at all the first few days. Just listen to you now. You've had something to say all the way to the end of the run. Gwen glared daggers up at her larger cousin and let out an incoherent growling sound. It was all she could manage as the crew of training guardsmen rounded the corner and pounded their way down the final length of wall to the courtyard. As they ran, people in the market watched them pass. Gwen herself had seen this peculiar practice of the guard on many occasions. She had been aware that she would perforce engage in the same activity upon joining, but no one had told her that it was so very taxing. Company, bellowed the grey-haired Captain Cavallo as they reached their destination. Halt! Fall out, people! The grey-clad guardsmen staggered to a ragged stop. Though the new recruits had set off in a neat formation, four abreast, that hadn't lasted long, and the crew that flopped down onto the cinderstone floor did so in an unruly, panting mob. The shapeless tunic and trousers that they'd run in were all identical, and all of them were dampened with sweat. The veterans came to a relaxed stop. Their breathing controlled and stood grinning at the recruits, or else speaking quietly to one another. Gwen disliked being gawked at by absolutely anyone, though that blocky, blonde Reginald Astor annoyed her more than most. He thought himself handsome, and was in an irritatingly self-assured way, and he always had a habit of staring when she was dishevelled and covered with sweat, with her uniform sticking to her in a most unladylike fashion. She looked up with a scowl and found Reginald staring again. An insolent smile on his face. She glared at him and said to Benedict, "I don't suppose you mentioned to Reggie how much I dislike his gawking." Benedict looked down at her, smiling. It would only make him be more obvious about it. Such a needless trial, Gwen muttered. In addition to the needless trial we're already undergoing. Would you like me to go protect my helpless little cousin then? Benedict offered. Gwen frowned for a moment. Benedict's offer was tempting, and it shouldn't have been. Normally, she would have been perfectly comfortable with the notion of bracing some leering cad and pinning his ears back properly. For some reason, though, allowing her cousin to manage such a thing for her seemed simpler. Perhaps it was the exhaustion of all the running and classwork. Cavallo lectured the recruits for several hours every afternoon about the various habbles, their laws, and their relationships with one another. And while her own tutors had long since given her a similar grounding, it seemed that they had left a good many things out of their lessons, or at least they had never made any particular effort to bring the ramifications of all those dry facts to Gwen's attention. 
and she had found herself stammering like a perfect nitwit when confronted with them during the captain's lectures. Gwen was unused to being less than excellent at anything she pursued. She was not an excellent runner. She was not an excellent student of spire politics. Nor did she seem to be able to gain a proper grasp of the morning inquisition classes, a subject to which she'd had no prior exposure whatsoever. Oh, she had done well enough in the practice hall, when it came to the use of gauntlets at least, but her blade work remained every bit as inept as it had ever been, and she felt glumly certain that when live blade training commenced in a few weeks, she would continue working with a wooden training blade. Being incompetent was surprisingly draining upon one's confidence, and annoying. Was that why she didn't want to deal with Reginald? Was she afraid that she would find herself insufficient to the task of dissuading him? She'd had a considerable amount of practice in insufficiency of late. What if it had become a habit? Nonsense, she told herself firmly. It appeared that she was going to have to face a great many challenging circumstances if she was to remain a guardsman, and she had to remain a guardsman. Any other outcome was unacceptable, since it would mean returning home and admitting to mother that she had been correct. Now that was something that could not be borne. I will deal with him, Gwen said firmly. But thank you, Cuz, for offering. Benedict nodded as if that had been the answer he expected all along. May I recommend you wait for a bit of privacy? A young woman bracing a peer in public is one thing. A recruit who confronts a veteran guardsman that way is another matter entirely. I'll consider it, Gwen said. Benedict did his best not to wince, Gwen could tell, but he didn't try to gainsay her either. Very well. She sat for a time, breathing hard, her legs and feet aching most unpleasantly. It would pass, though. Already she felt she had recovered better from this run than she had after a night's sleep subsequent to her first run two weeks before. Gwen had to admit that the exercise was quite practical. Each level of the spire was simply enormous, and if one could maintain a hard pace for hours at a time, it would not be difficult to outrun an enemy or to catch some kind of criminal. Thieves, she felt sure, did not run as a matter of daily training. They wouldn't have someone like Cavallo pushing them. Were they the self-motivated sort, they would hardly be thieves, would they? When Gwen looked up again, most of the recruits and veterans had moved back into the walled courtyard of the Spyrarch's palace. Only Reginald and a handful of his cronies remained outside, along with Gwen and one of the largest young women Gwen had ever met. The girl was a quiet one, and her blonde hair was long and thick. She had shoulders as wide as some men, thick wrists, and strong-looking hands and forearms. Her name was... Bother. Gwen couldn't remember her introducing herself to anyone. Actually... Gwen couldn't remember her speaking at all, unless questioned by an instructor in the classroom. The other recruits all referred to her as the cat girl. The cat in question came scampering out of the courtyard and ran over to the large young woman. It was a ginger-coloured beast, and would have been quite appealing had it not been such a filthy creature. 
Cats lived in all the crawl spaces and vents and other unsavoury, dank, vermin-infested regions of the spire as a matter of course. One would see cats now and again when moving about the habel, but they rarely associated directly with humans. Occasionally a household might be adopted by a cat or a small group of them, and some businesses found it wise to offer them food in exchange for their services as exterminators. It was a much simpler arrangement than refusing to pay the cats and then finding one's stores emptied without a trace in the dead of night. She had heard of cats who had been employed as tenders and guardians for young children, but such arrangements were almost always business-oriented. Gwen had never heard of a cat who showed affection. The lithe creature flowed into the cat girl's lap, turning in several circles and rubbing against her as he did. He nuzzled her cheek with his nose and sniffed curiously at her sweaty uniform. The girl absently ran her hands over the cat's fur, and the beast settled down to enjoy the attention. "'What I want to know,' said one of Reginald's group, "'is what precisely that vermin is doing running loose about the manor.' "'It's quite unnatural,' Reginald agreed. He folded his arms and regarded the cat girl speculatively. "'It makes one wonder what could motivate a reasonable person to shelter such a pest.' At that, the cat girl looked up at Reginald. The large young man gave her his widest smile. "'Well,' How about it, Bridget, love? What rewards do you reap from having the beast nearby? The cat girl, that was right, her name was Bridget, something or other, looked at Reginald for a few seconds before answering. Her face was a neutral mask. You wouldn't understand. That drew a round of chortles from the young nobles. Really? Reginald asked. And why is that? Bridget frowned thoughtfully for a moment, choosing her words with deliberate care. Then she nodded slightly to herself and said calmly, "'Because you are an ass, sir.' Had the cat girl slapped him across the face, she could not have drawn a more startled reaction from the young noble. Reginald opened his mouth silently a few times and then said, "'Excuse me?' "'I'm sorry,' Bridget said. She rose, still holding the cat in her arms, and raised her voice slightly, enunciating the words. You are an ass. She smiled faintly. Sir. Gwen felt her eyebrows climb toward her hairline. You, you cannot speak to me in such a way, Reginald said. Bridget and the cat regarded him with unblinking eyes. Apparently I can, sir. Reginald's eyes flashed with anger. You shouldn't even be here, he snarled. Your house died decades ago. You and your father are nothing but the last few scraps of meat clinging to a rotting bone. Something shifted. Gwen couldn't tell precisely what had happened, but the air was suddenly thick. Bridget's face never moved. Her eyes didn't narrow, nor did she bare her teeth. She said nothing. She did not so much as twitch a muscle. She only stared at Reginald. It was the cat, Gwen realised.
The beast's eyes seemed to have grown larger, and the very tip of his long tail had begun to flick left and right in slow rhythm. The cat stared at Reginald as if he were preparing to spring upon him with murder in mind. When Bridget spoke, her voice was hardly louder than a whisper. What did you say about my father? Gwen rose hurriedly. Reginald was a practised duellist, and while most such confrontations ended in only mild injuries, it was quite possible for one or both participants to be killed when tempers were hot, and she was abruptly certain that the heavy silence now gathered around the cat girl was a thundercloud of undiluted rage. An insult like the one Reginald had delivered was ample grounds to demand satisfaction, though she was certain the ass hadn't deliberately set out to provoke the reaction. If, however, Bridget was as upset as Gwen suspected, that might be exactly what he got, and Reggie, for all his oafishness, was more than competent with both Blade and Gauntlet. Bridget was very nearly as bad with Blades as Gwen was, and her Gauntlet work was atrocious. A duel could not end well for her. Excuse me, Gwen said, walking over to Bridget as though nothing at all were happening. Bridget's eyes and those of the cat both flicked toward Gwen at the same time. Goodness, that young woman was tall. She had at least a foot on Gwen. We haven't been introduced, Gwen said pleasantly. I'm Gwendolyn Lancaster. Bridget frowned faintly. Bridget Tarquin. Gwen cocked an eyebrow. The house of Admiral Tarquin. The corner of Bridget's mouth twitched, perhaps in irritation. The same. How wonderful, Gwen said, a slight edge to her tone. He was the finest naval commander in the history of all of Spire Albion. In fact, the Spire might not be here at all if not for his courage and skill. You come from one of the greatest families in our history. Bridget frowned again, then she ducked her head in a small, awkward bow. Thank you. She comes of a footnote in Albion history, Reginald said, his voice sullen. What has her family done for the spire lately? Nothing. Their house grows meat, for heaven's sake, like a common trog. Bridget's eyes went back to Reginald. You say that as if it is an insult, sir. And what is that supposed to mean? Reginald demanded. That I would rather be a common trog than an ass of house aster, sir. Reginald's face turned bright red. You dare cast an insult into the face of my house? Not its face, Bridget said, arching an eyebrow. It's ass. You vile little trog. Reginald said, "You think that because you've been to the Spyrarch's Manor, because you are in training for the Guard, that you are worthy of such an honour? You think you can yap and taunt your betters because of it?" "I'm not sure," Bridget said. "I'll let you know once I meet someone better than me." Reginald's eyes blazed, and with a snarl, he ripped one of his gloves from his belt and flung it hard at Bridget's face. Bridget never moved, but Gwen did. She snatched the glove out of the air and turned to face Reginald. Reggie, no. Did you hear that bloody slab? Reginald snarled. Did you hear what she said about my house? 
And what you said about hers, Gwen said. You started this, Reginald Astor. Stay out of this, Gwendolen. I demand satisfaction. His furious gaze went back to Bridget. Unless the famed courage of the House of Tarquin has dwindled away to nothing along with its bloodline. Bridget's frown deepened and her mouth opened slightly. She glanced aside at Gwen and said, Miss Lancaster, did this man just challenge me to a duel? Hardly a man, Gwen replied. She looked up and met Bridget's eyes, and yes, he did. Lunatics, Bridget breathed. Must I accept? If you don't, Gwen said, he can litigate. The council could assess a punitive fine against House Tarquin. Could, Reginald said. Would. I guarantee the high houses would rule harshly against such a display of disrespect to one of the leading houses of Albion. Bridget looked at Gwen again. Is that true? Courts are never certain, Gwen said. But it probably is. But I never insulted the Astors. Only him. He's the heir to the house, I'm afraid, Gwen said. The council may not make that distinction. Bridget closed her eyes for a moment and muttered beneath her breath, When will I learn to keep my mouth shut? You don't have to do this, Gwen said. We are barely holding on as it is, Bridget said. If, if we were fined, my father would have to sell the vattery. Reginald barked out a harsh-sounding laugh. Which is why insignificant little nothing houses should show more respect to their seniors. You should have thought of that before you spoke. The cat's claws made a scratching sound against the sleeve of Bridget's shirt. She put a hand on the beast as if restraining it. Apologize, Reginald snarled. Now, and I will forget that this happened. Bridget paused again before she spoke. Then she squared her shoulders, faced Reginald, and said, But I wouldn't. She glanced at Gwen. How does this work? Do we fight right now? Gwen blinked up at the large girl. You actually intend to accept his challenge? Bridget nodded her head once. The cat made a low, eager, growling sound. Gwen sighed. It doesn't happen here. You'll need a second, someone to accompany you, help you prepare, and to schedule the duel. You'll also need a marshal to adjudicate it. Bridget blinked. That seems like a needlessly complicated way to do something so adolescent. And there are excellent reasons for it, Gwen said. I see, Bridget said. How do I accept his challenge? Gwen wordlessly held out the glove. Ah... Bridget said, and took it. Reginald nodded tightly and gestured at one of the young nobles beside him. This is Barnabas. He will be my second. Have your second contact him. Good day. He spun on a heel and marched away, into the palace, taking his entourage with him. Bridget and Gwen watched them go. After a moment, Bridget said, I didn't need your help. Pardon? Gwen asked. Your help. I didn't need you to come over here and make things worse. Worse? Gwen asked, startled. In what way did I make things worse? 
I didn't ask you for your help. When you got involved, his idiot pride was at stake. He was forced to start defending the honor of House Astor for fear of showing weakness to a Lancaster. Bridget shook her head. If you weren't there, all I had to do was stop talking. It would have left him with nowhere to go. I was trying to help you, Gwen said. Bridget rolled her eyes. Why do all you people in the high houses think that you are the only ones who can possibly manage matters that are none of your bloody business? Did you even consider the fact that I might not want your interference? Gwen folded her arms and scowled. She, she hadn't, had she? Not for one second. And of course, Reggie had been more stung by Bridget's words because he wanted Gwen, and resented being humiliated in front of her. Gwen hadn't thought things through. She'd simply charged into the situation, attempting to pour oil on troubled waters, only she'd set the oil on fire instead. As a result, it looked like someone was going to get burned. She couldn't leave things in that state, not when she'd helped put them there. She couldn't bear it if anyone were hurt because of her foolishness. Well, perhaps if it was Reggie and he wasn't hurt too badly, but she'd feel awful if anything happened to Bridget. You might have a point," Gwen said quietly. "But that doesn't matter now. Why on earth not?" Bridget asked. "Haven't you the faintest idea of what is involved in a formal duel?" Two fools," Gwen found herself smiling faintly. "Other than that," Bridget seemed to withdraw into herself. She hunched down a little, as if trying to hide her height. She frowned down at the cat, stroking its fur. Other than that, no, I have no idea. Reginald does, Gwen said quietly. You might not want my help, Miss Tarquin, but as of now, you most assuredly need it. Chapter Five, Spire Albion, Habble Morning. Bridget regarded the nobleman uncertainly. I'm not at all sure about this, sir. Benedict Sorlin Lancaster stood facing her, in the gloom of what could only loosely be considered early morning in Habble Morning's marketplace, outside the training compound of the Spirearch Guard. He was a tall man, as tall as her father, but lean with youth and a natural inclination. Benedict gave her a smile that he probably meant to be reassuring. But it showed a little too much of his larger-than-average canine teeth. That's the problem, isn't it? He said, "You aren't sure, and you need to be. Come on, then. I need to assess what kind of physical strength you have. You'll not hurt me, Miss Tarquin. I assure you." It seems improper," she said, frowning. Of course, she wouldn't hurt him, but even had that been her intention, Benedict's. Golden, vertically slit eyes showed him to be warrior-born, with the blood and the strength of lions in his limbs. Are you quite sure this is sanctioned by the guard? Normally, open-hand combat is taught after your initial training course, but there's no regulation that says you've got to wait that long to learn, as long as it's your time you're spending and not the guard's. I see, Bridget said. That seems equitable. How should I attack you? Benedict's face remained serious, but his eyes suddenly sparkled. 
Bridget's stomach did an odd little shuffle step, and she looked down straight away. Just come at me, he said. Try to pick me up. Bridget frowned but nodded at him. I see, she said. She took several steps closer to the young man and said, Excuse me, please. Don't say excuse me, Benedict chided. You won't be saying excuse me to Reggie on the dueling stage. Bridget bent, fairly irritated by his tone, got a shoulder beneath Benedict's stomach, and dragged him up off the floor. He wasn't much heavier than a slab of red meat from one of the large vats back home, and she lifted him, held him there for a moment, and then continued the motion, tossing him over her back and onto the cinderstone floor behind her. She turned to find him sitting on the ground, staring at her with his mouth slightly open. I'm sorry, she said. Was that acceptable? You. Ugh, Benedict said. His golden eyes glinted in the gloom. You're rather fit, Miss Targwin. I work for a living, Bridget said. She regretted the words almost instantly. She hadn't meant them as an insult to him, implying that he did not, but a prickly scion of one of the great houses of Albion could readily interpret them that way. But no anger touched his eyes. Instead, his face spread into a slow, delighted smile. Oh, maker of ways, he breathed, and the sound flooded out into a bubbling laugh. Bridget liked the way his laugh sounded. She found her mouth tugging up into a small smile. I beg your pardon, sir. We should issue tickets to this duel, he said. Reggie could spend his life trying and still not live it down. I beg your pardon, Bridget repeated. Whatever do you mean? The duel, the young man said. He challenged you, which means that you have the right to choose the location of the duel and the weapons to be used. How nice for me, she said, but I still don't follow. Benedict pushed himself back up to his feet, smiling. You don't choose a weapon at all. You make it an unarmed duel. Bridget tilted her head. That does seem less likely to result in someone being maimed or killed for no good reason. But I don't know how to fight that way. I do, Benedict said. The basics are reasonably simple to learn, and you're strong enough. Bridget frowned. But presumably Reggie has had a great deal more training than I have, and while I am quite strong for a woman, I am surely not much stronger than he is. Would that not mean that he would have little difficulty in overcoming me? That depends on what path you take, Benedict said. Bridget felt her frown deepen. My path? You aren't going to attempt to convert me to your religion, are you? I hope you are not, sir. That would be awkward. Again, that easy laugh rolled forth. Those who follow the way have no need to proselytize. One does not convert to the way. One simply realizes that one already follows the way. God in heaven, not that speech again, came a new voice. Gwendolyn Lancaster appeared from the gloom, dressed in the plain grey exercise clothing of the guard, just as they were. It was difficult for Bridget to reconcile the absolute confidence in the noblewoman's stance and voice with her utterly diminutive size. 
Bridget felt quite certain that even without training, she could break Miss Lancaster like a ceramic doll. Dearest cuz, Benedict said, his voice turning even more pleasant. You are looking particularly Gwenish today. Gwendolen arched one dark brow sharply at that statement and then said, What are you doing on the ground? She threw me here, Benedict said, his tone pleased. Gwendolen frowned at him and then her eyebrows lifted. Did she? Her eyes turned to Bridget. She doesn't look warrior-born. She isn't, Benedict said, but she works in a vattery. I don't suppose I weigh too much more than a side of red meat, do I, Miss Bridget? Not much more at all, sir. Gwen narrowed her eyes. Oh, you aren't thinking... For Reggie, I most certainly am, Benedict said. It's perfect. Stop it, Bridget said at last, exasperated. Both of you, stop it this instant. It's like you've both read a book that I haven't and you won't stop talking about it. It's most impolite. I'm sorry, Gwendolen said. I take it you weren't raised to be as underhanded and devious as Benny and me. Bridget blinked. Goodness, that the noble woman would just say it outright like that seemed very, very bold. But at the same time, somewhat reassuring. Gwendolyn Lancaster might have been many things, but at least she didn't seem as smugly capable of self-deception as many of the other children of the high houses. I would not care to make such a judgment of your families, Bridget said carefully, but no, it would seem not. Raoul came padding out of the darkness, silent as always, offering no explanation of where he had been as always. Bridget bent one of her knees slightly, hardly needing to think about it, and he used it as a springboard to hop lightly into her arms and then flow up onto one of her shoulders. The cat nuzzled her cheek, and she leaned her head in toward his slightly. Listen carefully, little mouse, Raoul said in an almost inaudible tone. I have sought word upon these two. They are dangerous. Bridget flicked her eyes toward the cat and gave a tiny fraction of a nod to tell him that she understood. Being called dangerous by a cat could mean a great many things, but it was generally delivered as something of a compliment. She thought the two nobles to be rather self-involved and entirely overflowing with arrogance they hardly seemed to know existed, but she had learned long ago not to treat a cat's opinion lightly. So she said to Gwendolen, Please excuse me, Miss Lancaster. You were saying? Gwendolen had tilted her head, her bright eyes studying the cat sharply. I was saying that if you can come near to matching Reggie in physical strength, then you can fight a duel he cannot win. I don't really care if anyone wins, Bridget said. I just want everyone to walk away alive and for this nonsense to be over. Gwendolyn blinked and suddenly flashed Bridget a smile that looked as warm and true as an aeronaut's sunrise. You have an absolutely wretched attitude about fighting a pointless duel for the sake of pride. Did you know that? Thank goodness, Bridget said. The point is, Benedict said, rising easily to his feet, that if you can offer him anything like a real fight, 
There's no way he can win the duel. If he defeats you barehanded, it likely won't be by much, and he looks like a brute and a bully. And if you defeat him, he'll be forever the Aster who was beaten soundly by. Benedict broke off and gave Bridget a slight smile. By the Vattery Trog, Bridget said. She smiled slightly. That would be quite the vile thing to do to him, wouldn't it? Though, Gwendolen said, beaming. But I'm not going to do that, Bridget said. Why under heaven would you not? Gwendolen asked. He more than has it coming. Possibly, Bridget allowed. But to humiliate him would be to invite some other kind of indirect reprisal. If not upon me, then upon my father. My father is a good man. I won't see that kind of mischief brought to him because of me. She looked at Benedict. Is there some weapon that we could use that would allow him to win without slaughtering me or looking like a fool? There's no weapon, tool, or clockwork in the world that could make Reggie not look the fool, Gwen said in an acid tone. I don't care about victory, Bridget said. I don't care about making him look bad. I just want to move on with my life as if we'd never traded words. You're right, Cuz. Benedict said, nodding slowly. She has a wretched attitude about dueling for pride. The two traded another longer look, which again made Bridget feel that she'd skipped the necessary background reading needed to understand. Food, Gwendolen suggested suddenly. The two of you came out here so early, you've missed breakfast call. Inquisition class is in half an hour. And you don't want to run on an empty stomach after that. She looked up at Raoul and added, "And for you as well, Master Cat, I'm buying." Raoul said smugly, "This one has her priorities well sorted. Tell her my favorite food." Raoul, Bridget said, "That is not how one goes about such things." She looked up to find both of the Lancasters staring at her. You speak cat," Benedict said. "I mean, I'd heard that some people claimed to do it, but for goodness' sake, you sounded exactly like a cat just now." He has no idea how terrible your accent is," Raoul observed. Bridget rolled her eyes at the cat and said to Benedict, "Yes, of course. Do you not have any cats in residence at House Lancaster?" Certainly not," Gwendolen said. "Mother wouldn't hear of it." "We do, actually," Benedict said, cutting over Gwendolen smoothly. "The servants have an arrangement with several cats to handle vermin, but as far as I knew, it's an old understanding, and no one there has ever actually communicated directly with a cat before." Gwendolen blinked several times. "How is it that you know that when I do not?" Because no one tells you anything, Cuz," Benedict said. "Perhaps because you spend so much time with Lady Lancaster and often do not pause to think before you speak." Gwendolen tilted her head to one side as if to acknowledge a fair point. Then she blinked again and said, "And then I am afraid that I have been quite rude. I have neither introduced myself to your companion, nor sought introduction to him." Please convey to him my apologies, if you would, Miss Targon. 
Bridget looked carefully at Gwendolen for a moment, waiting for the flash of mockery that would appear in her eyes, as they would have in Reggie's. But it didn't come. She seemed sincere, imperious, and obsessed with protocol, but sincere. What is this? She asks, little mouse. Raoul said, leaning forward to peer intently at Gwendolen. She seeks an exchange of names. Bridget told him in cat, human names, not cat names. She feels she has wronged you by not seeking it sooner. Raoul stiffened in indignation. Has she? Perhaps not intentionally. Bridget allowed. She wasn't sure what to think of a cat appearing among humans. I suspect she genuinely seeks to avoid giving offence. Raoul's tail lashed back and forth. What would Wordkeeper say of her? Bridget smiled slightly. She knew precisely how her father would treat Miss Lancaster. He would ask her to tea and extend all courtesy. Raoul nodded his head sharply once—a very human gesture. Then I will also extend courtesy. Tell her my name, and that she has not yet earned a cat name of her own. But that breakfast is a good start. Bridget turned to Gwendolen and said, "Miss Lancaster, this is Raoul of the Silent Paws tribe, Kit Tamal, chief of the Silent Paws, a prince of his house, as you are of yours, Cus." Benedict noted. Gwendolen evidently had the grace to avoid looking sceptical at this pronouncement. She gave Benedict a decidedly unreadable look. Which only made him smile. He had, Bridget thought, a very nice smile. Gwendolen turned back to look at Raoul seriously and said, "Welcome, Sir Raoul, to the human part of Habble Morning. It would please me very much to buy you breakfast if you would permit it." Raoul promptly plopped down into Bridget's arms, his throaty purr needing no translation. A very good start," he murmured. "Yes, Miss Lancaster," Bridget said. "That would be fine." Chapter Six. Spire Albion, Habble Morning. Raoul watched Little Mouse and her fellow humans behaving foolishly, and wondered how soon she would need him to intervene and set things right. Once more, they had slept less than all the humans in the Spyrarch's guard, and once more, the human Gwendolen and her half-souled cousin thought that they were preparing Little Mouse for some kind of combat, which was ridiculous. The best way to prepare for fighting was to fight. Any kitten knew that. Currently, Benedict was having Little Mouse practice falling, which was similarly ridiculous. One didn't practice. Falling, one simply landed on one's feet. Yet over and over, little mouse fell from her feet to her back. Sometimes alone, sometimes helped along the way by Gwendolen or Benedict. Raoul had been suspicious of this activity at first, assuming that it would be used as an excuse for Gwendolen to eliminate a rival female, or for Benedict to claim mating rights with little mouse. But over the past few days, it had proven to be more foolish than nefarious. 
and did not seem to harm Little Mouse to any significant degree, so Raoul permitted it to continue. It seemed a shame to waste so much of one's time, and to miss so much sleep, in such a fundamentally stupid activity. If they'd only asked Raoul about it, he could have explained it to them. Benedict began to show Little Mouse how to make him fall to the floor. What was the point of learning to do such a thing slowly and obviously with considerable cooperation from Benedict? Did Little Mouse think that a foe would behave in such a way? Raoul sensed a pressure change in the air against the fur of his flank and his whiskers, and lazily tilted an ear in that direction. There was a whisper of motion. Utterly inaudible to anyone but a cat, with all the commotion the humans were making to cover it, and Meryl emerged from the shadows. Raoul," said the black-furred female. Meryl was a small cat, but swift and intelligent. She was one of Maul's whiskers, his spies and hunters. Only a tiny ring of green was visible around her large, dark pupils, and the only way to see her in the gloom was by the dim shine of her eyes. Meryl, Raoul replied lazily. Meryl prowled to his side and sat studying the humans. What are they doing? They mean to teach Little Mouse to fight, Raoul said. Meryl considered them gravely. I see. Have they begun yet? They seem to think so, Raoul said. What news from my father? He sends his greetings and says that you are to do your duty, or he will notch your ears. Raoul flicked his tail and yawned. I know what I am to do. Is that all? Meryl twitched her ears in an amused flick, but her tone became more serious. He says that Long Thinker has confirmed the reports of the Silent Paw Scouts. Raoul moved his eyes to the smaller cat. The new things in the air shafts. Meryl blinked her eyes in affirmation. So say the shadow tales. And the quick claws, and half a dozen other tribes besides them. Cats have gone missing in other habbles as well, but none have seen what took them. Raoul made an irritated sound in his chest.、Mm, that seems cowardly. To me, Meryl said, it seems skillful. That is well. Are we then at war? Not yet, Meryl said. Maul says that first we must know whom we would war against. What does Longthinker say we face? Longthinker is not sure. Raoul looked at Meryl sharply, but he said nothing. His tail lashed back and forth restlessly. Longthinker was not cat, but he was clever, wise, and honourable. If he did not know what threat now stalked the Silent Paws and other tribes in their own home tunnels, it must be something strange indeed, or something new. Please tell my father," 
Raoul said, that I advise a declaration of war immediately, without restriction. We will be better served by immediate aggression than by too much caution. Let us hunt and destroy them before they have a chance to nest. I will tell him your words, Meryl said. She twitched a careless whisker. He will not heed them. Raoul ignored that last remark with a disdain it richly deserved. Meryl sat beside him and watched the humans flopping about. I have seen such a thing before. This fight teaching? Raoul asked, his tone dubious. In the Temple of the Way, in Habel Landing, Meryl said. What were you doing all the way down there? Raoul asked. My duty as a whisker, Meryl replied loftily. They did something resembling this, only there were more of them, and they wore different kinds of clothing. Did they look this foolish? Meryl tilted her head thoughtfully. Many did, but others seemed less foolish. In what way? They moved less poorly. Not so well as a cat, of course. Of course, Raoul said. But they were much less clumsy than most humans. She used a paw to comb the fur of one ear. Perhaps it works. They both watched Little Mouse take a particularly hard fall. Eventually. They are rather slow humans. Raoul mused. Do you really think it has potential? She hardly need be much less clumsy to make another human look so, Meryl said. Whom is she to fight? A young male. He aimed words of pain at Wordkeeper. In reply, Little Mouse slapped his ears with her words. Now they plan to fight. They plan to fight? Meryl said, mystified. Why does she not go find him in his sleep and fight him then? Raoul yawned. I have no idea. But he will not find her in her sleep. If he tries, I will rip out his eyes. Sensible, Meryl said. Though a human is no easy prey, not even for the mighty Raoul. A proper whisker should not make so much noise, Raoul growled. Meryl rose and bowed her head in a mirror of the human gesture. Yes, mighty Raoul. Raoul fetched her a swift rap on the nose, though not with his claws extended, but Meryl avoided it with lazy grace, her eyes dancing with laughter. She sauntered off, flicking her tail mockingly. You are almost as handsome as you think you are, you know. And you are too quick and too clever for your own good, Raoul replied calmly. Keep your wits about you in the tunnels. I would prefer it if you did not go missing. Don't make a foolish mistake that gets you killed while protecting your human, 
she replied. Will I see you again soon? Perhaps, Meryl said. It depends on my mood. Then she glided back into the dark the way she had come. Raoul watched her go, the insufferable female. He stared after her for a moment, his tail lashing thoughtfully. Insubordinate, but quick, and beautiful, and never, ever boring. Perhaps he would compose a song for her. Once fighting practice was over, things that mattered could be done. Raoul took his customary place in Little Mouse's arms and accompanied her to breakfast in the marketplace. The marketplace was a sea of stalls and small buildings set in the center of the habel, surrounding the spire lord's manor. About a quarter of the stalls were made of spire stone, originally placed there by someone the humans called the builders. The remainder were made mostly of brick. Their doors and vending windows, now covered with hide, stretched over frames. Some of the more well-to-do shops used wood from the jungle-covered surface, painstakingly transported up miles of spire. Little Mouse carried him toward the stall that smelled the best and was one of the few that were occupied this early in the day. Human Benedict seemed to know the owners of the stall personally. For they greeted him by name each morning. It was probably due to his hunger. The half-soul's body burned hotter than other humans, almost exactly as hot as a cat's, and he had to eat more frequently than other humans. Raoul waited while Benedict ordered for everyone and paid with the small pieces of metal the humans valued so dearly. Once that was done, the food was made, and the humans went to a nearby table to eat. Raoul took his seat beside Little Mouse, who placed a roll of bread and meat in front of him. Raoul tore it open with his claws and waited for the little gouts of steam to clear. It did not matter how delicious the food tasted; burning one's tongue was an undignified experience, and he did not intend to repeat it. What do you think of the training, Raoul? Benedict asked politely, after the human had wolfed down one of the rolls whole. Raoul eyed Little Mouse. In his judgment, she did not seem to have made up her mind whether or not to favor these two humans with her loyalty, but she clearly regarded Human Benedict as a potential mate. It would be discourteous of him to jeopardize her chances of propagating her species. It seems painful, he said to Little Mouse. She translated this into the human tongue, smiling wryly. It can be. Benedict said, "But in an actual fight, you might be injured and need to function anyway. Little pains now could save a life later. Cutting Reggie's throat in his sleep could do so as well." Raoul said and eyed Little Mouse. She rolled her eyes, translating that, and Human Gwendolyn promptly began choking on some of her food. Raoul calmly took a few bites from the cooler edges of his dumpling. Quite a direct soul, isn't he? Gwendolyn managed after a few moments. You have no idea, Little Mouse said. There is a good reason to limit the conflict to something less decisive, Benedict said, addressing Raoul directly. Reggie is a member of a large and powerful family. 
The man who will be his second is also an Aster of a cadet branch of the house. If anything permanent happens to Reggie, the second will report it, and they might seek vengeance. I would think they would be glad to rid themselves of a fool, Raoul replied. Human Gwendolen made a snorting sound when Little Mouse translated and took another bite of her breakfast. To a degree, Benedict allowed, but if they tolerate harm to a member of their house, others might see it as a sign of weakness. Ah, Raoul said. That makes at least a little sense. He considered the situation gravely. But Little Mouse does not have a large house to take vengeance on her behalf. Should Reggie do something permanent to her, Benedict seemed uncomfortable when Little Mouse translated that. There is a certain amount of truth in that. But it is not in the interests of anyone in the Habble for duels to be lethal. Pressure could be brought against House Aster if such actions were taken. If he kills Little Mouse, Raoul asked, "Would the House of Lancaster then war upon the House of Aster?" Benedict and Gwendolen exchanged a long look. "I don't think so." Then this pressure you speak of is a paw without claws," Raoul said. "It will do nothing to truly prevent his action." Gwendolen abruptly leaned across the table, looked hard at Raoul, and said firmly, "If any such thing happens to Miss Tarquin, Master Raoul, I will personally challenge Reggie with gauntlets and blow a hole in him large enough for a cat to leap through. You have my word on that." Not only have I already lost the duel, Little Mouse murmured, but I've been killed as well. Why are we wasting breakfast on a dead woman? Raoul looked up at Little Mouse and said, not unkindly, "You were already fool enough to become involved in this. It is time to let wiser heads than yours sort it out. I promise that once I am sure that you are not blindly walking into your own death." I will let you lose the fight on your own. Little Mouse scowled at Raoul. What did he say? Benedict asked, blinking back and forth between them. That he wants a bath. Little Mouse said, in a decidedly threatening tone. Really, Little Mouse. Raoul said, nibbling another bite. You must, at some point, begin to grow out of these childish outbursts. Oh," little mouse said, her face flushing. "You can be so infuriating. You're only angry because you know I'm right," Raoul said in the tone one ought to use when one knows one is obviously correct and the other is entirely wrong. Footsteps approached through the gloom, and Raoul looked over to see the human Reggie's associate approaching the breakfast table. He watched without moving, but settled his feet into a good place to allow him to throw himself at the enemy's eyes should he attempt anything harmful. A few seconds later, Raoul's humans became aware of the human approaching. He came to a stop at their table, and lifted his chin. Benedict, Gwen, Miss Targwin, 
Raoul narrowed his eyes. Good morning, Barnabas, human Gwendolen said in a chill tone. You're going to support him, are you? The human Barnabas shrugged, apparently unfazed. The challenge was formally given and accepted, Gwen. He means to see it through. That doesn't mean that you have to be the one who seconds him, she replied. He's blood, Barnabas said simply. Besides, if I don't, some hothead will. Benedict shook his head. He's got a point, Gwen. I'm sorry you got dragged into this, Barney. Barnabas shrugged. Miss Tagwin, may I ask who's serving as your second? Me, said humans Benedict and Gwendolyn at the same time. And even as they did, Raoul let out his most violent and raucous war cry and hurtled at human Barnabas's eyes. The human was taken utterly off guard. He flung up his arms and fell backward. Raoul landed with his weight on the human's chest and rode him all the way to the spirestone floor. The human fell even more clumsily than Little Mouth did, and hit with a huff of expelled breath, briefly stunned. Everyone there, in fact, looked briefly stunned. Raoul sat calmly on his chest, leaned over close to human Barnabas's face, and snarled, "I am Raoul, Kit of Maul." Lord and master of the silent pause, and I am her second. Little Mouse translated this in a startled, jerky voice. Human Barnabas stared at Raoul with wide eyes, and then looked back and forth between him and Little Mouse, listening. You can't be serious, Barnabas sputtered in response. Raoul batted him sharply on the nose with enough claw to draw a few drops of educational blood and let out another growl. Pay attention, human. Little Mouse will meet the Reggie in unarmed battle in the market, in the light of noon, seven days hence. Barnabas stared some more, eyeing the cat and then Little Mouse's translation. Benedict, he said a moment later. Reggie picked an idiotic moment to indulge his taste for duels, but this is beyond the pale. A cat, as her second. What will people think? Benedict pursed his lips thoughtfully. If it were me, I'd probably think that Reggie was one of the scum of the great houses, throwing his weight around against someone like Miss Targwin. But I think you're missing the point here, Barney. And what point would that be? He demanded. Him, Benedict said, and pointed at Raoul. Raoul lashed his tail, never looking away from human Barnabas's eyes. He held them for a moment, then rose and calmly prowled back to his breakfast. Little Mouse asked in cat, "This is what Maul wants." Obviously, Raoul said. He might have sounded smug, not that he didn't deserve to feel that way. Of course, the human Barnabas had been entirely at his mercy. I'm sure I don't understand," Barnabas said, staring at the cat. "I'm sure you don't either, sir," Little Mouse said. "But you will, in one week." Chapter Seven. Spire Albion, Habel Morning. Ventilation tunnels. Grim strode toward the Spire Arch's manor, 
his booted steps striking the stone floor with sharp, clear impacts, and reminded himself that murdering the idiot beside him in an abrupt surge of joyous violence would be an extremely bad taste. Perhaps her time has come," said Commodore Hamilton Rook. He was a tall, regal-looking man, provided one desired a monarch whose nose was shaped like a sunhawk's beak. His black hair was untouched by silver, which Grim was certain was an affectation. His face and hands were weathered and cracked from his time aboard his ship, a battle cruiser called Glorious, a peer of Itasca, if not even remotely her rival. He was refined, well educated, exquisitely polite, and an utter ass. His fleet uniform was a proper deep blue, accented with an unseemly amount of gold braid and filigree, and bore three gold bands at the end of each sleeve. What say you, my good Francis? Grim glanced aside and up at Rook. As ever, I ask you not to call me Francis. Ah, the middle name then, I suppose. Madison. Grim felt the fingers of his sword hand tighten and relax. Commodore, you are well aware that I prefer Grim. A tad stuffy, Rook said disapprovingly. Might as well call you Captain all day, as though you still had a true commission. Extremely bad taste, Grim thought. Appallingly bad taste. Historically bad taste. No matter how joyous. I had hoped your recent successes might have made you less insecure," Rook continued, "and you haven't answered my question. My offer is more than generous." Grim turned down a side corridor out of the main traffic of the day in Havel Morning. "Your offer to pay me a quarter of her worth to break my ship into scrap. I had assumed you were making some kind of stillborn attempt at humour. Come now, don't romanticise this." Rook said, "She's been a fine vessel, but Predator is outdated as a warship and undersized as a ship of trade. For what I'm offering you, you could secure a merchant vessel that would make you several fortunes. Think of your posterity." Grim smiled faintly, "And the fact that you would secure her core crystal for your house's inventory is beside the point, I suppose." Crystals of suitable size and density to serve as a ship's power core were grown over the course of decades and centuries. Core crystals were not expensive; they were priceless. In Spire Albion, all current crystal production was under commission to the fleet, leaving a set number of core crystals available to private owners, most of whom would not part with them at any price. Over the past two centuries, the great houses had been steadily acquiring the remaining core crystals. Certainly, they could be had from other spires, but so far as Grim knew, no one in the world could match in power or quality the crystals the Lancasters produced. Of course, it would do no small amount of good for the standing of our house," Rook replied. "But it's an honest offer, nonetheless." "No," Grim said. Very well," Rook said, his voice tightening. "I'll double it." "No, twice." The larger man took a step in front of Grim and stopped, glaring. "See here, Francis, I mean to have that crystal. I've seen the damage report your engineer turned in. You were lucky to make it back to the spire at all." "Was I?" 
You need entirely new power runs, a new main lift crystal, and at least three new trim crystals. I've seen your accounts. You've nowhere near enough money to afford them. She's wounded, Grim said firmly, not a derelict. Wounded, Rook said, rolling his eyes. She can barely limp up and down the side of the spire on a tether. Predator isn't an airship any longer. She's barely a windlass. Grim suddenly found himself facing Rook, his hands clenched into fists. Rook apparently did not notice that detail. I am making you an open and friendly offer, Francis. Don't force me to resort to other means. Grim stood silently for a moment, staring up at Hamilton Rook's sneer. And what means, sir? He asked quietly. Would those be? I can pursue it in the courts if need be," he said. "Report on the dangerously slipshod handling of your ship. Report on the number of casualties you've suffered. Report on the complaints and accusations of criminal behaviour other spires have forwarded to the fleet." Grim ground his teeth. "I incurred those accusations while acting on the fleet's behalf, and you know it, and would be ordered to deny it," Rook said. His smile widening. Honestly, Francis, do you really think the fleet would rather stand by you, a disgraced outcast, than suffer a public humiliation like that? The smile vanished. I will have that core crystal, Grim. Grim nodded thoughtfully, and then, quite quickly, and with no restraining gentleness whatsoever, he slapped. Commodore Hamilton Rook across the face. The smack of the impact echoed down the empty corridor. Rook reeled back, stunned by the fact of the blow more than the force of it, and stared at Grim with wide eyes. Predator is not property, Grim said in a calm, level tone. She is not my possession. She is my home. Her crew are not my employees. They are my family, and if you threaten to take my home and destroy the livelihood of my family again, Commodore, I will be inclined to kill you where you stand. Rook's eyes blazed, and he drew himself up to his full, intimidating height. You, arrogant insect! He snarled. Do you think you can slap me about without paying for it? In answer, Grim took a quick step forward and did it again. Rook tried to flinch away from the blow, but Grim's hand was too quick for him. Again, the sound of the slap echoed down the hallway. "I'll do it any damned time I please, sir," Grim said in the same level voice. "Take me to court. Let me tell the judges and the public record precisely what incensed me enough to strike you." You will be publicly humiliated. If you hoped to keep any shred of your reputation, you would have no choice except to challenge me to a duel. And as the challenged party, I would insist upon the protocol mortis. Rook leaned his head back slightly from Grim, as though he had opened his pantry, fetched cheese, and found a crawly scale waiting for him instead. You wouldn't dare. Even if you won, my family would have your hide. I'd change my flag to Spire Olympia, 
Grimm said. They'd be glad to have me. Let the rooks attempt their little game with the captain of an Olympian vessel. Do you think your corpse is worth that, Hamilton? Rook clenched his fists at his sides. That's treason! For an officer of the fleet, yes, Grimm said, baring his teeth. But not for a disgraced outcast like me. You wretched little nothing, Rook said. I should... Grimm took a step forward, never breaking eye contact, forcing Rook to take a step back. You should what, Commodore? He said. Say nasty things behind my back. Challenge me to a duel. You haven't got the spine to look in a man's eyes when you kill him. That's something else we both know. Rook clenched his teeth, seething. I will not forget this, Grimm. Grimm nodded. Yes. One of your many excellent failings, Hamilton, is that you forget favours and remember insults. Indeed. My house has a long memory and wide vision. Grimm felt a surge of anger threaten to shatter his demeanour, but he suppressed it from everything but the tenor of his voice. Wide vision? Is that how you style it? Know this. If anything happens to any of my men, or to any of their families, anything, no matter how small, I shall hold you personally responsible. I shall denounce you to the Admiralty and the Council within the hour, and in the duel that follows, I shall kill you and cast your body from the top of the spire, and not necessarily in that order. Am I perfectly clear, Commodore? Rook swallowed and took another half-step back. Grimm pointed a finger at him and said, Stay away from my home. Stay away from my family. Good day, sir. Then the captain of Predator turned precisely on a heel and continued marching toward the palace. Grimm hadn't been walking for two minutes when a calm, amused voice spoke from the darkness of an unlit side corridor. What's happened to you, Mad? You've acquired a few shreds of discretion. I remember a time when you would have braced that pompous twit in the middle of the Hebel market at noonday. Grimm snorted and didn't slow his steps. Have no time to fence with you, Bayard. A small, slender figure of a man appeared from the gloom and fell into step beside him. Alexander Bayard wore a Commodore's uniform, almost precisely like Rook's, if not quite as richly fashioned. It was also a great deal more weather-worn. Bayard loved to spend his days aboard ship, out on the deck of his flag vessel, the heavy cruiser Valiant, whereas Rook hid from the elements whenever he could. Yes, Bayard said easily. The smaller man lengthened his strides to match Grimm's. I've heard. You've a ship that can barely stay afloat, and no means to repair her, so I'm certain you're in quite the rush to clear port again. Don't make me duel you, Grimm said. Why on earth not? Bayard said, putting a bit of extra swagger in his step. He had dark, glittering eyes and hair that had gone magnificently silver decades before its time. You'd lose, and we both know it. Grimm snorted. You're a true tradesman of violence, my stiff-necked friend, Bayard continued. But you've no ice in your soul, 
and not a speck of reptile in your blood. It takes calculation to win a duel against a reptile, and you've always been impatient. Grim found himself smiling. You've just called yourself a reptile, Commodore. And so I am, Bayard agreed. I'm a viper who plays every angle to his advantage. His smile faded slightly. Which is why I'm in uniform and you aren't, I'm afraid. There was no point in both of us being drummed out, Grim replied. You know that I don't hold it against you, Alex. You needn't. I'll do it for you. And as for Rook... Bayard shuddered. If it comes to a duel, I hope you will call upon me to be your second. I find it unlikely that I should be so desperate, Grimm said. I suppose that if everyone else says no, I may consider you. Excellent. A day in advance, at least, if you please. My mistress would never understand if I walked out on her abruptly. Grimm barked out a laugh. Neither of you is married, and you've been seeing each other exclusively for eleven years now? Thirteen, Bayard said smugly. God in heaven, and yet you persist in the fiction that she is your mistress even now. Why? A boyish grin spread over Bayard's face. Because scandal, old friend, is ever so much more enjoyable than propriety. Such things are the spice of life. You are a degenerate, Grimm said, but he was smiling widely now, and the rage and frustration he'd felt at his encounter with Rook had faded away. How is Abigail? Rosy-cheeked, starry-eyed and content, my friend. She sends her love. Please convey my warmest respects, Grimm said. He cocked his head to one side and regarded Bayard. Thank you, Alex. Rook would try the patience of an archangel, Bayard said, inclining his head. You are not without friends, Grimm. Don't waste another moment in concern for the fool. I would not consider the time spent thrashing him wasted. Bayard let out a rich, warm laugh. Few would, I dare say. They came to a dim section of largely unused tunnel, where the lumen crystals were spaced widely apart. Grimm put his hand lightly upon the tunnel wall to guide his nearly blind steps. You didn't just happen upon me when I needed a boost in morale. You were following me. Obviously. Why? I think you need to speak to the Spyrarch. That's where I'm going now, Grimm said. Ah, yes, Bayard replied. But you see, he is not in his manner. He sent me to bring you to him. Bayard stopped abruptly in his tracks. Grimm followed suit almost instantly. The tunnel was full of whispering sound, the echoes of their steps, of their voices, the distant, empty exhale of air moving through the spire's vents and their own breath. Grimm was never sure, after, what tiny hiccup of sound or what flicker of motion in the gloom gave the ambush away. His instincts simply screamed that danger was at hand, 
and he drew his sword in a liquid whisper of copper-clad steel. Beside him, he felt as much as heard Bayard do the same, and then something, some thing, shrieked in the dark, and a cannonball of howling hot agony hurtled into his chest. Chapter Eight: Spire Albion, Habble Morning, Ventilation Tunnels. There was no time to react, and no room to wield even the short, straight blade of his sword. Grim fell before the horrible, painful weight and thrust at it with an arm, shoving something that snarled and spit and drew blood with teeth and claws. The creature was perhaps the size of a large child. It flew up and away from him. Grim, I'm fine. Grim snapped, rolling swiftly to his feet. He tore his jacket from his shoulders and wrapped it swiftly around his left arm. Cats? I think not. No cat ever made a sound like that. The howling sound repeated itself from either direction of the tunnel. More than one of them, Grim said. Back to back, Bayard replied, and Grim felt the sudden wiry pressure of the other man's shoulders pressed against the middle of his back. I shall be friends with taller people. Grim panted, "Bite your tongue, old boy, or I'll hack apart your ankles." There was another motion in the dark, and the creature flew at Grim again. This time he interposed his leather-wrapped arm and felt claws and teeth sink into it. Grim let out a shout and spun to his left, slamming the creature against the stone of the spire's wall. He continued the motion of the spin with his right arm, thrusting his short blade home into the thing, and felt the weapon bite sharp and deep. A warbling shriek like nothing he had heard before filled the hallway, even as he heard Bayard cry out, "Ha!" A snarling cry came from somewhere behind Grim. Grim had no time to turn to Bayard. The creature was thrashing madly, its claws biting into Grim's arm, even through the layers of thick leather hide. He struck with the sword as swiftly and viciously as he knew how, praying that he didn't misjudge its length in the dark and impale his own arm. He could see nothing but a vague shape struggling against him, but he could feel hot blood splashing from the wounds his blade inflicted. The thing let out another scream. And then it was abruptly gone. Cries echoed up and down the halls from both directions, fading as they retreated. Grim instinctively found Bayard again and made sure his back was against the other man's for the next several moments. They both gasped for breath. Grim's wounded arm throbbed and burned in a most unpleasant fashion. Cowards, Bayard panted a moment later. When it was clear that the attack was over, bloody cowardly things, indeed, Grim said. Shouldn't we be running now? Absolutely, Bayard said. But half a moment, I have a light here somewhere. Grim waited impatiently while Bayard's clothing made rustling sounds. Ah, he said, in my waistcoat. I'd almost forgotten. A moment later, there was a dim source of pale blue light as Bayard removed a lumen crystal the size of a fingernail from one of his pockets and held it up. The tunnel was unsightly. 
Blood that looked black in the pale light was splattered everywhere, more near Grimm than Bayard. Bayard himself was scarcely must from the action. His sword, though, was stained dark to half the length of its blade. God in heaven, you're a sight, Bayard said, lifting an eyebrow. There's more blood than man. He looked past Grimm to the heavy splatters on the wall. My word, old boy, you missed your calling as a butcher. Tried, Grimm said, but I couldn't manage. I had to settle for the fleet. Bitterness does not become you, my friend, Bayard said. His dark eyes flicked around the hallway. How's your arm? Painful, Grimm said. I'd as soon not unwrap the coat from around it until we're somewhere where we might find bandages. Best we move deliberately then, Bayard said. It would be rather funny to watch you run until your heart pumped all your blood out, but I'm afraid Abigail would be cross with me. She might refuse my attentions for hours, even days. We can't have that, Grimm said. He shook as much blood as he could from the blade of his sword, and then grimaced and wiped it off on the leg of his trousers not already soaked with the stuff. He returned the weapon to its sheath, just as Bayard finished wiping his sword clean with a kerchief and offered the cloth to Grimm. You might have said something, Grimm growled. That outfit's ruined anyway. Grimm glowered at him and opened his mouth to say something more. When Bayard abruptly pitched sideways and began to fall. No, that wasn't it at all, Grimm thought. Bayard was standing perfectly still. His friend hadn't fallen. Grimm had. He could distantly feel the cold spirestone floor beneath his cheek. Bayard's mouth was moving, but the words seemed to be coming at him from several hundred yards down the tunnel, and he couldn't quite make them out. Grimm tried to put a hand beneath him and push himself up, but his limbs wouldn't move. Bother, Grimm mumbled. This is rather inconvenient. Bayard leaned down and peered closely at Grimm's face. The last thing Grimm remembered of the moment was the feeling of being hoisted up onto Bayard's slim, wiry shoulders. Grimm opened his eyes and found himself in a warm, dim room. The ceiling was made of hardened clay, one of the most common construction materials for the more modest residences within Spire Albion. It hadn't been painted white, but instead was covered with a colourful and rather fanciful mural that looked like it had been done by a particularly enthusiastic child. It made little sense, containing seemingly random images of airships, the sun, some sort of odd-looking plants that only partially resembled trees, and an image of the moon that was much too large in relation to the sun opposite it. Strange creatures occupied the same space, none of them familiar to Grimm, though he might have seen some of them in his more fanciful childhood storybooks. The room was lit by dozens and dozens and dozens of tiny, nearly dead lumen crystals collected in jars of clear glass. 
Their light was a nebulous thing, showing everything clearly and seemingly originating from nowhere. It was a small, spare chamber, sporting a student's desk and a small and overstuffed bookshelf. He lay on a bed of woven ropes with a thin pad over them, and blankets had been piled over him until they more threatened to smother him than keep him warm. He began to push them away, only to find that his left arm had been bound to his chest. Both arms were wrapped in what seemed to him irrational amounts of cloth bandages. They weren't white. Instead, they had been made from a broad spectrum of every colour and texture of cloth imaginable. One of the strips had little pink heart shapes alternating with bright yellow suns. Grimm sat up, wincing at the pain from his arm. He had a number of other cuts on his upper body, apparently, which were also covered in bandages and some kind of pungent sterilizing ointment. He didn't remember receiving the minor wounds, but that was hardly unusual in combat. There was a foul taste in his mouth, and his throat burned with thirst. A pitcher and mug on a tray on the bed's nightstand stood ready, and he poured the mug full of water and drank it down three times running before his body began to relent. Someone tapped on the door and then opened it. Grimm looked up to see a young woman enter the room. She was dressed not so much untidily, he decided, as randomly. Her grey shirt was made of ether silk, patched in several places, and looked as though it had been tailored for a man almost two hundred pounds heavier than she was. Though the shirt was long enough to serve as a gown itself, she wore a green undergown with rustling skirts that fell to the floor. As she walked toward him, he saw that she wore stockings instead of shoes, green and white polka dots on one foot and orange and purple stripes on the other. She wore an apron, but it looked to be made of leather and was burned in several places, a smith's garment rather than kitchenware. Her hair had been dyed in crimson and white stripes and then braided so that it resembled a peppermint candy. One lens of her spectacles was pink, the other green, and the band of her too large top hat was fairly bursting with folded pieces of paper. She wore a necklace from which depended a glass vial of nearly spent illumination crystals, and she carried a covered tray in her arms. Oh, she said, pausing. He's awake. Goodness, that was unexpected. She tilted her head, peering at him first through one lens of her spectacles, and then through the other. There, you see? He's fine. He's not mad, except that he is. And I should know. She carried the tray to a small table against one wall and whispered, Should we tell him how improper it is for a gentleman not to wear a shirt when there is a young lady present? It isn't that we don't appreciate the view, because he's quite masculine, but it does seem like something one should say. Grimm blinked down at himself and fumbled for the bed covers with one hand, pulling them up. Uh, please excuse me, young lady, I seem to have lost my shirt. He thinks I'm a lady, she said, 
and beamed at him. That's quite unusual in my experience. Grimm racked his mind for the proper thing to say in such a circumstance and found little. To be called a lady. Thinking, the young woman said. Now, here is some fresh soup, which doesn't taste very good, but he should eat it all because the poison thinks it's even worse. Grimm blinked. Poison? The young woman turned toward him and came close enough to lay a hand on his forehead. Oh dear, is he feverish again? No, no, oh good! Perhaps he's just simple. Poor dear. Before she could turn away, Grimm caught her wrist in his hand. The young woman. No, he decided. The girl's breath seemed to catch in her throat. Her entire body went stiff, and she breathed. Oh dear. I hope he doesn't decide to harm me. He's quite good at doing harm. It took forever to clean off all the blood. Child, Grimm said in a low voice. Look at me. She froze abruptly. After a silent second, she said, "Oh, I mustn't." Look at me, girl," Grimm said, keeping his voice gentle and calm. "No one is going to hurt you." The girl flicked a very quick look at him. He saw only a flash of her eyes over the spectacles when she did. One was an even, steady grey; the other was a shade of pale apple green. She shivered, and seemed to sag, her wrist going limp in his hand. Oh, she breathed. That's so sad. Who are you speaking to, child? He doesn't know I'm talking to you," the girl said. The fingertips of her free hand rose to the crystals in the little bottle around her neck. How can he hear me without realizing something so simple? Ah," Grim said, and released the girl's wrist very slowly and carefully, as he might a fragile bird's body. You're an etherealist. Forgive me, child. I didn't realize. He thinks I'm the master," the girl said, ducking her head and blushing. "How can he be so clever and so stupid all at once? That must hurt awfully. But perhaps it would be more polite if we didn't say anything. He seems to mean well, the poor thing, and he's conscious, mobile, and lucid. We should tell the master that it looks like he'll survive." With that. The girl scurried out of the room, nodding to herself. Her soft litany hanging for a moment in her wake. Grim shook his head. Whoever the girl was, she'd been serving her apprenticeship for a goodly while, despite her apparent youth. All etherealists were odd, and became more so as they aged. Some were a good bit odder than others. The child was at least as strange as any other etherealist he'd met. He went to the tray and uncovered it. There was a bowl of soup and several flat bakes, along with a spoon that would have been modest had it not been made from dark, glossy wood. He tasted the soup, bracing himself for the bitter taste of most medicines, and found it surprisingly bland but pleasant. He fetched out a stool, sat down at the desk, and devoured the soup along with the flat bakes and two more glasses of water. By the time he finished, he felt almost like a human being. 
He took note of a plain robe that had apparently been left for him and managed to tug it on one-handed and belt it at the waist. No sooner had he finished than there was a heavy thump upon the door to his chamber. Ow! said a man's voice. Damnation to you! The latch rattled several times and the man sighed in a tone of impatience. Folly! He doesn't mean to hurt your feelings said the girl in an apologetic tone. He's just too brilliant for you. The door opened, and the girl stepped back hurriedly without meeting Grimm's eyes. A man entered the room holding a rumpled handkerchief against his apparently bleeding nose. He was a scrawny specimen except for a small pot belly, and it made his limbs look out of proportion, almost spidery. His hair was a dirty grey mop, his face covered by sparse white stubble. He was dressed in a suit about two decades out of date, in sober shades of brown and grey, and large soft slippers made of some kind of creature with green and black striped fur. Too old to be middle-aged, too young to be elderly. The man had eyes that were a vibrant shade of blue Grimm had seen only in the autumn skies high above the mists. The man walked with the aid of a wooden cane tipped with what might have been a weapons crystal from a ship's light cannon. It was the size of a man's clenched fist. Ah, he said, ah, Captain Grimm, welcome, welcome, so good to be able to speak to you when you aren't delirious. He glanced aside at the girl and mumbled out of the corner of his mouth, He's not delirious, is he? The girl shook her head with wide eyes that didn't leave the ground. No, master. Grimm was quite unsure how to respond with courtesy to such a greeting, but he settled for bowing slightly at the waist. We haven't met, sir. I'm afraid you have the advantage of me. Yes, we did, tomorrow, the old man said. And no, you aren't, and the last is a matter for debate, perhaps. What do you think, Folly? Folly bit her lip and touched her vial of crystals. He doesn't realise that Captain Grimm is quite uncomfortable because he doesn't know anyone's name. Untrue, the etherealist stated with conviction. He knows his own name, I dare say, and at least one of yours. He's had seconds and seconds to transfer that knowledge into his memory. Unless, of course, he remains delirious. The old man squinted at Grimm. You're quite sure that you are lucid, sir? At times I wonder, Grimm replied. Something very young and very full of mischief flickered far back in the etherealist's eyes, and his face stretched into a wide smile. Ah! Ah! A man of modesty, either so false that it may be true, or so true that it seems entirely false. I can see why Bayard speaks so well of you, sir. The old man touched the tip of his cane to the floor, far to one side, and sank into an elaborate bow of dance-like grace. I am Ephrenus Ephrenus Ferris at your service, sir. And that's folly. Folly, the girl said, and bobbed a curtsy toward the far corner of the room. Sweaters, 
Ferris said soberly. Sweaters, dear. And two pairs of socks, one of them wool. Oh, and fetch me a gentleman's hat of a size no larger than six, and then soak it in vinegar. The girl curtsied again and hurried from the room. Ferris beamed. Such a sweet child, and she always remembers perfectly. Now then, Captain. He turned back to Grimm. You have questions, I answers. Shall we see if they match? Please, Grimm said. I appear to be your guest. Have I you to thank for caring for me? Ferris's shoulders sagged in evident disappointment. Oh, apparently they do not match. I was going to say strawberries. His lips compressed and he shook his head. You aren't very good at this game, Captain. I'd take that to mean that you did help me, sir. Ferris waved a hand. <sighs> Bayard did more for you than I did, I dare say. But that said, yes, I was compelled to employ my skills on your behalf. Skills, sir? The etherealist nodded. Today, I'm a physician with the cure to a condition hardly anyone ever contracts. If you'd asked me twenty years ago, I'd have told you it seemed a very poor long-term investment with very little commercial viability, but here we are. Grimm found himself smiling. Indeed, here we are. Thank you for your help. The old man beamed and drummed the end of his cane on the floor. Oh, just so, just so. Whatever beastie it was tried to eat you. It left a good many dangerous structures behind in your blood. Quite rude, sir. Quite rude and most unfair. Poison? Grimm asked. Ferris waggled his hand back and forth. Yes. No, actually, not even remotely. But for purposes of this conversation, yes. Grimm frowned. Uh, um, am I in any danger? You're as dead as a stone man. I am? Yes. No. Actually, not even remotely, but for purposes of this conversation, yes. Ferris nodded at his arm. You've clouded the issue. I should check your wound to ensure my work was thorough. Do you mind? Uh, no, Grimm said. I suppose not. Excellent, Ferris said. Then he turned and left the room, banging the door shut behind him. Grimm stood for a moment, frowning. Then he shook his head and began to seat himself again. Ah! cried Ferris from the hall. No! Stop moving, man! How am I supposed to see anything with you dancing jigs about the room? Grimm froze in place. Uh, is, is this better? You look rather awkward, halfway down like that. You aren't by chance having a bowel movement of some kind. Grimm sighed. No. Well, try not to until I'm finished. Ah,、uh, Master Ferris, if you don't mind my asking, how exactly are you examining me? Surely you can't see the wound from out there. Untrue, Ferris said. From out here, I can see little else. There, done. I do good work, if I do say so myself. Footsteps shuffled up to the door and then stopped warily, perhaps a foot away. The doorknob rattled again fitfully and then went still. Bother, Ferris said. Confounded 
thing, why do you mock me? Grim walked across the room and opened the door. Ferris let out a sigh. Ah, oh, thank you, young man, thank you. Were I your age, I'm sure I would learn the trick of it straight off, but the mind, you see, it goes rather stale. It's the least I could do, Grim said. Incorrect, Ferris proclaimed. The least you could have done would be nothing. Goodness, I hope you're brighter than you seem. We've really no more time to waste upon your education, Captain. No? Grim asked. And why not? And in an instant, the old man changed. His previously animated voice went low and steady. Something shifted in his spine and shoulders, conveying a sense of perfect confidence and strength, wildly at odds with his innocuous stature. And most of all, his eyes changed. The sparkle in them transformed, distilled itself into a muted fire that met Grimm's gaze without expectation or weakness. Grimm became abruptly certain that he was standing before a very dangerous man. Because... Francis Madison Grimm. We've come to the end, Master Ferris said. The end? Of what? Of the beginning, of course, the etherealist said. The end of the beginning. Chapter 9 Spire Albion, Habble Morning I can't believe you're going along with this, Gwendolen told Benedict. She tried to keep her voice pleasant and neutral. Her cousin eyed her and slipped a half-step farther away from her as they walked together toward the duel. Oh, please, Gwendolen said, allowing her tone to become openly cross. Now you're just teasing me. Benedict smiled very slightly. Raoul seemed insistent. Raoul, Gwendolen said, is a cat, Benedict. Have you ever tried to stop a cat from doing what it wants to do? Benedict asked her. No, of course not. There are no cats in House Lancaster. Benedict barked a sharp laugh. <laughs> that again. Gwendolen felt her face heat slightly. I've never seen one there, she continued, as if he hadn't interrupted her at all. The point is, Benny that if I spent a lifetime thinking they were little more than clever beasts, you can be sure that many others have as well. And? And word has spread. Everyone in the Habble will be watching this duel today. This will be the first time House Tarquin has impinged upon the awareness of the great houses in a generation. Can you imagine what they're going to be saying about Bridget and her father if she shows up with a bloody cat as her second? I can, Benedict said, his voice maddeningly calm. Yes, indeed. Now, what is that supposed to mean? Gwen demanded. Honestly, cuz, I know you're still a recruit, but I can't very well go explaining everything to you. You've seen everything I have. You've had the same education I have. You have an excellent mind when you bother to bring it in on a consult with your temper, I mean. Use it. Gwen scowled at him. I have. It tells me that the name of Tagwin is in danger today. 
she said, and it's there because of my own stupidity, and that we can't allow them to come to harm because of my mistake. Yes, Benedict said, all true, but take it a step further. What are the consequences of today? Gwen pressed her lips together for a moment before speaking. If she loses the duel, the Tarquins will be both a laughing stock and a highly visible target of economic opportunity. At the very least, their income might suffer. It's probable that one of the hungrier houses with interests in that market will find a way to buy out their vattery or legislate them out of business. True, Benedict said, and if she wins. That's a far worse circumstance, Gwen said. If she beats Reggie, she incurs the ire of a major house, might and probably transfigure to will and certainly. Benedict nodded. House Tarquin, House Aster. Yes, you've done the math, he considered. Well, two-thirds of it anyway. What do you mean two-thirds? He held up a forefinger. You've accounted for the Tarquins. He held up the next finger. You've considered the Astors. He stuck his thumb out to one side. What about the cats? Gwen let out an impatient breath, but then she paused. There are really cats inside House Lancaster? Gwen asked. And I've just never seen them. Benedict spread his hands as if displaying that fact's self-evidence. But I suppose it does not necessarily follow that they have not seen me. Ah, Benedict said, his tone pleased. The light dawns. Gwen considered that for several steps. Are they truly that intelligent? I know the little beasts are clever, but... It is often very useful for others to think you less intelligent than you are, Benedict said, his tone amused. It works particularly well against those who aren't as intelligent as you in the first place. Gwen blinked. Goodness! I must admit that I hadn't thoroughly considered the situation before meeting Raoul, Benedict said. It's just a theory, cuz. But it seems sound. It does, doesn't it? Gwen said. She looked up at Benedict shrewdly. You've never been known for your acute political intellect, Benny. Most of the house considers you a distant and disinterested observer, not a political asset. Her cousin looked pained. And I shall remain so in their eyes, if you please, he said. Politics is the purview of scoundrels, tyrants, and fools. I only observe because I prefer not to become their victim. Gwen snorted. You're safe from everyone but me, she promised. Oh, dear. His stomach made a rumbling noise and Gwen smiled up at him. Hungry? I've eaten, he replied. You're warrior-born, Benny, Gwen said firmly. Your body needs more fuel. There's nothing wrong with that. He pressed his lips together, and his feline eyes became remote. Gwen let out a mental sigh. She knew how much Benny disliked being born different, and the pains to which he went to conceal those differences. 
She knew he never moved as quickly or as powerfully as he could have during runs or in combat training. He carried lumen crystals with him and employed them in the darker sections of the habel, despite the fact that his feline eyes had no need of them. He ate on a rigid schedule in the guard's dining hall, downing exactly the portions dealt out to each recruit, despite the fact that he could quite literally starve to death on a diet that would be more than adequate for anyone else. Benny was a wonderful, sweet, dear idiot, Gwen thought. We're eating before the duel, she said firmly. Come with me. Gwen, he protested. I'm hungry, she lied smoothly. And you wouldn't be so rude as to make a lady eat alone, would you? Come along. Benedict scowled. I haven't any money with me. I have lots, Gwen said cheerfully. Come along. Honestly, Gwendolyn, he muttered. You simply cannot take a hint. Oh, I'm more than capable of it, cuz, she said airily. At the moment, I choose not to. Shall we have those dumplings you like? Benedict's stomach rumbled louder. He eyed her. That's cheating. I have no idea what you're talking about, Gwen said, and gave him what she liked to think of as her very firm smile, the one where she locked her jaw. She spoke through her teeth. Now come along. Benedict glowered for a moment more and then sighed. You're going to insist, aren't you? I'm a lady of House Lancaster, Benny. You are a gentleman of House Sorlin Lancaster. I shouldn't need to. She smiled firmly. Benedict rolled his eyes, plucked a white handkerchief from his pocket, and gave it a solemn wave. I yield. Gwendolyn beamed. Commendable. The little stall, where a stout, silver-haired old couple named Beach served hot food to order, was off to the side of the main market area, out of the immediate swirl of trade and foot traffic. The backs of other stalls formed a little C-shaped alcove, where a few simple tables and chairs had been set out, creating the impression of seclusion. Gwen marched up to the stall, but found no one in sight. Hello, she called. We've come for some lunch. We're not quite ready yet," called a voice from inside the stall. "Become ready," Gwen called back, a merry edge in her command. "I'm glad to pay very well for your trouble." There was a sigh from inside the stall, and then an older man with eyebrows approximately as thick as his wrists appeared from the pantry in the rear. Mister Beach blinked once at Gwen and then said, "Miss Lancaster." This isn't your usual hour. What are you doing here? Securing your profit margin for the day, Gwen said, smiling and dropping a coin purse on the counter. It jingled invitingly. Neither the sound of the coin nor her smile seemed to displease the vendor. I'm in need of one of your dumplings before noon. Simple enough, Miss. Coming up, and for the young sir, two more of the same. Gwen said firmly. "Cause," Benedict protested. It was Gwen thought a decidedly feeble protest, undermined by another rumble from his stomach. "Right away, Miss," said Mister Beach, and he turned to his stove, where a pan of oil awaited, and produced a number of sausages from an insulated cold cabinet. 
Mrs. Beach appeared from the back, her grey hair held back under a kerchief, stirring vigorously at a batch of dough. She spread some flour on a board and plopped the dough onto it to begin kneading it with swift, confident hands. I'll hear no back talk from you, Benedict, Gwen said, offering him a tart smile. Or rather, I shall hear none from your belly for an hour or two at least. Honestly, it's most unbecoming a Lancaster, grumbling and growling like that. Benedict rolled his eyes again, but his mouth quirked at the corners. Fortunately for me, I'm not so limited as you poor, pure Lancasters, having the Sorrelin bloodline to broaden my mental, emotional and artistic horizons. What's that? Gwen asked, and propped a hand to her ear, raising her voice slightly. I'm certain I didn't hear you correctly over the sound of your belly howling. It almost sounded as if you were questioning the utter and unquestionable superiority of the House of Lancaster. Benedict's smile widened. Go play with your crystals and let the rest of us get on with the real work, eh? For shame, sir, said Mr. Beach, peering up at Benedict from beneath his bushy eyebrows, his eyes glinting with amusement. To speak so of the young Mrs. Family? Gwen gave Benedict a triumphant smile. There, you see? The Lancasters have the support of the people. Benedict laughed. You're only taking her side because she's paying. The young sir is wise, commented Mrs. Beach. Aye, he is, he is, agreed the old man, as Gwen counted out a generous number of coins into his palm. She stuck out her tongue at Benedict cheerfully and said, Thank you both very much. A rather bookish-looking man of middle years entered the alcove, muttering, Just don't see how that's going to work. His clothes, though fine, were rumpled and askew, and his violet waistcoat was an affront to the sensibilities of a generation against the plain brown tweed of his coat and trousers. His hair was brown and overgrown, muddled with strands of grey, and his hands were long-fingered and fine. He was writing in a journal, with a pen fitted with a glowing crystal, muttering to himself as he did. "'Good day, Mr. and Mrs. Beach.' he said without looking up. He stifled a yawn with one hand, and then continued writing. A double of your finest, and with some coffee, if you will. Nice and dark. The pen flew over the page, scrawling out a line of some sort of figures Gwen didn't recognize. Good day, Eddie, said Mrs. Beach, her voice warm. Up all night again. The curse of an academically inclined mind, I'm afraid. The man replied, miles and miles of different ways to think the same old useless things. He never stopped writing as he spoke, and he bumped into Gwen with the edge of his journal. Oh, pardon me, sir. Sir? Gwen asked in an arch tone. Yes? Addie asked, finishing a line with a flourish and beginning the next. Gwen cleared her throat, quite obviously indicating that she expected him to look up. Out with it, man, Addie said. If you've something on your mind, just say it. I'm a bit too pressed for time to dance about. Gwen's eyes narrowed and turned steely. How dared this person be so discourteous to a lady, and most particularly to a lady of House Lancaster? Cuz, 
Benedict said quickly, putting a hand on her arm. She shook it off. A moment, cousin, Gwen said. I'm faced with a distasteful quandary. But, Benedict, Gwen said in her sweetest, gentlest voice. Benedict grimaced and took a small step back. Addie, if such was his name, was still writing, all but ignoring her. Intolerable. Hm? he asked absently. Quandry? Gwen's voice came out cold and precise. Whether to settle for a tongue-lashing for someone so impolite, or to take offence at this slight and demand satisfaction as is my right. Addie blinked several times, and only then did he look up at Gwen. I say, really? Demand satisfaction? Mirth bubbled underneath the words, as if he could hardly contain laughter. You're considering challenging me to a duel? I will have your name first, sir, Gwen snapped. Does it matter? Addie asked. Of course it does, Gwen said. I would know which house has been so slovenly as to allow one of its scions to wander about Hebel Morning without the manners God gave a goat. Goats are actually rather gentle, sensible creatures, Addie replied in a mild tone, and they rarely burst into duels, certainly not after an all-nighter. He sighed. Miss, should my name matter? What? Gwen asked. My name, Addie said. Are my actions not my own? Should it matter if I belong to a low house or high? Am I any more offensive as a common citizen than as one of the aristocracy? Gwen blinked several times. His questions were so odd that they might have been phrased in a foreign tongue. Then she said, Of course it should matter. I judge you no commoner by your clothes, sir. But if you are, I can hardly castigate you for your lack of graces when no education in such matters has been yours. Addie tilted his head sharply to one side, and his dark eyes glittered. You would hold me more accountable if I belonged to the aristocracy? Of course, Gwen said. Her tone suggested that the man was an idiot. Protocol between members of the houses is the standard by which appropriate respect is given to one's peers, respect that keeps those houses from feuds and civil war. It is your duty to behave properly, sir. To those whom much is given, much is required. Of course I expect more of you. A slow smile spread over Addie's face. Oh, interesting. He looked past Gwen to the two vendors. How long? Mr. Beach was already moving to draw a brass wire basket from the heated oil, and he began setting the dumplings out onto square bits of cloth. Coming up now. Addie nodded at him and turned to Benedict. All right, he said. Would you be so good as to introduce me to your cousin, sir? I think I like her. Gwen blinked several times. I beg your pardon? Benedict drew in a deep breath and eyed Gwen with fond exasperation. Cuz, he said, you really must learn to shut your mouth from time to time. You'll taste less shoe leather. Straightening his coat, he bowed and said, 
Gwendolyn Margaret Elizabeth Lancaster, daughter of Lord Minister and Lady Lancaster, it is my singular pleasure to introduce you to His Majesty Addison Orson Magnus Jeremiah Albion, first citizen and spyarch of Albion. Gwen stared at Benedict in shock for a second. Her stomach absolutely disconnected itself from the rest of her vitals and plunged into some unimaginable abyss. She slowly turned her gaze to the pleasantly smiling Spyrarch. Then her face began to turn very, very hot. Miss Lancaster, the Spyrarch said with a small, pleased bow. What a unique pleasure it has been to make your acquaintance. Gwen stared at him, appalled. You don't. You don't look like your portrait. I was younger and a good deal angrier when it was painted, he replied. I don't blame you one bit, Miss Lancaster. I haven't been to a public function since you were a small child, I should think. There's no reason at all you should have recognized me. I. I just. Sir. Gwen stammered. She felt her hands twitch and could only assume it was because the endless hours of instruction in protocol had instilled the proper forms into her very nerves. He smoothly captured her hand and bowed over it. Young lady, you are every bit as beautiful as your mother was when she was your age. Ah, breakfast or lunch. Lunch fast, perhaps, the spyarch said. As the beaches produced the fresh hot dumplings and glasses of chilled juice on a serving tray, would the two of you care to join me? I, we, Gwen gave Benedict a rather desperate look. Benedict took a moment to smile at her, and she realized to bask in the expression on her face. He was clearly enjoying the situation with an absolutely sadistic amount of amusement. We should be delighted, sire, he replied. Excellent. The spyarch said, "There are fine tables just there. I think." He picked up the tray, smoothly leaving coins for his own dumpling on the counter as he did. He favoured Gwen with a polite smile and a nod in the proper direction. Ladies first. Gwen took a slow breath. Then she said to Benedict, "I am a perfect idiot," and began walking to the tables. The spyarch lifted an eyebrow and glanced up at Benedict. "That's Gwenish, for I apologize," Gwen heard him say soberly behind her. "After you, sire." They set to the food in an awkward silence that soon changed to an appreciative one. "My word, that's good," Benedict breathed. He obviously tried to restrain himself, but just as obviously was having trouble doing anything but cramming the entire mass of dumpling into his mouth all at once. His food disappeared in large bites. Gwen had just offered the most appalling insolence to the monarch of Spire Albion. She felt as if whatever she'd had at breakfast that morning might come up, and barely touched her own dumpling. The food here is better than. Anything I could get in the manor without waiting for hours, the spyarch acknowledged. The Beeches moved up to Hebble Morning from Hebble Landing ten years ago. I offered them a position on my staff, but they preferred to make their own way. I like that. Benedict nodded, but he didn't stop chewing. So 
Master Sorolin. The Spyrarch said, I'm surprised to see you back this year, after what happened last spring. Benedict shrugged a shoulder. It hardly left a scar. Too bad, the Spyrarch said, his eyes sparkling. I'm told young ladies swoon over them. Gwen lifted her eyebrows. Benny? Whatever is he talking about? Benedict suddenly looked uncomfortable and kept his eyes focused on his food. Benedict was serving a year with the guard, the Spyrarch said. I sent him, as part of a small team, down to Habble Risen to track down a missing shipment of weapons crystals. The thieves, who had them, declined to yield up their prize. Gwen's eyes widened. You were in battle? It wasn't a battle, Benedict replied quickly. Just a scuffle over getting through the door of their hideout, hardly worth mentioning. A scuffle in which a guardsman was badly wounded, the Spyrarch said, and in which your cousin killed two armed men who were beating one of his fellow guardsmen with clubs. After that, he pushed six more back through their own front door, despite all they could do to hold it against him. One of them stabbed him in the arm for his trouble. It wasn't much of a wound, Benedict said. His face looked flushed. He saved a number of lives, the Spyrarch said, including those of his companions and most of the thieves. Never mind the havoc that could have been loosed if those crystals had flooded the black market. He blinked and looked at Gwen. He received the order of the spire. I assumed you knew. To my knowledge, he never said anything about it, Gwen said, staring hard at Benedict. This is the first I've heard of the matter. You told me you hurt your arm in a sparring match, Benny. Benedict ducked his head and picked up the second dumpling. The first had vanished with unseemly haste, despite his efforts to slow down. The Spyrarch smiled. Miss Lancaster, may I call you Gwen? Of course, sire. Excellent. But you must not call me sire. Addison will do nicely. Gwen hesitated. Sire. The Spyrarch waved his hand. I know the protocol but it was created two centuries ago when Gregor the Strong united the Habbles and formed the council, when he still had active executive power and an army to back it up. Sire. Addison, sir, Gwen stammered. You are still the Spyrarch. He laughed. The monarchy was a necessary evil at one time, Miss Lancaster. Now I'm largely obsolete. And quite content to have it that way. Your father and the council manage the affairs of the spire by consensus, and all the habbles are represented in a fashion that at times borders upon being fair. The only armed forces we need within the spire are the guard, and they generally coordinate humanitarian efforts. I don't rule, Miss Lancaster, nor did my father or grandfather. I just try to help my people when they need it. You are the Spyrarch, sire, Gwen insisted. All the nobility honour you. All are honoured to serve you. Merciful builders, but you're young, 
he said with a whimsical smile. Wait until I issue some sort of proclamation that cuts into their bank accounts, and I suspect they'd honour me with a mob and clubs. He shook his head. It's tradition, true, for young nobles to volunteer to serve in the guard, a mark of status. But it's an arbitrary one in many ways. If I attempt to push past my boundaries, I expect some other activity might suddenly replace the guard for high-profile service to the community. Not everyone feels that way, sire, Benedict said quietly. Not all of us see you as a relic. Not the Lancasters, Gwen added. Perhaps not, the Spyrarch said thoughtfully. But be that as it may, I am interested, Gwen, in why you wish to join the guard. I am the only child of my father's line, she replied, and as such may be excused from such duty with no loss of honour to you or your family. No one would think ill of you for avoiding your term of service. Gwen lifted her chin slightly. I would, sire. The spyarch sat back in his seat and eyed her for a moment. Then he said, "I will show you no favoritism whatsoever, Miss Lancaster, despite your importance to your father's house. You will be given assignments like any other recruit. Some of those assignments might carry you into danger. More young men and women than I care to remember have been hurt or killed in the line of duty while following my commands." Do you understand? Yes, I do, sire. He finished the last few bites of his dumpling with a pensive frown. Then he turned to Benedict. The same goes for you, Master Sorolin. I choose those best suited to the tasks at hand, based upon their ability. You've been put into harm's way in my service, and might be again. Yes, sire. Benedict said, as if the spyarch had stated that water was wet. Addison nodded and said, "We're about to have forty new recruits this year, and as many returning veterans. I'll see you both at the palace at the end of the training cycle to take your vows and sign your contracts." Of course, sire," Gwen said. "Sire, Miss Lancaster." The spyarch said reprovingly, "Addison," she said, and then added, "Sir." He smiled, mostly with his eyes. "Yes." Had I known who you were earlier, you would have been well within your right to react in precisely the same way, Miss Lancaster," he said firmly. "Please excuse me for my rudeness. It's very seldom I get to be impolite for fun." And I'm afraid I have a rather depressingly low sense of humour. I trust you will forgive me. She felt her cheeks heating up again. Of course, sire. There was a sudden, deep, hollow chime. Someone was ringing the bells at the centre of the Habbles Common area near the marketplace. Benedict tensed. Then he popped the second half of his second dumpling into his mouth in a single bite. Gwen pushed her dumpling toward him automatically, and he scooped it up in what was clearly an unthinking, instinctive reaction. Ah, the spyarch said, 
I believe I saw something in the notices about a duel to be fought today. I may have heard that the situation has the potential to be quite messy and ugly for those involved. You wouldn't know anything about it, would you, Miss Lancaster? His voice was calm, even whimsical, but there was something in his words that carried the hint of steel. I suspect you know very well that I do, sire. His teeth showed briefly. Then I suspect that you plan to see it to the end. We do, Benedict said in a quiet voice. The spyarch nodded. A great many eyes are on what you do today, Miss Lancaster. Among them, my own. Gwen swallowed. The great chime tolled several more times, and then fell silent. The spyarch. Glanced toward the source of the sound and nodded in what was undeniably a dismissal. The Targwins are good people. House Lancaster has always had my respect, Miss. I expect today's events to vindicate that respect. Gwen could recognize a command when she heard it, and her heart suddenly beat a little faster. This situation was no longer a simple mess caused by her lack of judgment. The attention of the spyarch meant that it had ramifications for her house as well. Yes, sire, she said, her throat dry. They will. Chapter Ten. Spire Albion, Habble Morning. Bridget felt sure that she was going to be sick and throw up in front of half the happle. Little mouse, Raoul said in a low, stern tone from her arms. Straighten your back, lift your chin, show no fear, give your enemy nothing. That's very good advice, Miss," said the master of arms in a similar tone, though speaking the human tongue. He was a tall, spare man, the threads of silver in his hair standing out sharply against his all-black outfit. They were waiting in the common area of the market of Habble Morning, near the dueling platform, and the grizzled, warrior-born man had just finished ringing the chimes. "You speak cat, Mister," Bridget flushed. "I'm sorry, I don't know your name." "Estabrook, Miss." He said with a slight polite bow. "I don't speak it well, but I understand enough. All wise folk do." "I like him," Raoul said from Bridget's arms. She smiled faintly and tried to follow Raoul's advice. "I apologize if I do something improperly, Mister Estabrook," she said, "but I'm afraid I have little experience in these matters." "Wise folk don't." Esther Brooks said calmly, giving her another smile. "It's simple enough, Miss Targwin." I'm unclear as to what role a master of arms plays in a duel when it's being fought unarmed. Oh, my part doesn't change," Esther Brooks said. "My office is filled by several of us old soldiers, with one of us covering each day of the week. My job is to do everything possible to make sure everyone lives." I seek to resolve the cause of the duel before any blood is shed, 
and then I ensure that the protocol of the duel is followed, and that no one interferes in what happens. She frowned. Who would interfere? His second, perhaps. Estabrook said. He glanced at Raoul. Or yours. Raoul gave a contemptuous flick of his ears and looked away. And, if someone does not follow the rules, I'll stop him. Estabrook said. It is within the rights of my office to take any steps necessary to do so, up to and including the taking of life. Bridget blinked. Goodness, duels are serious business, Miss. Estabrook said quietly. Though these arrogant sprats growing up these days don't seem to think so, they shouldn't be entered into lightly. They shouldn't exist at all, Bridget said. Estabrook seemed to think about that for a moment, then he shook his head. They serve a purpose, if they are kept within a strict structure, and if death doesn't result too often. There's something to be said for having the means to directly confront someone who has wronged you. For there to be a reason for these glib-tongued louts to show an ounce of courtesy and to guard their words. Ah, Bridget said, flushing slightly. As the glib-tongued lout in question, she was currently on the receiving end of this facet of the Habbles' law. I'm not sure everyone would agree with you. We're a civilized society, are we not? Estabrook blinked. Since when, Miss? We're a democracy. Just what I mean. We have dispensed with violence as a means of governing ourselves, have we not? The heart of democracy is violence, Miss Tarquin. Estabrook said. In order to decide what to do, we take account of everyone for and against it, and then do whatever the larger side wishes to do. We're having a symbolic battle; its outcome decided by simple numbers. It saves us time and no end of trouble counting actual bodies, but don't mistake it for anything but ritualized violence. And every few years, if the person we elected doesn't do the job we wanted, we vote him out of office. We symbolically behead him and replace him with someone else, again without the actual pain and bloodshed, but acting out the ritual of violence nonetheless. It's actually a very practical way of getting things done. Bridget blinked several times. I've never thought of it that way, she confessed. It is one of the only things we respect about your people, Raoul put in. Though, of course, cats do it better. Quite possibly, Estabrook agreed. Ah, here comes the physician, and your esteemed opponent, it would seem. Bridget looked around them. People were appearing from all over the market in response to the chimes. Dozens of people, in fact, and only a moment later she was quite sure that dozens had become hundreds. She felt her throat turning very dry to go along with her fluttering stomach and her racing heart. Fear was really quite tedious. She wanted to be rid of it as soon as possible. A small man with silvery hair, carrying a physician's valise and wearing a very sensible, no-nonsense suit, approached Estabrook, and the two exchanged handshakes. Estabrook introduced the man to Bridget, though a few seconds later she had completely forgotten his name. 
The crowd continued to grow. At lunch on a weekday, hadn't these people anything better to do with their time? Bridget frowned at the crowd and restrained herself from rubbing Raoul's ears, which the cat would have found undignified in public. Reginald Astor appeared out of the throng, along with not only his second but half a dozen other men of the same general age and rank. He was dressed just as she was, in a plain grey training uniform. They approached as a group, Reggie swaggering in the lead. Beside her, Bridget felt Mister Estabrook grow tight with coiled tension, something she sensed on a level below conscious thought. It was, she thought, almost the same sense she felt from a suddenly angered cat. Master of Arms, Reggie said. Throwing the warrior-born man an exaggerated bow, it's about time we did this, isn't it? Estabrook narrowed his feline eyes, but inclined his head in respect. I am indeed the master of arms. My name is Elias Estabrook. Details, Reggie said. His eyes were focused intently on Bridget. There she is, the little trog with her little scavenger. The idiot couldn't have known that it was a word the cats considered a deadly insult. Raoul catapulted up from his resting place in Bridget's arms toward Reggie, and it was all she could do to keep hold of the suddenly furious cat. Reggie reconfirmed his idiocy by bursting out in laughter, though at least his second had the wit to take an alarmed step back. Goodness, he said in a merry voice, "Is the kitty upset with me?" It's not as though I'm launching a suit to have the vicious little thing drowned. Raoul, Bridget hissed in cat, settle down. I heard him, Raoul snarled, and he will be dealt with, Bridget said, in the proper order of things. First, he is mine. Raoul let out a spitting snarl of frustration and then settled down again, though his body remained quivering tight with tension. Mister Estabrook, Bridget said, looking from Raoul to the man. I am ready to begin, sir. The warrior born nodded. In accordance with spire law, I beseech you both to resolve your differences in some less dangerous and destructive manner. No matter how well managed, loss of life and limb remains a possibility of any duel. I now ask you, Mister Astor. If you will retract your grievance and avoid the dangers inherent in a confrontation, she insulted the honor of my house," Reggie said loftily. "She will apologize for it, or I will have satisfaction here and now." Estabrook turned to Bridget. "Miss Targwin, will you offer such an apology?" "Let me be clear that I never offered House Astor an insult, Mister Estabrook," Bridget said. "Nor did I insult Reginald." I simply described him in accurate terms. If he finds himself insulted by the truth, it's hardly my concern. A low, quiet round of chuckles went through the crowd. But in any case, Bridget said, "I stand by what I said. Truth does not become untruth simply because its existence upsets the scion of a high house." Esther Brooks' eyes glinted, and he nodded once. Let the record show that neither combatant finds a way to resolve their differences peaceably. We will therefore proceed to contest. Mister Astor, is your second present?
Yes, here, of course, Reggie said, beckoning his cousin Barnabas forward. Miss Tarquin, is your second present? I am, Raoul said in cat. Estabrook nodded seriously, and another murmur ran through the crowd, a mixed sound of amusement, disgust, confusion, excitement, and other things Bridget couldn't quite make out. Point of order, Reggie said, in a voice meant to carry to the entire crowd. This is a violation of dual protocol. Miss Tarquin has arrived without a second. Estabrook looked at Reggie with a blank expression. Oh. The law states, Reggie continued, that a duelist's second must be a citizen of a habble in good standing with the law. Reggie sneered at Raoul, and as I see no such person here, I can only conclude that Miss Targwin did not bring a second. I insist that she be prosecuted for acting in contempt of spire law and her house fined appropriately. Bridget's stomach plunged. It happened only on rare occasions. When someone felt the need to punish a house that had not left itself vulnerable in any other way, but when fines were levied for violations of spire law, they tended to be outrageous. Even the smallest of the fees that could be forced upon her father would quite literally beggar him. Master Astor, Estabrook said, and to Bridget's surprise, his own voice was pitched to carry as well. When it comes to supporting the letter and spirit of the law, your dedication and zeal are selectively remarkable. He reached into his coat and produced a folded writing sheet. I have here in my possession an affidavit, reviewed and notarized by Judge Helena Solomon. It states that one Raoul, heir apparent of House Silentpaws, has, with the rest of his house, pledged his support to His Majesty Addison Orson Magnus Jeremiah Albion, first citizen and spyarch of Albion. Further, the affidavit states that he resides within Habble Morning, and that no outstanding fines or warrants have been levied against him. As such, he is in fact a citizen of the Habble, in good standing. What? Reggie said. House. What? Estabrook diffidently offered him the writing sheet. Reggie snatched it and stared, reading. His cheeks turned bright red, and the crowd began to murmur again. Bridget's gaze fell on a plain, rather dumpy man standing not too far away in the first row of gawkers. Unlike the others, he was not speaking to anyone else. There was something familiar about him, something that reminded her of her primary schooling days. But she couldn't pin down the proper memory. His greying hair was shaggy, his suit years out of style, and if he hadn't been the only person in sight who appeared absolutely calm and undistracted by Estabrook's pronouncement, she might never have taken notice of him. She felt his eyes meet hers. A glitter of mirth passed through them, and he gave her a wink. Bridget blinked. That was rather bold of him. Whoever he was, was he one of her father's business associates, someone she'd met when she was much younger? She was sure she would have remembered. And why was she gawking at the man when she realized one of the most important legal precedents in the spire's recent history had just been made? Cats had been declared citizens of the Habble.
apparently with all the rights and, much more critically, the responsibilities that status implied. Cats and humans had enjoyed a long-standing arrangement, but one that was entirely unofficial, and which either side could violate without necessarily creating enormous repercussions. But Estabrook and his proclamation had just changed that balance immensely, and perhaps not, Bridget realised with dismay, for the good of all involved. This is not... Reggie sputtered. Cats are not eligible to... According to the law, sir, Estabrook said calmly, they are. Have you any other complaints to make before we proceed, sir? Or perhaps you have changed your mind and would be willing to simply abandon this fruitless course? Reggie narrowed his eyes, his gaze locking onto Bridget and Raoul. You're making a mockery of a noble tradition, beast man. Estabrook's feline eyes narrowed to slits, and there was a hint of a growl deep in his chest when he spoke. I simply execute the responsibilities of my office, Master Astor. If that displeases you in some fashion, it is not my concern. Reggie's friends took note of the growl and gathered in close around him. Just then there were footsteps behind Bridget, and Gwendolyn Lancaster and Benedict Sorolin appeared from the crowd. They were both dressed in civilian clothing, Gwen in a pearl-grey dress, vest and jacket, and Benedict in a simple, rather dismal black suit. Both of them, Bridget noted, were wearing gauntlets, the thick copper wire of the weapon's cages wrapping around their left forearms. "'Are we too late?' Gwendolyn asked. Bridget had no notion whatsoever how the prim little noblewoman managed to load so much arrogance and confidence into her seemingly fatuous tone. "'I do hope we haven't missed the display of courage and grace that this little event promises to be. "'Goodness, Reggie, here you are, with six friends.' She gave Asta a blindingly white smile and counted them, moving her hand in a seemingly unconscious gesture. "'One, two, three, four, five, six. Gwendolyn, Bridget noted, used her gauntlet-clad left hand to count.' The copper cage glinted in the noonday light. "'I thought two were all that were needed for a duel,' Benedict said, his tone weighted with exaggerated confusion. "'Indeed,' Gwendolyn replied. "'Reggie seems to have become befuddled.' "'I can help,' Benedict said. And then his manner changed, the false drama vanishing. He simply stared at them, no expression at all on his face. Come, boys, let's the five of you and I leave Reggie and his second to this business. I'll buy you each a round, and you can decide which fight you want to watch. Which fight? Gwen asked. Whatever do you mean? They have a choice, Benedict said. Watch Reggie fighting Bridget, or me fighting them. One will take a great deal less time than the other. Sorolin. Estabrook growled, his tone full of gentle reproof. I'll have no brawling here. Sir, Benedict said with a nod. It won't be a brawl, sir. Estabrook seemed to consider that for a moment, and then nodded. Very well, then. Bridget thought, with some satisfaction, that Reggie's crowd of hangers-on looked rather nervous.
They were trying for arrogant, but the way they had all unconsciously moved a few inches back from Benedict was rather telling. You can't threaten me, Sorolin, Reggie snarled. Benedict blinked several times. Reggie, my old friend, I wouldn't disturb your business today for the world. You know exactly where you reside within my personal regard. I would never harm a hair on your head. I might, Gwen put in cheerfully. I've got this lovely new gauntlet, and I've never actually used it on anyone. Estabrook cleared his throat. Oh, Piffle, I didn't use it on you, only near you, she said to him. But Reggie, let me be perfectly clear. You sought this duel, and you're going to have it. You and your second, and your friends can watch like everyone else. There will be no distractions, no moments of confusion, no mysterious objects flung from the crowd. Just you on the platform. She smiled even more widely. Do you understand, Miss Lancaster? Estabrook said in a heavy tone. I'm quite sure that the young man has no intention of dishonouring the House of Astor this day with any such action, unless, Bridget added, he's, perhaps, afraid of me. Gwen glanced up at Bridget, her eyes shining. Unless that. Enough, Reggie growled. Master of Arms, commence. He turned to his friends and said, "Go watch with the Lancasters." Make sure they don't interfere. Gwen turned to Bridget, nodded firmly up at her, and said, "If you find it quite convenient, make him cry. There's such a nice turnout for it." Bridget found herself letting out a brief breath of a laugh, and she suddenly found the sickness in her stomach diminishing. Just breathe, Benedict advised her. Relax. Let him make the first mistake. Believe me, you can count on Reggie for that. He gave her shoulder a quick squeeze with his fingers and smiled at her. Then her friends turned to Reggie's pack of bullies, and they all departed in a group with Gwendolyn and Benedict, all of them smiling politely at one another and walking as if they expected the others to leap upon them in the instant they lowered their guard. Estabrook looked around at the crowd for a moment and shook his head. He muttered something under his breath about the great houses and their theatre, and then turned to Bridget. Miss Tarquin, he said, as the challenged party, you may decide which of you will take position on the platform first. Very well, she said. Where will Raoul stand? On the ground beside the platform. Only the two seconds and myself are permitted within ten feet of it. That's the rule. I will not be able to see from there, Raoul said. You should change the rule immediately. Estabrook grunted and thought. Then he turned and picked up one of the large chimes in its heavy metal frame. It must have weighed three hundred pounds of an ounce, but the rather lean-looking man moved it as if it had been a living-room chair, putting it beside the nearest corner of the platform. There, Sir Cat, he said, so that you can see. Does that suit you? Raoul considered the chime gravely, and then calmly leapt onto it. He took a few steps about before sitting down and saying, "It will suffice, barely." Excellent, Estabrook said. Miss Targwin, 
I'll go first, she said. Let's get this over with. As you wish, miss, Estabrook said. And a moment later, Bridget found herself standing upon a platform looking out over the crowd that had gathered to watch the duel. There were more people than she had ever seen in her life in any single place, and she absolutely could not let herself think about the number of eyes that were upon her. She might simply scream. So instead, she took Benedict's words to heart and started breathing in a slow, steady tempo, focusing upon her surroundings and her opponent. Reggie climbed onto the platform at the opposite corner, his second standing on the ground just behind him. As he stood up, the crowd let out a cheer and began clapping and shouting and whistling. The sound was enormous, terrifying, like the rumbles of thunder that sometimes reached down into Habel morning during the fiercest thunderstorms of spring. Little mouse, came Raoul's voice from behind her. Remember who you are. This creature wants to take it from you. Do not let him. She turned to give the cat a glance and a quick nod. Then she turned to face Reggie again. Estabrook hopped lightly up onto the platform and went to stand in the centre of it, holding a simple red kerchief in his right hand. The symbolism of the colour of the cloth was not lost on Bridget. The colour of blood. This was a place of blood and pain and death, and any of them were a possibility in the next few moments. Focus. She had to focus. She kept breathing and systematically blocked out everything but herself, the platform, Reggie, and the cloth. Estabrook restated the circumstances of the duel for the public and that Bridget had chosen to face her challenger in unarmed combat. Reggie was smirking at her. It was meant to be a smug, confident expression, but... She fancied she could see something darker and uglier hiding within his eyes. He might not even know it was there, she realized. But he hated her. Or at least he hated something that at this moment happened to be Bridget-shaped. Reggie had been trained. He knew how to fight this way. She'd been training, too, but she knew so very little. Victory isn't about the quantity of what you know, Benedict had assured her during the past days, but the quality. She hoped he was right. Estabrook raised the kerchief. In a moment he would drop it. When it touched the surface of the platform, the duel would begin. Just breathe. Focus. Concentrate. Breathe. He released the kerchief and a sudden, low, urgent shriek went through the air, piercingly loud. The crowd froze. Bridget looked around in confusion, only to see Reggie standing, looking upward with his mouth wide open. Estabrook's expression was, for an instant, one of disbelief. Then as the sound droned on and on, rising and falling in a slow ululation, his expression turned grim. Thunder. Louder than even the storms of spring began to rumble through the very stone of Spire Albion. For some reason, her eyes settled on the man in the crowd who had winked at her earlier. 
His face contained neither confusion nor fear as he stared up at the translucent vaulted ceiling of Habble Morning. His expression was full of a cold, steely rage. He turned at once, sharply, while everyone else was still looking around, and began stalking through the milling crowd, moving swiftly and in a straight line, as if by some effort of sheer will he made the folk of Habble Morning find other places to be than in his path. Bridget found herself standing beside Estabrook, though she had no recollection of stepping forward. What is this sound? Bridget asked him, shouting over the racket. What's happening? Air raid siren. Estabrook shouted back, "The first in twenty years. You need to take shelter, Miss Tarquin. Spire Albion is under attack." Chapter Eleven. Spire Albion, Fleet Shipyards. Creedy, Grim called as he made his way over the mist-shrouded gangplank from the airship dock in the Fleet Shipyard atop Spire Albion and onto Predator. With me, Captain on deck," called Kettle down in the hold. "Mister Creedy to the deck." "My cabin," Grim said with a grimace, and headed that way. "Aye, sir," Kettle said. Then, in an astonished voice, he said, "Captain, your clothes, sir. You're wounded." Grim sighed and looked down at the borrowed outfit Ferris had lent him. It was not, strictly speaking, an actual suit, having been made from two or perhaps three vaguely similar suits, none of them particularly fine. He'd rigged his wounded arm into a sling. Aye, aye. Summit came out of the vents and tried to make a meal of me in a side tunnel. My own fault for taking a shortcut. Bloody hell, Kettle said, clearly angry. Doesn't Habble Morning employ verminositors any more? No permanent harm done," Grim said, giving Kettle a quick wink. "How many men are on shore leave? Do you know?" "We have a quarter crew aboard," Kettle said. "The boys are off seeing some duel happening in the market today. A couple of high-born sprats going bare-knuckled, 'twould seem. There's a group bet against a bunch of those rascals from Glorious." "I hope they make out," Grim said. "They'll need to after what Itasca did to our accounts." Never fear, sir," Kettle said. "The boys will be fine." He finished folding the long web of ether silk he'd been untangling, secured it with leather ties, and then stowed it in one of the lockers beside the base of the rigging. Despite the fact that the masts and spars were currently missing from the ship's upper deck, not yet having been replaced, let me get a door for you, sir. Thank you," Grim said. Kettle opened the door to his cabin, and Grim stepped in, turning to pass his sheathed sword to Kettle. See this cleaned for me, would you? Bit hard to manage with one hand. Aye, sir," Kettle said, accepting the weapon and shutting the door behind him. Grim settled down in his chair. His wounded arm ached quite uncomfortably, though Ferris assured him it was healing. Folly had presented him with a small jar of rather sharp-scented unguent. And he was supposed to apply it to the wound every time he changed the dressing. Something else he would have to ask for help with. Mister Bacon, the ship's doctor, would doubtless find it tedious and complain interminably about the haplessness of wayward captains. Creedy knocked and entered when Grim bade him do so. 
The tall young officer had to duck his head a bit to keep from bumping it on the ceiling. Sit, sit, Grim said. You look like you're apologizing for something just standing there. Creedy smiled faintly and settled on the bench along the cabin's wall opposite the bunk. Kettle says you were injured, sir. Some damned creature came out of the vents, I suppose, Grim replied. Worse attacks have happened. Bad luck, Creedy said. We've had a bit of a run of it, haven't we? I suppose that depends on how one regards it, Grim replied. We had a rather good bit of luck in surviving an engagement with the Cortez class and de Tasca, after all. We're here to tell the tale. And that's true, sir, Creedy said. He bit his lip. You were gone overnight. I hope you don't mind that I granted the men liberty. They'd have hung you from a spar and taken it if you hadn't, Grim said. Keeping a quarter crew aboard was the right decision. Creedy looked slightly relieved and nodded. Good. He glanced up at Grim and said, Captain, I don't want to overstep my place, but... Go ahead. Ask. Pour us a drink while you're at it. Creedy looked believed to be given some orders to follow while he spoke his mind, and he drew glasses and bottle from their usual places. Sir, I've been taking a survey of the damage. How accurate was Journeyman's estimate? Spot on, sir, he replied, somewhat reluctantly. The blighter is insubordinate, but he knows his job. Yes, he does, Grim said, accepting the glass Creedy offered him. Sir, Creedy said, the estimate for repairs is considerable. I'm aware, Grim said. I'm afraid that times being what they are, there might be those in the high houses who might begin to put pressure on you to sell. Really? Grim said. Well, I suppose they have the right to make offers. I'm afraid they might be more aggressive than that, sir, Creedy said earnestly. Well, if they get out of line, I'll just slap them around and threaten them until they stop, Grim said. At that, Creedy all but spat out some of the drink he'd just taken. He managed to choke it down, and after a moment managed to chuckle. My sister told me you had an odd sense of humour, sir. I suppose I do, Grim said. But, joking aside, what are you going to do with her, sir? I mean, I don't know if you'll be able to get a loan, not in these times. If you won't sell her, and you can't repair her, what? Grim studied the young man for a moment. Creedy seemed almost painfully earnest, and Grimm had always thought well of the young man's family, but Rook had obtained a description of Predator's wounds sooner and more thoroughly than he should have. Someone had talked, and while Grimm had no reason to suspect that it was an act of malice in general, or Creedy's act in particular, it was perhaps best to employ a modicum of caution. Let me worry about that, XO, he said. There are several possibilities to explore, and I'm going to examine them all. Meanwhile, we stick to Journeyman's proposal for refitting her. I saw to having the death benefits paid before my uh, little adventure in the ventilation tunnels. We'll replace her spars and her web out of what's left of our current funds, 
as well as the bulkheads and the number three gun emplacement. There's enough money to do that much, and it will be your concern. I'll secure the new crystals we'll need. Sir, uh, I thought we might take on a cargo. Cargo? Grim asked. In her shape. No need to strain her, sir. Creedy said quickly. But a short run could yield some quick, modest profit. A short run. Grim frowned. You mean down to landing, don't you? There's always cargo coming and going from the lower habbles, sir. Creedy said. In barges, in scows. Grim said quietly, and on windlasses. Predator is an airship, Commander. With all due respect, sir, Creedy said, looking down. She isn't. Not right now. Not until you've secured the funds to mend her. I'll consider it, Grim said, and managed to avoid growling as he did. Thank you for bringing it to my attention, sir. Creedy said, "It might take you several years of work to earn it that way, but it would be honest work at least. There's no shame in it, and no joy either." Grim said, "Not for me, not for the crew, and not for Predator. You can't expect a cat to change his fur for you because you think it would be better." Creedy blinked at that. I, I don't understand. A ship is more than wood and crystals and ether silk, Byron, Grim said. Some thick-skulled vat counters have always said it was nonsense, but the men on the ships know better. Airships aren't just vehicles, and the men who treat them like more than that get more out of them. In the academy, we were taught that it has never been conclusively. I went to the academy too, thank you," Grim said. "The academy is where knowledge begins, not where it ends. You're a solid man. You'll understand in time. If you say so, sir," Creedy said dubiously. "I do," Grim said. "But for now, why do we not consider ways we might?" He stopped abruptly. There was a faint, faint sound, something he had heard before. Hauntingly familiar. Then he placed it, a high-pitched humming, like an ether wasp, gliding effortlessly on an etheric wind, but louder, wider, deeper. It was the distant war cry of an auroran destroyer, if he remembered correctly, the Siervo. But that would mean. Grim bolted to his feet and flung open his cabin door. He stomped onto deck, bellowing, "General quarters! General quarters!" Creedy came out after him, gave him the briefest of stunned looks, then whirled and started ringing the ship's bell. Grim hurried to the speaking tube and shouted, "Journeyman, get your drunken ass out of that chair you think I don't know about and run up the main crystal. Get us off this dock and bring up the shroud." Journeyman didn't reply, but only seconds later the planks of the deck began to quiver and vibrate as Predator's main power crystal stirred to life. And less than a minute later, she let out groans and squeaks of protest from her battered timbers and began to rise. Kettle, the lines! Grim bellowed, but he didn't need to do it. Kettle was already taking an axe to the heavy lines that secured Predator to the dock, cutting the wounded ship free. Meanwhile. 
Siervo's war cry grew louder and louder and louder. Around the shipyard, vessels of the fleet began to call general quarters as well, the alarm bells ringing in strident cadence. Somewhere in Habble Morning, immediately below the shipyard, an air raid siren began to wail. And then the enemy was on them. Siervo, Grim was sure of it now, appeared out of the mists above in a screaming dive that took her streaking down past the shipyard at a steep attack angle. Her guns spat thunder and howling light into the docked airships and into the shipyard itself, detonations flinging men and equipment about like tea leaves whirling in a stirred cup. And behind her, following her same dive, were half a dozen more vessels like her. Fire began falling from the far side of the shipyard, marching toward Predator in a swath of hellish destruction. Even as Grimm watched, Chivalrous, a heavy cruiser three times his own ship's size, vanished into a cloud of fire and light and screams of anguished ship and crew. Other ships were struck, though the heavier vessels, even without their shrouds up and active, were only minimally harmed by the light guns of the enemy destroyers. The oncoming fire destroyed a merchant ship named Tinker, only a hundred yards from Predator. Then another merchant vessel called Surplus blew into flaming splinters only fifty yards away, in the neighbouring slip. Splinters and bits of metal, and worse, flew past Grimm in a deadly cloud, some of the pieces so close that he heard them go by. Grimm planted his feet as he felt his ship wallowing up off of a dock, lifted his chin and wondered whether he'd realised the danger in time to stop the Auroran squadron from finishing what Itasca had begun. The fire of the final ship in the column fell upon Predator and shattered into light and whistling shrieks against the ship's now active shroud, the light blinding without his protective goggles. Grimm held himself perfectly still, as if his entire field of vision had not at all been converted into a tapestry of dancing colours, and then the screams of the diving vessels faded abruptly as they plunged past the edge of the spire and on down into the mists below. Grimm blinked his eyes until he could see again, and scanned the misty sky around the shipyard. He saw what he'd been afraid he would see, and turned to Creedy calmly. Form a shore party to bring the crew back to duty, he said. Tell Kettle that he's acting armourer. Crew to be armed with gauntlets, sidearms and tunics immediately. Creedy only stared at Grimm, stunned. His eyes flicked around the shipyard where dozens of fires had begun to blaze, consuming the costly wooden structures that had been erected to expand upon the original spirestone design. People were screaming and dying. Creedy! Grim snapped. Sir! He repeated his orders. Aye, sir, Creedy said, blinking, and set about them. Given a task, Grim thought, Creedy was excellent at seeing it through. Within a moment he had dispatched Kettle with an armed shore party, and put journeymen in charge of distributing weapons to the crew, and preparing more for quick issue when Kettle returned. I don't understand, Captain, he said when he was finished. Why arm the men? Grim pointed at a bit of debris floating lightly on the wind. A stray current of air or ether sent it gliding down to the deck of Predator. 
It was a small rectangle of ether silk. He picked it up and held it out to Creedy. The square of silk stirred and rippled in the shipyard's etheric eddies, moved just as it might by wind, though in a slower, more graceful manner. Is that? Creedy began. The etheric sail from a boarding rig. Grim confirmed. The flag-size squares of ether silk were used to help propel and guide the flight of a parasail. With decent etheric currents, a well-managed parasail, and a bit of luck, a man could climb, descend, and alter course. In the fleet, such rigs were used in boarding actions, with marines leaping from their airship and using them to glide down to the enemy vessel. Grim held up a few broken cords fastened to the ether silk and said, "It would appear that they frayed and snapped when the rig opened." Whichever poor bastard was using it as part of his gear is on his way to the surface now. The Aurorans always were cheap about the equipment for their marines. Creedy finally understood and stared up into the pale mists overhead. The sun was a dull circle. Some days the top of Spire Albion could see open blue sky. Today the typical blanketing mist had reduced visibility to a few hundred yards at best. You think there are enemy marines on the way? This isn't a full fleet assault, Grim said. The spire's batteries were surprised by that dive. But you can be sure they're ready now. If the Aurorans intended to seriously assault Albion, their battleships would have blanketed the shipyard batteries with fire the instant their own ships had completed their pass. Then this was a raiding force, Creedy asked. Grim frowned, looking at the yards. The fleet vessels had not reacted as swiftly as Predator and her crew, but they were now in the process of leaving the shipyard. Gathering together two hundred feet above the spire, concentrating their armor and firepower, Albion's home fleet consisted of a core of twenty rock-class battleships, absolute leviathans a hundred times the mass of Predator, and correspondingly sluggish and slow to respond. They were accompanied by a screen of lighter vessels, around fifty cruisers and destroyers of various tonnages. All of them had sounded general quarters and were underway. Grim watched the fleet lurching into motion, which he suspected to be futility in action, and jerked his chin up toward the mists above them. You've got to admire how well the Aurorans manage that pass of the spire, and in mist like this. But those destroyers can't lock horns with the home fleet or with the spire's batteries. They damaged or destroyed a few lighter ships, but they couldn't possibly have hoped to inflict serious harm to home fleet. You think the attack was a distraction? Creedy said. Why do it otherwise? Grim nodded overhead again. I suspect there's a troop transport up there, dropping its complement. Merciful builders, Creedy said, his eyes widening in understanding. They knew the fleet would mobilize. They wouldn't have any choice. Precisely, Grim said. If they can get a body of troops into the spire. God in heaven only knows what mischief the Aurorans could manage, and as we speak, every Marine in Home Fleet is aboard his ship, up there, where he can't defend the spire. We've got to tell Fleet, Creedy said. I'm an exile, and you've been habbled, Byron, Grim said quietly. 
All I have is a theory and an old piece of ether silk. Even if we could get word to him, do you think Admiral Watson would stand down? Creedy's face looked pained, frustrated. He nodded slowly, his eyes thoughtful. Then he said, "The men are a fine crew, but they aren't professional soldiers, and a regiment of Aurora Marines will outnumber us three to one. They'll tear us. That is, we'll never defeat them." We needn't defeat them," Grim said, "but only slow them down. Bayard has a crooked mind, but it works perfectly well. He'll realize what's happening before long." "Yes, sir," Creedy said quietly. "What are we to do? Gather the crew, arm them, and defend the spire, Mister Creedy," Grim said. "Make ready to repel boarders." Chapter Twelve, Spire Albion, Habble Morning. To shelter, then, Benedict said, turning to Gwen as the sirens wailed. Back to Lancaster, I think. Gwen stared around at the rising panic spreading through the market. I, yes, the house is supposed to be under a structural strongpoint of some kind, but Bridget hopped down from the dueling platform and caught Raoul as he jumped up into her arms. The cat's eyes were very wide, his head jerking back and forth as he tried to track all the frantic movement. "My father," Bridget said. "I need to get to my father." "Wait," Gwen said, catching Benedict's wrist as he was turning to go. There was something in her that was screaming for attention, and she had to take a moment for the thought to crystallize. The young man arched an eyebrow and looked down at her, but he waited. Then, there was a hideous sound, as if a thunderbolt could scream in anguish and rage. Part of the translucent ceiling of Habble Morning suddenly burned with a light brighter than any mist-shrouded noonday sun. The very floor beneath their feet shook with it, and a pall of dust fell from the ceiling high overhead. A second later, there was another shrieking impact, and another. Making the spire stone of Albion toll like a titanic bell. Dust fell in a choking haze, and the screaming redoubled. Pieces of masonry that in the past had been used to repair the not quite invulnerable spire stone fell. Some of them larger than a man. Gwen took note of them and simply lifted her chin. The stones would fall where they fell. Panicked flight might as easily carry her beneath the falling mound of masonry as save her from it. Her father had always said that when one most wanted to panic was when one most needed to think clearly. So, despite the falling stone, Gwendolyn Lancaster stood quietly. Then she spoke in a slow, firm tone, realizing the truth of the words even as she said them. We are members of the Spyrarch's guard. We don't run from trouble; we run toward it. We should report for duty. Bridget blinked at that, and her expressive face showed a flicker of fear, then resignation, and then annoyance. Oh, bother! I should have remembered that myself. Benedict smiled with tight lips. Ah,、uh, I had rather hoped to get the two of you stowed in some nice, safe, strong room. But you're right. Of course, we should. Benny, don't be tiresome," Gwen said. "Where do we go?" 
Again, the spire shook with thunder, and more rock fell. Screams began nearby, high-pitched and terrible. Gwen could not be sure whether it was a man or a woman or a child. There, Benedict said, nodding toward the source of the sound. Our first duty is to protect and aid endangered citizens. Follow me. The three of them and Raoul started forward through the panicked residents and dust-filled air. Benedict's tall, lean form leading the way. A waterfall of shattered stone roared down abruptly, only a few yards away, and Gwen absolutely could not believe how violently loud the impact sounded. Small chips of stone flew out, one of them stinging as it struck her hip. She saw Bridget flinch, and a tiny spot of blood appeared on her right cheek. They ran perhaps fifty strides, the screaming growing louder, and suddenly, from out of the haze of shattered stone, the shape of a mound of rubble appeared. Someone was pinned beneath a large piece of masonry. Some of the dust had been matted into scarlet mud. He was clearly in agony. Benedict, lift the stone, Gwen said. Bridget, help me slide him out. Wait, Benedict snapped. If he's bleeding under there, the rock could be holding the injury shut. We have to be ready to stanch it immediately when we get him out. We need cloth for bandages. Gwen nodded sharply and promptly reached for the hem of her skirt and started tearing it into strips. Bridget, she said. Bridget knelt down and started to do the same thing while Benedict crouched beside the trapped man. Then Gwen's cousin let out a swift curse. It's Barnabas Astor under all this dust. Benedict said, "Bad luck," Gwen noted, still tearing. "If there were any kind of justice, it would be Reggie there." Between the two of them, Gwen and Bridget managed to reduce the outermost layer of Gwen's skirts into strips and folded pads. Once it was done, Benedict nodded and said, "Bridget, haul him out when I lift. Don't dawdle." "I won't," Bridget said seriously. Then Benedict turned to the fallen stone, a mass the size of a small coffin, dug his fingers beneath one edge, and heaved with the entire power of his lean frame. For a second, nothing happened. The muscles in Benedict's back and shoulders swelled out and shook, but then there was a groan, and the rock shifted ever so slightly. Poor Barnabas let out a shriek of new agony, and then Bridget was dragging him out from beneath the rock. There was blood, Gwen noted, what seemed an entirely unnecessary amount of it. A few weeks ago, she'd have had no real idea what to do about it, but their first long day of weapons training had been composed entirely of lessons in how to deal with injuries like this one. Gwen slammed a thick pad of cloth over a spurting wound in Barnabas's leg, then wrapped strips of cloth around it, tightened them, and tied them off. The young man let out another breathless gasp of agony as she jerked the knots tight. "That will do to get him to safety," Benedict said, panting. "Bridget, I'm going to pick him up. I want you to get his wounded leg up onto your shoulder. Keep it elevated, eh?" "Of course." Thunder roared again, and stones began to fall nearby. There was a low, deep groaning sound from overhead, and Benedict's face went white. "Hurry!" He scooped Barnabas in his arms, and Bridget immediately braced the wounded man's leg on one of her shoulders. 
To Gwen's great alarm, rocks began to fall more rapidly all around them. We've got to get out of the atrium. There, a side tunnel. Go, go, go! Benedict shouted, and began to half run, half shuffle toward the relative safety of the smaller tunnel. Just as they slipped into its cool dimness, the tower groaned again, and suddenly a section of masonry the size of an average home crashed down onto the space they'd just vacated. The noise was deafening. The dust became a throat-closing, choking pall. Farther in, Gwen gasped, and they continued their retreat down the dim side tunnel into what rapidly became blackness. Finally, they reached a turn. And once they'd rounded the corner, the air suddenly grew sweet again. The gentle current flowing down the tunnel, evidently dispersing the dust, and they came to a halt. Light, Benedict asked, coughing. Gwen reached up to the small crystals on her earrings with the fingers of her right hand and willed them to life one at a time, just as she would have done to discharge a gauntlet. The tiny crystals winked a light. It wasn't particularly bright light, but contrasted with the blackness, it was dazzling. Benedict lay the wounded man on the ground and examined his injuries. Bother, he said quietly. Barney, old man, I'm afraid you've sprung a few leaks. Barnabas answered through the pained clench of his teeth. Normally, that only happens when I've been engaged in epic drinking. We'll put some corks in you then. Until we can get you to a physician, Bridget turned to Gwen and started ripping at the second layer to her skirts, while Benedict examined the bandage Gwen had put in place. Evidently, he thought it sound, because as Bridget handed him more cloth, he moved on to other injuries and began stanching them in turn. Gwen ran out of skirt before Barnabas ran out of injuries, leaving only one thin layer of skirts between her legs and the cold air of the habel. Come on then, Benedict said. Keep the bandages coming. I hardly think so, Gwen said. Benny, take off your shirt and we'll rip it to bits. Benedict shot her a glance, then eyed her last layer of skirts and grunted understanding. He slipped out of his jacket and waistcoat, and stripped off the shirt beneath in a single ripple of motion, passing it back to Bridget. Gwen sometimes forgot that her cousin was, like all warrior-born, a particularly athletic-looking masculine specimen of a man lined with hard, lean muscle. The effect was impressive. Bridget blinked at his unclothed torso in such shock. That his tossed shirt fell through her hands as if they'd suddenly gone numb. Oh, she said, "My." Gwen arched an eyebrow and felt herself smiling. So it was like that with Bridget, was it? Well, God in heaven only knew that Benedict deserved someone's affection. Amongst the families of the high houses in general, the warrior-born were considered unseemly. And best put to use as armed retainers or bodyguards, and certainly not as members of a house. Gwen nudged Bridget with an elbow. The girl blinked again, shook herself, and went back to tearing cloth as the air raid sirens continued out in the Habel's main atrium. Hang in there, Barney, Benedict said as he worked. I know it hurts, 
but I think we'll keep your body and soul knitted together. Barnabas answered with a faint, pained grunt. His eyes closed. I still don't understand why this is happening, Bridget said. Airships attack the spire. Whose? The Aurorans, most probably, Gwen answered. But why would they do such a thing? Economics, mostly. What? The government of Spire Aurora is greedy, corrupt and inefficient, Gwen said. Taxes are quite high. Each Habble struggles against its neighbours to claim funding and favours from their government, and the actual business of government is generally neglected. As a result, their enterprises suffer and do not grow, while their population does. So once every generation or so, the Aurorans become aggressive. Their fleet gobbles up outposts, and in the past, entire spires, plundering their wealth to keep their own spire going, and getting a lot of their own people killed to reduce the pressure on their population. Bridget sounded baffled. They want to go to war for money. Gwen snorted. <laughs> You'll never hear them say that. They always manage to find or contrive a rationale. But in the end, they are nothing more than glorified pirates. Tension has been building between their armada and our fleet for a year or so, mostly raids on Albion merchantmen and small-scale engagements with fleet ships. Didn't think they'd move this soon, though, Benedict put in. I don't think anyone did. From the darkness just outside the little circle of light Gwen's earrings cast, there was a quiet, rather unnerving feline sound. Bridget tensed and looked down the tunnel. Raoul says someone is coming. Thank God in heaven, Gwen said, peering. Perhaps it is some of the guard. She called. Hello? Who is that, please? A few moments later, eight men in uniforms of the Spyrarch's guard stepped into the outskirts of Gwen's light. Two of them were carrying a stretcher, its occupant covered by blankets. Another, wearing the weapon crystal insignia of a junior officer, touched a finger to his brow and said, Miss. Lieutenant? Gwen said. She didn't recognize the man, but that was hardly unusual. The guard had several dozen outposts throughout the spire, with most of two thousand individuals serving. I'm quite glad to see you. We've a wounded civilian here. Can you help us? Sorry, miss. The man replied, I'm afraid we've duties of our own to attend to. Gwendolen, Benedict said. Gwen shot Benedict a glance. He never called her by a full name. He was waiting for her to look, his face calm, but his eyes were intent. I'm sure the lieutenant regrets the need to fulfill his duty. It's nearly miraculous that he is in motion at all this soon after a surprise attack. Gwen frowned at her cousin. Then Benedict flexed his left wrist, his gauntlet hand, in a slow circle, and with a cold shock Gwen realized what he meant. The attack happened only moments ago. The four of them had been involved in it, had seen it happening, and yet they'd barely had time to duck into the tunnel for safety and apply rapid field dressings to poor Barney Astor. Yet here stood a full squad of the guard, already armed and organized and carrying a casualty on a stretcher, and, Gwen noted, wearing large field packs as well. 
No one could have thrown that together in mere moments, not in the terror and confusion currently raging through the Habel. Not unless they'd known the attack was coming. And who would know better than the enemy? An enemy wearing guard uniforms, operating in secret. An enemy who would have no compunction in killing anyone they came across in order to maintain their disguise. Someone like herself, for example. Gwen's heart started pounding so loudly she fancied she could hear it. Benedict gave her a microscopic nod, then deliberately closed his eyes and turned back to the wounded man. Closing his eyes, he'd done that on purpose so that she could see it. Why? Ah, obviously, yes. Gwen pivoted back to the false guardsman, raised her left hand, and discharged her gauntlet into the officer's face from less than five feet away. Chapter Thirteen, Spire Albion, Habble Morning, Ventilation Tunnels. There was a truly blinding flash of light. When one discharged a gauntlet, the light was bright enough to clearly show the bones of one's hand through the seemingly translucent flesh. The force of the gauntlet's blast screamed into the echoing expanse of the tunnel, smashing into the officer like a blazing sledgehammer. It flung his abruptly limp body to the ground as if he'd been bludgeoned with an enormous club. Then Gwen wheeled away the light of the little crystals on her earrings and plunged the tunnel into blackness. She couldn't see a thing but a blinding swirl of colours, and her own eyes had been at least partly shielded from the light of the gauntlet's discharge. The false guardsman who had been able to see the crystal directly would be in even worse shape. Absolutely no one would be able to see in the sudden contrast of brilliance and pitch blackness. No one but one of the warrior-born. Gwen dropped to the floor as a sudden sound she had never heard before—a snarl indistinguishable from the coughing roar of a large hunting cat—burst forth from the blackness. There was a quick scuffling sound of boots pressed sharply against the stone floor, an exhalation, and then a cry of pain in the darkness. There were more scuffling sounds, a voice shouting something in Auroran, more screams, and then the flash of a gauntlet gave her a burned picture image. Two men were already on the ground, and Benedict was locked in grips with a third man, whose gauntlet had gone off while Benedict, fighting bare-handed, held it aimed at a fourth enemy. That flash image gave Gwen only an instant to understand where her cousin stood, and an even briefer time in which to act. She aimed her own gauntlet wide of Benedict's position and triggered another shot, sending a blast in the general direction of the disguised invaders. She had no idea whatsoever whether she'd hit friend or foe, but thought it a very good idea not to remain in the same place, in case any of the Aurorans had the same idea she'd had. She rolled to her left until her shoulder fetched up rather painfully against a cold stone wall. There were the sounds of more movement in the darkness, scuffling noises, blows struck, and then a short, sharp gasp. Bridget, God in heaven! In the frantic moment of danger, Gwen had forgotten about their companion. Stop, Albion! Snarled a voice in a heavy accent. Or the girl dies. Light rose again. This time from one of the intruders, holding up an illumination crystal. Four forms lay on the ground, utterly still. 
and as Gwen blinked her eyes, struggling to peer into the new illumination, she saw Benedict holding a fifth man by the throat, all but entirely suspended from the ground, with his boots barely resting on the floor. There was blood on her cousin's hands and splattered across his naked chest. The invaders holding the stretcher had dropped it. There was not a casualty beneath its blankets. Instead, it had been stacked with leather satchels set with fuses. They'd had only a brief introduction to the devices in their munitions lectures, but Gwen knew enough to recognize a military-grade explosive charge when she saw it. Only a few feet to her right, one of the invaders stood behind Bridget. He held her throat in one hand, and with the other had trapped one of her arms behind her. Fresh burn marks on his uniform at one shoulder suggested that the second blast of Gwen's gauntlet had found a target. Bridget's eyes were wide and furious, her neck bent at an angle that suggested she was in pain. Her captor stared at Benedict over Bridget's head, the light of the crystal gleaming off of his feline eyes. "'Put him down,' growled the enemy warrior-born. Benedict bared his teeth, but her cousin released the fifth man, who slid to the floor like so much limp, vattery meat and let out a low groan. Gwen took time to note that the remaining invaders were now spread out, the nearest two kneeling so that those standing behind them had a clear field of fire. All of them held gauntlets aimed and ready, several of them pointing directly at Gwen. She, unfortunately, did not have her own gauntlet aimed at them, and she rather thought that if she moved her left arm at all, she'd never know it when they fired. Three men in three seconds, the Auroran said to Benedict in a low, flat tone. Not terrible, but I'd have taken you if the little girl hadn't gotten lucky with the second shot. Benedict lifted his left hand, his gauntlet's crystal smouldering with light. The Auroran smiled very slightly and drew Bridget a little more fully between himself and Benedict. How sure are you of your aim, Albion? Fire! and my men will kill you and your little girl. And once you're dead, I'll kill this one and move on. Shoot him, Benedict, Bridget grated. He smells. I would rather... The Auroran flexed his fingers slightly, and Bridget's words abruptly ceased. He put his lips close to her ear and said, The men are talking. If I stand down, Benedict said, you'll kill her anyway. What reason do I have not to at least take you with us? My word, the Auroran said. You go down. That's how it is. But you can save them. Stand down, and I'll tie these others up and leave them unharmed. Benedict stared at the other warrior-born for a silent moment. Then he said, Give me your name. The Auroran inclined his head. Diego Siriaco, Master Sergeant, First Auroran Marines. Benedict Sorlin, Spyrox Guard, Gwen's cousin said. Benedict Sorlin, Siriaco said. You have my word. Remember my name, Benedict said. And then he lowered his gauntlet, an oddly calm expression on his face. Will. The Auroran told him. 
Then he turned to his fellow Aurorans and said, You will fire on my command. Gwen abruptly realised that while her gauntlet was not pointed at any of the armed men facing them, it was pointed at something else. You will not! She snapped in a sudden, cold tone, doing everything she could to copy her mother's furious, imperious voice of command, the one she used only on special occasions. If anyone fires or harms any of us, I swear to God in heaven that I will discharge my gauntlet into your explosives. It would not be the end I had hoped for, but it will be quick, and if I die defending Albion from Auroran invaders, I should not count my life wasted. Can you say as much, Mr. Siriaco? Can your companions? There was a moment of utter crystalline silence. Then Siriaco let out a low hiss and snarled, Hold fire! Benedict's teeth shone in a hard smile. In that case, sir... Perhaps I could offer to accept your surrender. My terms will be a great deal more generous than those you offered me. Release the young lady, lay down your arms, and you will be taken as prisoners of war. Siriaco snorted. <laughs> Only to be tortured for information by your masters. I prefer the explosion, sir. Then we are at an impasse. Siriaco grunted an acknowledgement. True enough, but that balance will inevitably change. Someone will be along. I assure you, sir, Gwen said, I will have no compunctions whatever about blowing up any number of your fellows who might have the appallingly bad taste to interrupt us. The warrior-born stared at her, his face unreadable. Conversely, miss, if more of your own people appear, your threat seems rather diminished. How many of your own folk are you willing to kill along with all of us? Even in a draw, the advantage is mine, Gwen said. While I keep you pinned here, you cannot complete whatever objective it is that you have been given. You do not hold a winning hand. He showed his teeth. Yet. How long do you think before your people sort out enough of this mess to send armed patrols through the side tunnels? Hours? A day? He nodded toward the unconscious form of Barnabas Astor. How long does your wounded man have before he succumbs? I know when to expect my people. And I know that they'll be armed. It shouldn't surprise me at all if in the next moment a long gunner shot you dead from far down the tunnel and out of your sight before you even realized the danger. Time is on my side, miss. Not yours. Gwen felt a cold sensation in the pit of her stomach. Surrender, Siriaco said in a hard voice. Save who you can. He eyed Benedict. Surely you see. Tell her. To the best of my knowledge, sir, Benedict said in an apologetic tone, no one has ever been able to tell my dear cousin anything. At all. The Aurorans' expression darkened as he turned back to Gwen. There is no path to victory for you here. She showed him her teeth. Yet, she said with a certain vicious satisfaction. We shall all, I think, wait and see. Chapter 14 Spire Albion, Habble Morning Grimm hated personal combat.
Aboard an airship, combat was a tide, a storm, a force of nature. Men died, yes, and it was horrible, and it haunted him. But they died at the mercy of forces so powerful that it hardly seemed a merely human agency could be involved. Most often, one never saw the face of the enemy; only his ship, hanging like a model in the sky, often looking quite serene and beautiful. That was an illusion, of course. Pain and death were the reality. But battle was a distant thing in airships, detached, clinical. One pitted one's mind and skill and the heart of one's crew against another captain doing precisely the same thing. One saw what the enemy did to one's own ship, but only rarely did one have a clear, horrible view of what one had perpetrated upon the enemy. Most important, a good commander could make decisions that protected his crew and brought them victory. The ship moving at his will like a single, enormous living being. Personal combat was a very different world. Kettle returned with the majority of the crew within moments, and Mister Journeyman was waiting to issue weapons and tunics lined with ether silk. The tunics were old; the silk harvested a generation ago at the very latest, and they would be of use only against an indirect blast from moderate range. But they were the best Grimm had been able to find for his men, and they were a great deal better than no armor at all. We're ready, Captain," Creedy said. The large young man had donned his sword and gauntlet. "Where shall we go?" "Where there is need," Grim said. "It stands to reason that." He paused as Kettle approached with his sword, its sheath lashed to a baldric. It took a bit of consideration to settle the belt across Grim's chest so that his sling wouldn't tangle in it, and so his unwounded right arm would be able to draw the weapon. Captain, Creedy said, "What are you doing? I'm not about to send the crew somewhere I'm not willing to go." Exo, Grim replied. "Thank you, Mister Kettle." Captain, Kettle said, "Your gauntlet." Grim wiggled his left arm in its sling and sighed. "I could scarcely aim the thing, I'm afraid." Captain, Creedy said, "You're wounded. You shouldn't go." Nonsense. Grim replied. Creedy ground his teeth. Then he turned to Kettle. "Mr. Kettle, sir," Kettle asked. There was, Grim thought, a certain amount of scepticism in the honorific. As our dear captain is determined to put himself in unnecessary danger, I'm tasking you with the personal responsibility of watching over him. I don't want you more than a step away from him until this is settled. Clear. Kettle's expression relaxed, and for a moment something almost like a smile graced it. Crystal, sir. Ah, Grim said, "I could order you not to do so, you know." What's that, sir? Kettle asked in an overloud voice. "I couldn't quite hear you. My ears. The explosions, you see, sir." Grim eyed him, but Kettle remained amiably, apologetically deaf. Creedy's expression was set into a stubborn frown. Grim looked around and noted other crewmen observing the exchange and sighed. "Fine, fine." He gave them both an irritated glare, but his heart wasn't really in it. As I was saying, it stands to reason that the boarders won't attempt to land on the spire's roof in the shipyard. There are marines here on duty, batteries, ships, crews. 
Had they intended an open assault, they'd have landed already. Where then? Creedy asked. Do you think they're headed for landing? A fair question. The enterprising inhabitants of Habble Landing had spent a generation investing in wearing a hole in the spirestone outer wall of their Habble, and then constructed an airship port of their own, out of wood, on the exterior wall of their level of the spire. Where before there had been only two entrances to Spire Albion, the roof and the base, there were now three. Transport times of goods throughout the many Habbles of Spire Albion could be cut in half, and the craftsmen and merchants of the Spire had been swift to take advantage of such an opportunity. And now Landing possessed nearly as much wealth as Morning. Perhaps, Grimm said, but even there they'd have a real fight on their hands to get in. I believe they'll go in another way. The ventilation tunnels? Precisely. They'll get as many of their marines into the tunnels as they can, and set them about the business of weakening Albion from within. Kettle whistled through his teeth. The mouths to those tunnels aren't but maybe four feet by four, and right on the side of the spire. No ledges or nothing, Captain. Hell of a difficult target for a marine flying a parasail. Grimm started walking toward the gangplank. Industry and determination, Mr. Kettle, can transform the difficult into the routine, Grimm said. We can assume they'll move from the ventilation tunnels into the side tunnels, and from there proceed to their objectives. There are a number of possible targets for them to assault within Habble Morning, and they may try for the shipyards as well. Our mission is to keep them bottled up in the side tunnels. We needn't hunt them down. I dare say our own marines will be happy to do it once they return. Grimm looked over his shoulder and saw his crew following him, some of them still buckling their swords and gauntlets into place. Kettle had found most of them in a remarkably short time, eighty-seven men, only nine short of her full complement. It seemed they had all been together, and rather nearby, to place their bets on that duel. How many, Grimm wondered, would still be alive when the sun set? Mr. Creedy, pass the word to the officers, if you please. Make sure every single one of them understands our goal, and that I expect it to be met regardless of what happens to the officers or myself. They are to inform the men in their squad the same way. Aye, Captain, Creedy said, and immediately turned to begin walking backward, speaking in terse tones to the first of the crewmen behind them. Mr. Journeyman, Grimm called, without turning his head. Aye, Captain. You stay. An incredulous, absolutely acidic epithet split the air. I believe the phrase you used was jumped up wallypog. If you are too valuable to show proper deference and courtesy to my XO, you're certainly too valuable to risk in a firefight with the Roaring Marines, journeyman. That's how it is. The engineer's ongoing curses faded into the background as Grimm began to trot forward and his men came with him. They descended a spiral ramp that led from the shipyard to Habble Morning, fighting against confused traffic heading in the opposite direction. The Habble was in chaos. The bombardment from the Auroran destroyers had not struck the Habble directly, but enough of the energy had transferred through the spire stone to dislodge a significant amount of masonry used to buttress and repair the spire's roof. There were screams and the scent of smoke on the air. That was terrifying, 
If an enemy was lurking, he could be fought. But if smoke began to fill the hovel or its tunnels, it could kill every one of his men without a blade being drawn or a gauntlet discharged. Members of the Spyrarch's guard rushed here and there, rescuing those who had been trapped in the rubble or tending to the injuries of the wounded. It was a dutiful reaction to the crisis, but not a well-ordered one. They moved in small groups of three or four, with no obvious coordination. No one was attempting to direct or calm the traffic on the atrium streets, as far as Grim could tell. Sir, Creedy said, pointing. Grim swivelled his gaze to the far side of the hovel, where flickers of brilliant white light played intermittently against the far wall, changing the buildings between into black outlines. Firefight, Grim said. Good eyes, Exo. Shall we greet our guests? Without waiting for an answer, he set out at a rather slow, if steady, lope. His arm hurt abominably, but there was nothing for it. Habel Morning occupied the entirety of the spire, most of it beneath a vast atrium nearly two hundred feet high, and it was the next best thing to two miles from one side of the great cylinder that was Spire Albion to the other. They had to hurry. But arrive with enough breath to aim steadily and ply their blades. The run was like some kind of appalling dream. Most of the buildings seemed little damaged, but occasionally one would appear that had been crushed by falling masonry. The wounded lay on the spirestone floor or wandered dazed through the streets. Grim ground his teeth against the need to stop and help a small child who had obviously suffered a broken arm. The poor waif was in agony, but not in danger, which might not be true if the invaders managed to set enough of Habel Morning on fire, or blow up vatteries or water gardens, or murder the spire council. Though Grim had mixed feelings on the sort of loss that might constitute, or any of a number of other acts of war that could have been underway. Perhaps a quarter of an hour passed while they ran, an eternity during any battle. By the time they reached the spot Creedy had seen, Grim had assumed that it would be most likely over. He was mistaken. As they approached, they could hear the howling discharges of gauntlet fire. Grim came to a panting halt just around the corner of a large house, one of the original dwellings from the building, made of spire stone seamlessly fixed to the hovel's floor. The firing came from the other side. Stern, he said. Fighting to keep his voice steady and calm, get a look. Come back quick. No dawdling. Captain said, a slender, dark-haired man, a good many years younger than the average crew member of the Predator. Stern had been a grubby midshipman in the deployment that had ended Grimm's career, and had, against Grimm's express instructions, followed him from the fleet onto Predator. He had remained small and thin as he grew into an adult. And could move as quickly and quietly as any warrior-born when he needed to do so. Creedy was blowing hard after the run, his face red. Captain, he gasped. Are we where I think we are? Lancaster Vattery, Grim said. They've come for the crystals. God in heaven, if the Aurorans destroy them, then Fleet will have to fight a war without replacement crystals or additional vessels, Grim said. Which was, he reflected, saying something very nearly the same as, "losing a war." Stern came hurrying back to the group. 
The battery's made of spire stone, he reported, so there's no blasting away in. Lancaster retainers are holding the door so far, but there aren't enough of them to keep it much longer. And the enemy? Grimm asked. Captain? Stern said, his voice worried. They're the Spyrarch's guards. Nonsense, Grimm said promptly. Likely they're Aurorans wearing false uniforms. How many? I made it two dozen, but they've taken up positions, sir. They're shooting from cover. Creedy blinked. What? If they want to destroy the battery, they should be storming the door, shouldn't they? Every minute they're here makes it more likely that they'll come under attack themselves. Why wait? Hmm, Grimm said, and narrowed his eyes, thinking, Why wait? Then he felt his lips bare his teeth in a smile. Why indeed? Because they are waiting. Perhaps they're expecting reinforcements. Stern, where are they positioned? There's a masonry wall around a little garden between the battery and the house, Captain. It's been chewed up by gauntlet fire, but they're using it for cover. Grimm nodded once. Creedy, take two squads and flank them from the far side rear, if you please. I'll take the rest and make sure that the enemy is too busy looking at the near side front to notice you. Don't dawdle now. The XO nodded, pointed to two other officers, and beckoned. He started away at a run, and the others followed. Grimm turned to the rest of the crew and said, These boys are better at this kind of fighting than us, but there are a hell of a lot more of us than there are of them, so we treat this exactly like a boarding action. Aggression, 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 and stay together. God in heaven be with you. He led his crew to circle the house and enter the field opposite from where Creedy's team would appear. When Creedy got there, he and his men would be behind the Aurorans' cover, blasting away at invaders trapped against a stone wall. They would wreak havoc on the foe. Of course, it also meant that the Aurorans would have a very strong defensive position against Grimm and his men. But there was no helping that. The howl of gauntlet fire filled the air, the light flashing swift and bright in a thick, deadly curtain of energy. Grimm drew his sword lifted it, and cried, Albion! The crew's weapons leapt into their hands, and they roared, Albion! in furious unison. Grimm rounded the last corner, followed by seventy howling aeronauts, and sprinted toward the Auroran position. Chapter 15 Spire Albion, Habble Morning, Lancaster Vattery Two seconds. Grimm and his crew had two whole seconds of surprise and confusion in which to advance on the enemy. Two seconds was a great deal of time when measured in units of life and death. They had covered perhaps half of the open ground before the Aurorans managed to gather their wits and an officer began barking orders, redirecting their aim. The glow of a couple of dozen weapon crystals lit the dimness, shining like spotlights and they began to pour fire into Grimm's crew, mostly from gauntlets, but also from several long guns. Grimm's men returned fire as they ran, wildly inaccurate for the most part, but anything that helped make the Aurorans flinch or seek cover was desirable. Then it was horrible sound and blinding light and the feel of spire stone beneath his boots as he ran, sword aloft.
two seconds more. By the end of it, twenty of his men were down, most of them screaming, some horribly still. Others had been hit in their ether silk tunics, and though they staggered as they ran, they kept going. Grimm saw the blast that hit him, slamming home into his ribs. For an instant he faltered, looking down, but the suit the old etherealist had lent him was evidently lined with ether silk of the highest quality. The blast had felt like little more than a stiff punch, unpleasant but hardly deadly, and though it had burnt and torn the outer layer of the suit's coat, the silk beneath was unmarred. And then Grimm had reached the blast-pocked walled garden. The wall was more decorative than functional, being only about as high as his stomach, except where gauntlet blasts had lowered it in gaps to only a couple of feet high. Grimm stomped his boot down onto one such gap and leapt into the garden and passed the rank of men defending the wall, making room for the men coming behind him. He saw a pale face before him and whipped his sword in a quick strike, felt it hit. Then there was a flicker of steel and he ducked beneath one of the inward-curving talon-like blades of the Auroran marines and parried a second blade of the same kind. Then Kettle bounded through the gap in the wall, sweeping one large boot into the teeth of the man defending the opening as he did. The helmsman landed, his gauntlet hand stretched out behind him and put a blast into the head of another defender. And after that it was frantic motion, reflex and terror. Steel flashed, gauntlets screamed, and his crew fought to press into the garden to put enough men through the wall to make the weight of numbers decide the matter. The Auroran marines disagreed. These were hard-bitten men, professionals who were trained to excel in the mayhem of battle. They recognized the danger of losing the wall, of being surrounded by a numerically superior force, and they fought savagely, viciously. Grimm found himself driven back, kettle by his side, while the crew kept trying to follow the pair of them in, only to be cut down mercilessly and precisely by the Auroran long-gunners or the blades of the enemy marines. Grimm felt the momentum shift, felt the gathering determination of the Aurorans as they realized that they outclassed their opposition. In a few seconds more, he judged, the attack would be repulsed, leaving himself and Mr. Kettle subject to the attentions of enemy gauntlets. And then Creedy's squad arrived. They didn't shout. They ran in relative silence, their footsteps masked by gauntlet fire, by howls and screams, and took up position along the opposite wall of the garden. Creedy made it happen with excellent discipline. He made sure every man was at the wall, gauntlet lifted, arm braced, aimed and ready to fire before he gave the order. The Aurorans, fully focused on repelling Grimm's assault, suspected nothing until the moment Creedy's first salvo felled nearly half of them. Grimm lunged forward, driving his sword into the breast of an officer whose silk had absorbed the blast that struck him. Kettle, at his side, intercepted a wild swing from another foe with his own blade, bellowing, Albion! As he did, his fellow aeronauts surged forward with a roar, copper-clad blades in hand, vaulting the low wall or leaping through the gaps, swamping the stunned invaders in their numbers. The surviving Aurorans lasted rather less than two seconds. Creedy, 
Grimm said a few moments later. Report. Eleven dead, Creedy said in a subdued, solemn voice. Two more who won't last long. Seventeen incapacitated by their injuries and as many walking wounded, sir. I've sent those wounded who can move back to Predator with word to send Dr. Bacon at once. Grimm grunted. The Aurorans? Three live. They might not survive their injuries. Have Bacon see to them the moment he's finished with our own. I should think that the powers that be will want to speak to them, eh? No doubt, sir, Creedy said. I've put some of the older, calmer hands to guard them. Good man, Grimm said. Send someone to the Vatry and let them know that we're not trying to murder them. I thought there might be nervous men with gauntlets inside, so I went myself, sir, Creedy said. Grimm felt his lips quirk. I see that they didn't blast you, he noted. No, sir, Creedy said, his tone serious. Armed retainers of Lancaster, sir, former marines. Very good discipline. They're staying at their post, and their commander has gone to secure the household. From outside the garden, where the wounded had been laid out together, there was a low, groaning scream of pain. Grimm looked up wearily from where he sat on a bench in the garden itself. There was a small burbling brook and a pool there, along with several dwarf trees and abundant green ferns, quite beautiful but for all the blood and corpses. The dead men stank of offal and excrement, the way they always did. It seemed undignified for a man's last remnants to be so foul, but that was the way of it. Grimm tried to ignore the smell and the motionless forms alike. There were always unpleasant consequences to a battle. He rose wearily, straightened his back, cleared his throat, and looked into the middle distance. That was work well done, Mr. Creedy, in the battle and after. I've known men who didn't have half as much composure or sense in their first close-quarters action. Creedy hesitated awkwardly before replying, Captains did not say such things to their junior officers in fleet. Creedy frowned at nothing in particular, which also happened to be in the middle distance. Sir, he said. Yes, I don't like it either, Grimm replied. But as I cannot put you in for a combat ribbon or a commendation for unusual competence under fire, we must make do. Yes, sir. Grimm nodded. When time serves... I shall buy you a drink, and will not speak of it again. I, Creedy nodded. I should think that perfectly acceptable, Captain Grimm. Good, Grimm said. That's done. As soon as Bagan gets here, gather the men and get ready to move. There are a great many more Aurorans out there somewhere, and we'll need to be ready to respond. We captured four of their long guns intact, sir. Shall I issue them to the men? Grimm nodded once. Excellent notion. Give one to Mr. Stern. He's a fine shot. Have him pick a squad to use the rest. Aye, sir, Creedy said, and left to see to it. Captain, Kettle said from where he'd been standing, silent and discreet a long step away. His tone was a warning. Grimm turned to find a tall man approaching in a black suit tailored almost exactly to the lines of a Marine's uniform. He wore a blade and a gauntlet, and his short brush-cut of hair was grizzled. 
even before Grimm saw his eyes, he'd pegged the man as warrior-born from his lean build and grace. Captain Grimm, I presume, the man said. Aye, Grimm replied. You've the advantage of me, sir. The tall man offered his hand and Grimm shook it. Estabrook, he said, first armsman of House Lancaster. I'm glad for your intervention, Captain. Four to one are stiff odds. The Aurorans seem to think so, Grimm replied. Six of you held off two full squads of professional marines. Impressive. Brief, Estabrook said. Otherwise you'd need to use words like tragic, or maybe noble sacrifice. Thank you. Grimm found himself smiling up at the man. What can I do for you, sir? Lord and Lady Lancaster were in the residence and saw much of what just happened. They wish me to convey their thanks and their condolences for your losses, and to inform you that they have already sent for their personal physicians, and that they're preparing space in the house for your wounded. You needn't fear that your men will lack the best care available. Grimm felt something ease in his gut that he hadn't known had been paining him. Uh, please, sir, convey my heartfelt thanks to the Lancasters. Estabrook nodded. Will. He looked around and then at Grimm again. You're Francis Madison Grimm, Captain of the Perilous. Grimm felt his shoulders tighten. Former acting captain, sir, I am he. I hear the Admiralty broke your sword, for cowardice. Kettle made a growling sound. Estabrook glanced up, arching an eyebrow at Kettle. But then he turned back to Grimm, clearly waiting for an answer. They did so, Grimm said. Estabrook showed his teeth. But you'll charge a dug-in position of marines with one arm in a sling. It was necessary to do it, Grimm said. We all serve, sir, some with more glory than others. Estabrook seemed to consider the multiple meanings in Grimm's answer and said, Right. The Admiralty has its head up its nethers again. Grimm arched an eyebrow and said nothing. Behind him, Creedy shouted out an order, and the remaining aeronauts began to gather together. Bagan had arrived, as had two other men with the distinct confidence and focus of physicians in a crisis. His men were being cared for. He felt his chest ease as if it had been suddenly cut free from tight leather bonds. Estabrook looked at the gathering men and said, You're moving out. I can't imagine that the crystal battery was the enemy's only target, Grimm replied. And I do not think the men we took down were operating alone. They seemed to be waiting for some other support to arrive. Estabrook nodded. What I thought, too. I'd offer to send a few men with you, but... Others may yet attack the battery, and your duty is to the Lancasters. Grimm said, Albion must not lose the battery. I'll leave a squad with you to help secure it until the Marines, or the true guard, arrives. Estabrook ducked his head once. I'm grateful to you, Captain. I have wounded of my own. Where are you headed next? I intend to patrol the perimeter of the atrium, and... With no warning whatsoever, a ginger tomcat sailed over the garden wall and sprinted toward them. 
Kettle let out a brief sound of surprise, his hand darting toward his sword on reflex. The cat hurtled up to Estabrook and slid to a halt with a long, chewy-sounding burble of throaty sound. Estabrook blinked down at the cat and held up a hand. Wait, wait, slow down. The cat seemed to bound back and forth in place, stiff-legged, as if he could barely keep himself from breaking into another sprint. The stream of agitated feline sound continued. The beastie's gone mad, sir. Kettle asked. Not mad, I think, Grim said. Mr. Estabrook, can you understand him? I only speak a bit, Estabrook said. He's, their, danger. Help, those I understood. He shook his head. What danger? Who needs help? Wait, Kettle said. I know they're clever beasts, but do you mean the things actually talk? The cat turned two frantic circles and then darted over to the corpse of a fallen Auroran Marine in his stolen uniform. He stopped to make sure they were all looking at it, and then deliberately swiped the dead man's chest, hissing. "More of them," Estabrook said. "I like that one." The cat made another sound that Grim could have sworn was an exasperated affirmative. "Merciful builders," Kettle breathed. Is the man serious? My boatswain on Perilous kept a cat aboard. Grim said, "The little monster was not to be underestimated." He looked up at Estabrook. "Is this creature known to you?" "Yes," Estabrook said at once. "He is. His name is Raoul." "Then it would appear I know where I'm going next," Grim said calmly. Raoul whirled to look directly at Grim, wide eyes intense. Then he let out another mrowling sound and darted back toward the wall of the garden. He leapt to the top and paused to look back over his shoulder. "Mr. Creedy," Grim called, "we're moving out." "Aye, sir," Creedy said. "Where are we headed, Captain?" Raoul leapt down and darted into the dimness, pausing thirty yards later to look back. Grim started moving. Kettle at his side. At the quick march, Mister Creedy, follow that cat. Chapter Sixteen. Spire Albion, Habble Morning, Ventilation Tunnels. Bridget had never really given much thought to what it might be like to be held prisoner with her captor's hand quite literally threatening to choke the life out of her. But she felt quite sure that she would never have imagined that the experience would primarily be tedious. At first, she had been racked with confusion and fear, but in the standoff that came after she had been taken, she felt increasingly humiliated, insulted. What kind of fool was she to let herself be taken prisoner and used against her own spire by its enemies, and right in front of Benedict, the Auroran warrior-born marine Siriaco? Held her back firmly against his chest, with one arm wrapped around her stomach, and the other hand lightly holding her throat. Initially, she had thought that she might be able to take him off guard and throw him, but at the slightest shift in her weight, Siriaco's hand would close and shut off her air entirely. After several minutes of tense silence, Bridget turned her head enough to see part of Siriaco's face. Just so you know, she said. You're holding me uncomfortably. 
My back is going to start cramping. When it does, I'm not going to be able to hold still. I'm sure you'll be missed, the Auroran replied calmly, giving a little twitch of the fingers around her throat by way of demonstration. Benedict, his eyes locked on the Auroran, let out a low and utterly inhuman-sounding growl. Careful, boy, Siriaco drawled. If you let it out right now, it's not going to end well for any of us. I'm quite serious, Bridget said. Sir, if my back starts to cramp and I begin to spasm and you kill me for it, my friend will most certainly come for you and matters will devolve. From where she still lay on the floor, aiming her gauntlet at the explosives, Gwen said, one might even say explosively devolve. The Auroran grinned at that. Damnation, but I admire women with spirit. But it's been my experience that prisoners who do anything at all are prisoners who are trying either to escape or to kill me. So you don't get an inch. There's another option you haven't considered, Bridget said. And what is that? Take me. Leave your explosives here and depart. Nonsense, Gwen said. Miss Lancaster, Bridget said in a very cross and rather loud tone, would you please stop helping me? Your only solution necessitates, as its linchpin, the deaths of everyone standing in this tunnel. Why not let me take a pass at finding something a bit less sweeping? Siriaco let out an almost musical chuckle Bridget could feel along her spine. I'm listening. Why would I do such a thing? Because it salvages as much as possible from the situation, Bridget said. I need those explosives. You don't get them, Bridget said in a frank tone. In very nearly every scenario that might play out here, you do not retain the explosives. If our reinforcements arrive, you do not get them. If your people arrive and someone doesn't make a perfect shot before my associate knows it's happening, you do not get them. If no one shows up, you do not get them. If my back cramps up and the chain of events progresses as we expect, you do not get them. The Auroran made a rumbling sound. But consider, if you retreat and take me with you, you have the means to prevent my friends from opening fire, the threat to my life. Nor will you be pursued. If you leave the explosives, they will have little choice but to remain with them to prevent you from using them for their intended purpose. If not the explosives, then what profit do I have from this proposal? You get to survive the hour, Bridget said. Your men survive. You get to escape into the tunnels and fight another day. Siriaga grunted his acceptance of the statement. And what do you get? You don't get to blow up whatever you'd planned to blow up, she replied. And both of my friends survive the hour. He growled. And what do you get, miss? Raped and murdered, likely, she said. But as that decision will hardly be up to me, there seems no point in dwelling on it. I'm a bit new to this sort of thing, Sergeant. But it seems to me that standing around hoping for some soldier who might or might not come along to be perfectly stealthy and to make a perfect shot at the correct target on his first attempt seems to be a course of action with a very low probability of success. 
especially when any failure or incorrect decision on his part means that everyone dies in an explosion. By contrast, my proposal guarantees your immediate survival, and gives you hope to survive the future, to possibly negotiate better terms for a surrender, or even to escape Albion altogether. One of the other soldiers evidently spoke Albion because he looked from Bridget to Syriaco, and said something in a tense voice. The warrior-born marine snapped out a brief, savage-sounding answer. By all means, discuss it," Bridget said. "The more we talk, the more likely we will find some sane way to end this. And Bridget thought it would give Raoul more time to find another solution. She only hoped he had better sense than to stage some sort of one-cat surprise assault. Sergeant, surely you must see that." Sriaco's fingers tightened again, shutting off her air. And he said in a mildly irritated voice, "You people can't get enough of the sound of your own voices, can you? I'm thinking." She doesn't say it well," Benedict said in a low, hard voice. "But she's right. Whatever your mission was, you've little chance of accomplishing it as planned now. And the longer you stay here, the more likely it is that something bad happens to all of us. Something tells me." The Auroran said, "That you aren't going to just stand there while I walk away with the girl. That will depend," Benedict said. "On what? What happens to her?" He said, "Treat her with respect and release her unharmed, and we're all just soldiers. And if I don't," Benedict was quiet for a moment before he said, "It's personal." Bridget, who had not been able to breathe during this exchange, slapped the fingers of one arm against Syriaco's steely forearms, as if tapping out one of Benedict's holds in training. Hmm. Syriaco said. Then, ah, yes. His fingers loosened, and Bridget sucked in a lungful of air. The motion shifted her weight by some minuscule degree, and so quietly. That she almost thought she'd imagined it for a moment, Syriaco made a sound of pain. Bridget froze, considering that. That was right. The Auroran had taken a gauntlet blast to the shoulder. She could still smell the stench of charred cloth and what might have been burnt flesh. The wound had been significant enough that he had feared to challenge Benedict to battle. In fact, now that she considered it. The hold Syriaco had on her was hardly an efficient one. A few weeks of training did not make her an expert, but she knew that he could have been holding her locked quite easily with his right arm, freeing his gauntlet hand. Instead, his left arm was wrapped around her midsection and not particularly tightly. Why not? Obviously, because he could not. He might not be able to lift his arm at all. That would explain why he wouldn't allow her to shift her position. His left arm might be a good deal less strong than he would like her to believe, and she was tall enough that if she altered her posture, the fingers on her throat would not have a surer grip. Granted, the fingers of his right hand held her windpipe like a vice, and were perfectly sufficient to the task of killing her, or to dissuade her from testing the strength of his left arm. There might be a way for her to escape. She realized. 
but it all depended upon the Aurorans' resolve. How willing was he to kill her? Albion, Syriaco said, do not for one second think that I'm afraid of your taking things personally. If you're not afraid, let go of the girl, Benedict said. I'm fearless, Syriaco replied in a dry tone, not stupid. And as smart as it would be to accept her offer, it isn't going to happen. Bridget turned her head toward him again. Why ever not? Because I am a loyal son of Aurora, Syriaco said, and I have a duty. I'll fulfill it or die trying. After a moment, he said in a softer tone, And miss, however this turns out, if we'd taken you, I'd have gutted any man who tried to lay a hand on you. If it had to be death, I'd have given it to you clean and quick. To be clear, you're not a rapist, Bridget said, but you are a murderer. You seem to have it surrounded, miss, he said. He sounded entirely sincere, which made any attempt to exploit his weakened arm something best left to a moment of desperation. Though her back began to twinge again, and she feared that moment was rapidly drawing nigh. The two groups fell into a tight, withering silence for a moment more, and then the rather eerie voice of a cat echoed through the dim hallway. Little mouse, Raoul said, help comes. Syriaco tensed at once at the sound, looking up and down the hallway as though seeking its source, but even the remarkable eyes of the warrior-born were not able to see into blackness from a small and relatively well-lit area. "'This may be your last opportunity, Sergeant,' Bridget said. "'Walk away.' Syriaco made a growling sound in his chest. "'Cats are a vicious little plague, but they don't frighten me either, miss.' Several of the other Aurorans spoke in their home spire's tongue, a quick, terse exchange, which was ended when Syriaco growled the same phrase he'd used a moment before. Then his eyes widened and he snapped out another order. The Aurorans looked at one another, but lowered their gauntlets and started backing out the way they'd come. "'Stay with me, miss,' Syriaco said in a low tone. "'Albion, you step over by your little friend on the ground.' We're going. Benedict narrowed his eyes, but then his nostrils flared, and he nodded as if in understanding. He took several steps until he stood over Gwen. Remember, he said to Bridget, our first lesson. Bridget blinked at him. The first thing to learn, as he had often repeated while instructing her, was how to fall. Of course... That hadn't been the first lesson, had it? It seemed rather suicidal, but perhaps Benedict's judgment in these matters was better than her own. So though it made her heart race with sudden, quivering terror, Bridget moved. She braced her feet and clamped her hands down onto Syriaco's right forearm, bending forward with all of her strength, much as she would when tossing a side of beef forward and over her shoulder— and several things happened very quickly. First, something like a collar of fire closed around her neck. Syriaco was no novice of battle. Instead of being thrown over her shoulder, he took a smooth pair of steps circling around her, and as a result he was only lifted a few inches clear of the floor. 
As soon as she felt his weight pivoting away from him and onto her own legs, Bridget pushed her body back as hard as she could and slammed his wounded shoulder between her body and the spirestone wall. He let out a startled snarl of pain and the deathly grip on her throat loosened. A crackling lance of etheric energy burned across Bridget's field of vision and struck one of the Auroran marines square in the head. He went down in a heap of motionless limbs. The first bolt was followed by three more, half a heartbeat later, and though two failed to score, the other struck an Auroran in the thigh, sweeping his leg from beneath him and slamming him to the floor. Bridget had no chance at all in pitting her muscles against the warrior-born's stony strength. Both of her arms did not serve to overpower his single limb. So she kept slamming her body against his wounded shoulder, seized upon a single one of his fingers with both of her capable hands, and bent it back savagely. Syriaco screamed a furious word, and then Bridget found herself flying forward through the air until she struck the far wall of the tunnel. It was a rather startling experience, particularly the sudden stop. Her arms and legs stopped working properly, and as she bounced off the wall she felt herself falling and she couldn't breathe. She wound up on the floor, and then the two crystals the Aurorans had been using for light winked out, leaving nothing but blackness broken only by dazzling flashes of etheric light. The floor seemed quite cool and comfortable for some reason, and she was content to remain there. The flashes of light ceased their bickering, and a moment later she felt Raoul's nose gently nuzzling her cheek. She made the effort to move her hand and assure him that she was all right. Then she heard voices and light sprang up in the tunnel. A great many men with weather-worn clothing, weather-worn faces, and odd, heavy-looking tunics had appeared. They were all armed with gauntlet and blade, but for four who carried long guns, their copper coils gleaming, their overheated barrels giving off trickles of steam as they boiled away the water from their little storage tanks. One man appeared from their midst, and Bridget picked him out immediately as their leader. He was of only average height. His suit was rather mismatched and patchy, and one of his arms was held in a sling. But there were the marks of gauntlet fire on the suit, and he was sprinkled with blood that did not appear to be his own. The man moved with an absolute surety of purpose, with unbroken focus, and the men around him deferred to him with an obvious, silent respect that could not have been expressed in words. He took a quick look around and said, Excellent shot, Mr. Stern. A slender little man, holding a long gun, touched a finger to an imaginary cap. Baker made the good shot, sir. Legged him. We've got a prisoner to talk to. Good work. See to him. Aye, Captain. The man turned and approached Bridget. Raoul immediately stepped up onto Bridget's chest, sat and regarded the man with narrow eyes and a low growl. Excuse me, he said to the cat, but you did wish me to help her, did you not? The cat's eyes narrowed further. The man extended his hand to Bridget and asked, Can you rise, miss? Bridget made a hushing sound of reassurance to Raoul, took the man's hand, and slowly rose, gathering Raoul into her other arm as she did. Yes, thank you, sir. It hurt to speak. The man inclined his head politely. My name is Grimm. 
He looked over to where a tall and very handsome younger man was helping Gwen to her feet. Mr. Creedy, detail a squad to secure those explosives, if you please. Hi, Captain, said the tall young man. Bridget suddenly felt a bit dizzy, and then Benedict was at her side, one of his hands beneath her elbow, offering her gentle support. The Aurorans, she asked him. What happened? They took your advice, minus the part where they abducted you, for which I cannot help but feel grateful, Benedict replied. I was going to lift him and throw him like you told me, Bridget said, but it didn't work. I'm sorry. Benedict blinked. Is that what you thought? No, no. I caught the scent of Captain Grimm and his men coming once Raoul returned and thought a crossfire was imminent. I meant for you to fall. Bridget blinked. Oh, it's... In retrospect, it's rather obvious when you phrase it in that manner. Benedict lifted her chin gently with a couple of fingers and peered at her neck. I must admit, though, he certainly didn't see it coming. He poked at her throat gently with his fingertips. Ow, Bridget said calmly. A physician should look at this, Benedict said, his voice worried. Gwen had gone to Barnabas's side and looked up from the wounded man. Him too. He seems to be unconscious. She rose and went to Grimm. Captain, can you spare any men to help us with our wounded? Of course, miss, Grimm said, inclining his head in a little bow. I'll have them taken to where my own men are being treated at House Lancaster, if that suits you. Gwen arched her eyebrows rather sharply and said, I suppose that will do. Mr. Creedy, Grimm said, You will take a squad to get the civilians to safety and the prisoner and confiscated material to a secure location. I will continue the sweep and meet with you back at House Lancaster. Mr. Stern, take point again, if you please. And as quickly as they had come, most of the aeronauts and their captain departed. The tall young man saw to the loading of the explosives back onto their stretcher and men to carry them, and made sure the captured Auroran wasn't going to bleed to death or bolt. Then he turned to them and said, Ladies, sir, if you could come with me, please. We shouldn't linger here until we're sure it's clear of more of the enemy. Bridget still felt somewhat confused. Benedict, she said. I'm sorry, but I don't understand. Is the fighting over? His expression darkened. No, he said quietly. I think it's just getting started. Chapter 17 Spire Albion, Havel Morning, House of Master Ferris Folly sat up in her bed in the little loft over the master etherealist's library, covered in a cold sweat, her heart racing, her breath heavy. She sat there dully for a mute moment. Terror left a sour miasma in the air around a person, not something one could smell, even if she had the sharpest of noses, but she always felt that she could detect its stench for some reason. Teacher, Folly called. It would seem I've had the dream again. Did you catch it? The master called back. If you didn't, I should say that the dream has had you. 
Folly sat up and looked around her little loft. Her stacks and stacks of jars, full of little used illumination crystals. She would never understand the phrase "burnt out" in reference to the crystals that no longer responded to an average human will. Gave the entire place a soft aqua glow. She turned to check her dream catcher. Between two stacks of glass jars was a funnel web woven of individual strands of ether silk. Folly checked the web, and the small etheric cage at the narrow end of the funnel, built of a neutral crystal in a frame of copper wire. Really, Folly thought, it was quite a good thing that she was an etherealist's apprentice, because she would have made a remedial spider. The funnel web had dozens of sagging strands, and several of them had even parted completely, their loose ends floating away from her fingers as she brushed them near. It was lopsided; the curl of the spiral didn't close in a steady curve, and there were several obvious lumps in the design, where her knots and glue work had been clumsy. But. She thought that didn't mean that it was necessarily a bad web, especially for someone who had never had the same opportunity to learn afforded every spider. And the little crystal in the etheric cage was glowing with sullen, flame-coloured light. I am a successful self-taught spider, I think, she called down to Ferris. I always hoped you would grow into one, Ferris said. His chair scraped on the floor, and footsteps approached the ladder to the loft. The ladder groaned as he came up it and eyed the trap. By the builders, Folly! What a marvelous little gnat catcher you are! Folly smiled and bounced a little as he spoke, reaching for the cage. The small assembly promptly retreated from her outreached hand, and the crystal seemed to strain against its copper cage, buzzing and vibrating against the metal like an angry wasp. She blinked several times and took her fingers away from it, reminded of the unpleasant relationships enjoyed between some spiders and some wasps. Ah, Ferris cackled. Ah, you did it. I thought as much. I just told you that I did it, teacher," Folly pointed out. "Not you," Ferris said in a testy voice. "I was speaking of the enemy." Folly tilted her head and regarded the little copper framework. "There's an enemy." "God in heaven, yes," Ferris said. "I'm sure I told you. I distinctly remember doing so. Perhaps that was tomorrow, teacher. It may be." Ferris said, "But yes, quite. Enemy, capital E. If one is to have an enemy, one might as well have a respectable one. And this dream, it is an enemy sending. I rather suspect it was more of a folly taking." Ferris replied, "Give it to us. Let's have a look." Folly considered the problem for a moment, then carefully reached her hand down on the far side of the copper cage. She moved her hand toward it, and it began to buzz again, moving away. She herded it over to the edge of the loft, and Ferris caught it handily as it leapt away from her. Excellent, he said, his tone pleased. The old etherealist leaned down to peer at the crystal. Let's see what's been on your mind, eh? 
His eyes glittered brightly. And then the old man fell silent, staring. Folly rose from her bed, took off her nightclothes, and put on clothes that felt right for today. A red stocking. A grey stocking with blue speckles. A plain dress of yellow cotton, and a dozen brightly coloured scarves that she tied in a row down each arm, using her teeth to finish the knots. Then she strapped on a pistolier's gun belt, minus the unreliable weaponry, and filled the holsters with small mesh sacks of dim little etheric crystals instead. They were not used to being carried that way, but it would be a good learning experience for them, she thought. She completed the outfit with several more scarves that went around her neck and wound a long knitted scarf about her head. It was hot, but she thought it suited today, and she felt ever so much better once she had finished dressing. She had time to dress and to sit down and begin telling all of her little crystals good morning when the master let out a long, slow breath and lowered the etheric cage with its sullen crystal heart. He looked awful, his face was grey, his eyes sunken. Teacher? Folly said. She moved to the edge of the loft and crouched beside him, reaching out to touch his head, which was fever hot. What did you see? Ascending indeed, he said. This was no dream. No Etheric echo, my girl. I believe it was a message. Folly blinked. A message? Sent by ether? Is such a thing possible? A moment ago, I would have said that it was not, he replied, his eyes still far away. But it would seem that someone has worked out how it might be done, though just as clearly they had no idea that they might be overheard. You think I've been eavesdropping in my dreams? I trust that is not an assessment of my character, teacher. No, he said slowly. He often spoke so when his mind was fully focused on some task. No, child, your nightmares of late. You've been hearing their whispers for, what, two weeks now? About that, yes, Folly said. But, teacher... How is it that I heard them and you did not? That is an excellent question. I will give it consideration. He took a slow breath and then said, By the way, we're at war as of an hour ago. I didn't think it was worth waking you for. I may have missed this dream message otherwise, Folly said seriously. I suppose it would be disorienting to have an enemy but no war. Let us not make assumptions. The master said. Then I will make a question or two, if you do not mind. Rarely. You say this was a message. To whom was it sent? Points for grammar, folly. Hmm. Ferris rubbed at his chin. Another etherealist, almost certainly. Are there any others in Habble Morning? Ferris shook his head. Not for a great many years now. The nearest is Bernard Fezig, down in Habble Solace, I think, but he's utterly mad, you know. Folly carefully straightened one of the hundreds of jars of exhausted crystals that had inexplicably become slightly misaligned. 
poor man. It happens to the best of us, Ferris said, and slid back down the ladder, bouncing the trapped etheric message in one palm. He had, Folly noted, forgotten to put on his clothing that morning, except for a pair of thick black socks and his sleeping cap. I have an intuition. Is it a fine one? I think we shall need that grim captain. Captain Grim, don't correct my grammar. It's an aesthetic choice of word order. But yes, that fellow whose arm had been infected. What shall we need him for? He seemed capable and polite. And it's so rare to meet someone who is actually polite for the proper reasons. He paused. Is it cold in here? You need to put on your warm robe, teacher. Folly suggested diffidently. Ah, yes. I knew I'd forgotten something, child. Thank you. The master picked up a robe. There were several he'd absently discarded over the past few weeks, strewn about the library floor, and put it on inside out. But he was very busy thinking. Folly could tell from the set of his jaw. He was doing very well just to get his arms into the proper holes when he was in that state of mind. Folly finished touching each jar of little crystals and then carefully climbed down the ladder. It wasn't until she was halfway across the room that she heard a sharp, heavy crashing sound from the front hall. Ferris's head whipped around toward the sound. His eyes glittering fever bright, flicking left and right at random distances. He lifted one hand to point, and his voice was a silken snarl. Folly, by that wall, down low. Folly hurried to obey. When the master scanned that many futures that rapidly and spoke in that voice, one really had to be quite stupid to do otherwise. She dropped into a low crouch. Kept her feet beneath her in case she needed to run, and reached into her holsters to give her little crystals reassuring pats in case they had become frightened. Ferris nodded and absently held out his right arm. The crystal on the head of his cane let out a soft chime as he sent out a current of etheric energy from his fingertips, and then the implement sailed gracefully across the room and into his hand. Just as it did, the doors to the library crashed open, and three men wearing uniforms that closely approximated those of the Spyrarch's guard entered the room. They carried all manner of soldierly equipment, including gauntlets and blades. One held an axe that he had just used on Ferris's fine wooden door, and his companions both advanced with their gauntlets raised and glowing. They discharged the gauntlets within a second of one another. And brilliant energy flooded the room. A torrent of destruction meant to rip the old man facing them to shreds. Folly winced and experienced something she felt quite sure was pity for the poor fools. Ferris simply lifted his cane, and the crystal at its tip drew in the deadly bursts of etheric energy as a sponge soaked up water. He held the cane forth. And the crystal continued to drink down etheric force from the weapons crystals of the enemy gauntlets, yanking the power from them in one long continuous burst. Gauntlets were not designed for that kind of steady discharge of energy, and they began to shed heat almost instantly. The copper wires that served as a cage for the weapons crystal, encasing the user's forearm, smouldered, 
heated and began to glow. The two men let out pitiable screams and fell, scrambling with leather straps and buckles that scored the fingertips of their right hands even as they tried to unfasten them. The third man looked at the other two and showed a spark of intelligence. He stripped his gauntlet rapidly, dumping it on the floor. But then he ruined his brain's hard work by drawing his copper-clad sword and advancing on the master, holding his axe in one hand, the sword in the other. Ferris gave his head an impatient shake, lifted his cane, and sent a single flickering dart of searing light across the room. It flew in a sinuous, erratic pattern, winding around a column and beneath a table, and slithering through several stacks of books before hammering into the broadside of the axe's heavy copper-covered steel head. The bolt melted a hole three inches across through the steel, sending out an enormous burst of sparks and flares of flickering fire. And the man yelped and dropped the weapon, turning to stare with wide eyes at the master. Ferris said calmly, "You are trespassing, sir. Be gone while you still can." With each word, a brilliant, tiny wisp of light, like the first, flickered out of the crystal and began orbiting around the master's white-fringed head in a beautiful, deadly crown of etheric fire. The man licked his lips and then looked behind him. His wounded companions had managed to rip the gauntlets from their arms and had drawn their short, straight swords. He turned back to the master and bared his teeth. Don't. Ferris said, his voice softening. "Please don't. There's too much pain on that path." The two men on the floor gained their feet. The third man took a deep breath. "Folly," the master said. "Close your eyes." Folly did at once. There was a guttural shout from the intruder. There was a volley of hissing sounds and a chorus of shrieks. Then screams, and silence, and the smell of burning meat. Folly swallowed and rose slowly. She cracked open one eye and then the other. The master hadn't said she had to keep her eyes closed indefinitely. He was unharmed. He stood in the same spot, his head bowed, the crystal of his cane now dark again. Resting against the floor as though the implement had grown too heavy for him to hold, Folly did not look at what was left of the intruders in their disguises. It was disturbing, and she was at the limits of her skills as a spider already. She needed no further bad dreams. She carefully did not let herself cry, though she wanted to very much. It pained the master to see her cry. And she would rather be burned to death herself than to give him pain. He'd had so much of it already. She reached his side and touched his arm gently. "Are you all right, teacher?" She watched his hollow, weary eyes stare for long heartbeats at the scorched knot men, who now littered their library floor. Before he answered, "What have we learned today, Folly?" That one. Ought not to use etheric weapons against an etherealist. While、wow, what you say is very true, I was hoping for a different context. Ah,、uh, Folly said, 
She considered for a moment and said, "Someone sent these men here to kill you specifically." Good. Continue. They had to know where you lived. Therefore, someone who knows you or knows of you is responsible for them. Correct, the master said. He lowered his voice to a preoccupied mumble. I confess I did not catch the faintest glimpse of this future. Folly frowned suddenly, wrinkling her nose. She knew she could not actually smell it, but her mind told her that she could feel the stench filling her nose. Fear hovered around Ephrenus Ephrenus Ferus, master etherealist. You know, Folly said. You know who sent them. I think so. Who is it, teacher? An old friend. A friend. Who has been dead for a decade? Folly considered the words for a moment before saying carefully, "That does not seem probable." Oh, I. The master said, "It's utterly mad, but there it is." Teacher, I don't understand. There's no rush," he said in a very soft voice. "You will soon enough." Folly bowed her head a little. Teacher, yes. What shall we do now? Fetch my dueling suit, if you would," he said. "Also, three feathers and a tack hammer. Ready my collection. Oh, and pack a bag. A bag, a bag with food, clothing, books, that sort of thing. We'll be leaving the Habble. Folly blinked several times. What? We will. To go where? First, we'll go to see the Spyrarch and get him to give us the Grim Captain," he said. "And then, something dark and hard rose for a moment in the master's eyes, and the look made Folly shiver. And then, he said quietly, "We shall visit an old friend." Chapter Eighteen, Spire Albion, Habble Morning. Spyrarch's manner. Twelve hours after the fighting ended, Grim wanted nothing so much as a bath and his bunk on Predator. He ached for them, in fact. When he was this weary, his sleep would be too deep to be disturbed by dreams of the men he had lost in the fighting. He could put off for at least one night, being haunted by the faces and limbs that had been crushed. Scorched and mangled by the first battle of what could be a long and costly war. Instead of resting, though, he and Creedy followed a slim, aging, gentlemanly sort of fellow named Vincent from the entry hall of the Spyrarch's Manor down a hallway with polished wooden walls and floors, decorated with some of the finest art in Spire Albion. According to the engraved brass plaques beside each piece. There were paintings from the giddy days of the New Dawn, two centuries before, sculptures from the Olympian master MacDaggett, and other pieces, some of them attributed to relatively unknown artists currently working in Spire Albion. They were exquisite, Grim thought. He approved of the taste of whoever had decorated the hall. They were shown into what appeared to be a study, also furnished entirely in wood. And lit with candles rather than lumen crystals. 
There was a large desk with five chairs set neatly in front of it. Vincent nodded to the chairs and said, "If you will wait here, sirs, he will be with you shortly." Of course, Grim said. He and Creedy sat while Vincent departed. It was perhaps a matter of two or three minutes before a door in the rear wall of the study opened and the spyarch came into the room. He was a man of no impressive height and what might charitably be called a scholarly build, but Lord Albion's eyes were sharp and hard, and he moved with a brisk, no-nonsense sort of energy as he approached them. Grim and Creedy rose at once to meet him. Albion came around the desk to offer his hand to Grim. Captain Grim, he said, "I hear extraordinary things about your service to the spire in the face of the surprise attack." Sire, Grim said, bowing his head slightly. "This is my exo, Byron Creedy." Creedy mumbled something Grim couldn't understand and shook the spyarch's hand with a kind of numb shock on his features. Well, Albion said, I know how tired you both must be, so sit, sit, and I'll be as succinct as possible. They sat, while Lord Albion rested a hip against the edge of his desk, looking down at them with calm assessment clear in his eyes. I'm afraid you made a serious mistake today, sire. Grim said, "You proved yourself extraordinarily capable, Captain." Albion said, "I can hardly let something like that go unremarked." I don't understand, sir," Grim said, frowning. "Captain, your clarity of thought in the face of unexpected disaster is a rare quality. It's a poor reward for such heroism, but I'm afraid that I must insist upon continuing to use you for the good of my spire." Grim was quiet for a moment. He wanted to sink into a tub of hot water and soak away the violence and fear of hours of skirmishes with the Roran Marines. He wanted to sleep. Hadn't his men given enough? Sire, he said in a measured, quiet voice, "I have already offered such skills as I have in the service of Albion. The spire made it quite clear to me that I was not needed." The perilous incident, yes," Albion said. I'm familiar with what happened, or perhaps I should say, I'm familiar with both the history of what happened and with what actually transpired. You didn't have to accept your discharge quietly, Captain, but you did. It was what was best for the fleet, sire," Grim said. "An arguable point, I think," Lord Albion said. "But your sacrifice was, without doubt, a good thing for the fleet, if not for you personally." I didn't join the fleet to serve myself, sire," Grim said. "The best never do." Albion gave Grim a faint smile. "But your previous difficulties are irrelevant, Captain. The Spire Council is, as we speak, voting to declare a state of war with Spire Aurora. The Spire needs every capable commander it can get." "I hardly think the fleet will welcome me back in any capacity, sire." Grim said in a voice that came out diamond hard, though he hadn't meant it to. No one wants to work with a proven coward. I do, Albion said. I'm not talking about returning you to the fleet, Captain. I want you for myself. Grim blinked. Sire, what I did today was what any competent professional commander would have done in my place. 
It does not qualify me for a position in your personal service. Perhaps, Captain, judgments about what qualifies a given individual for the Spyrarch's service might best be made by the Spyrarch. Lord Albion suggested, his eyes sparkling with quiet humour. Grim shifted in his chair uncomfortably. Sire, I'm no diplomat, so with your leave I'll just say it and beg your pardon ahead of time if this comes out sounding unpleasant or disrespectful. Creedy's eyes widened slightly, but he stayed as silent as a stone. Albion arched a brow. Oh, by all means, Captain, speak. I don't like it here. Spending more than a few weeks in this dreary old mausoleum makes me feel as if I can't breathe. I don't understand how any of you can stand it day in and day out. I'm an aeronaut, sire, living on a deck since I ever could remember. I belong in the sky. I belong on my ship. It's the only place that feels right. Thank you for your offer. But I don't want another job. I understand, Lord Albion said. But you proceed from a false assumption. I don't want your service as an adviser on my staff, Captain. He folded his arms and narrowed his eyes slightly. I want an airship helmed by a captain I can trust. Grim and Creedy traded a surprised look. Sire, I have need of a ship to serve as transport and support for a mission for my guard, Albion said. I've decided that I want Predator, along with her captain and crew, to fill that position. What if they don't want to do it? Grim asked. Creedy made a choking sound. I can be a very persuasive person. The Spyrarch said. You have no legal authority to do that, Grim said. You're right, but I mean to see it done all the same. Perhaps it was the fatigue, but Grim found himself growing genuinely angry. Sire, he said stiffly, Predator is not for sale. I am not for sale. That brought a wolfish flash of a smile from Lord Albion. He pointed a forefinger at Grim and leaned forward slightly. Exactly, Captain. Exactly. You've served Albion as a privateer for eighteen months now. This would be no different. That's very generous, sire, Grim said cautiously. Perhaps, though. You have not been made aware of Predator's state of repair. She's in need of refitting. It may be some time before she's skyworthy. Decades, perhaps. Grim thought. She's running on nothing but her trim crystals. I'm not an aeronaut, Captain. The Spyrarch said apologetically, or an aeronautical engineer. What does that mean precisely? She can only go up and down. Creedy said in a helpful tone, and she has to do it very slowly. Ah, Albion said, brightening. As it happens, that is precisely what I need your ship to do. Grim narrowed his eyes. Meaning what exactly? I'm sending a team to landing, the Spyrarch replied. It needs to be done quickly before dawn, if possible. I'm sure that your ship is adequate to. Grim rose, his heart pounding harder and louder as his anger grew. Sire, he all but snapped.
With all due respect, there is ample transport to landing. Send them down in a barge or a windlass. Lord Albion's head drew back slightly. His eyebrows lifted in surprise. Captain, I am not sure why the idea upsets you so. My ship isn't a barge, and she's bloody well no windlass. Grim snarled. And while I'm alive, she never will be. Not for the fleet. Not for the bloody Spire Council. And not for you, sire. Thank you for the offer, but I cannot help you. If you will excuse me, please, I must see to the needs of my wounded and dead. Creedy. Grim turned to leave, and Creedy lurched up out of his chair to follow. His face pale. Albion sighed audibly. Just as Grim reached for the door, he said. That's a shame, Captain. I wish we could have worked something out. Do you perhaps know someone in the market for new lift and trim crystals for a ship predator size? It seems I'll have some spares on my hands. Grim froze with his hand on the doorknob. He tilted his head and then turned slowly, inexorably, back toward the spyrock. Albion gave him a feline smile. Do this work for me, and you'll be making the trip down to landing with top-of-the-line replacements from the Lancaster Vattery. I'm told your engineer can have them installed and calibrated within a week. You would do that, Grim breathed. In exchange for what? This job, Albion said. One job. Take my team to landing. Provide whatever support you can for them while they are there. Bring them back here when they're done. One job, Grim said. Frankly, Captain, my hope is that you will see the advantages of my offer and be inclined to work with me on an ongoing basis. But if you want nothing to do with me after this, so be it. Keep the crystals and go your way. If I did, you'd be throwing away a fortune. Lord Albion shrugged. I prefer to think of it as an investment in the future, Captain Grimm. What say you? Grimm exhaled through his nose. The anger was still burning, but smouldering alongside it was hope. Unattainably valuable replacements for predators' damaged crystals, waiting to be installed. His ship rising above the mists again to sail in the blinding light of the sun. His crew's livelihood secured. And yet, predator would be bound to no one but her captain. Freedom. Grim realized with a sudden shock of purely mental impact that nothing on earth could convince him to turn down such a deal. I say, Grim began slowly. Then he sighed. I say that you are a manipulative son of a bitch, sire. Each and every day of the week, Lord Albion replied, nodding. He met Grimm's eyes. And I don't turn my back on my people, Captain. He hadn't said the way that fleet does, but it hung unspoken in the silence after his words. Albion lifted his hands, palms out, as if signalling the end of a bout, and regarded Grimm with a frank gaze. It's as simple as this. I need you, Captain. The spire needs you. Grim clenched his right hand into a fist for a moment, and then relaxed. Mister Greedy, Captain, return to Predator.
Inform engineer journeyman that he has work to do. Make ready to sail to landing. Chapter Nineteen. Spire Albion, Habble Landing. Major Ronaldo Espira, Auroran Marine, walked calmly through the cramped, crowded streets of Habble Landing, dressed in local clothing, carrying a crate marked with the logo of one of Landing's water farms. Though there was much excitement and the buzz of talk and rumor in the Habble, evidently the authorities of Habble Landing had not yet realized the extent of his battalion's incursion into Spire Albion, and no checkpoints or patrols had yet been established. He could still move about in relative freedom. The initial assault had come off with as much success as any combat mission could reasonably expect. He had yet to hear from the assault team's striking Habble morning, but his Marines' months of training in the precision maneuver of parasails had paid off handsomely. Already, better than four hundred of the five hundred men under his command had made contact and begun to concentrate, and there had been reports of fewer than twenty men who had failed to target one of the spire's many ventilation ports properly. It looked as though, barring bad luck, he would have more than enough men to attain his objectives, and if he was able to see the most daring raid in the history of any spire to completion, his fortunes in Spire Aurora would be secured for life. Espira wove his way through the hectic streets of Landing. Most habbles in every spire had modified the original spaces as designed by the builders, adding in fortifications, additional housing, more batteries, whatever was needed. But the inhabitants of Landing had done so to an extent that was little better than madness. They had actually divided their habbles' vertical space in half. In effect, creating two duplicate levels of the same habble, one stacked atop the other, it meant that the normally spacious ceilings of a basic habble had been turned into close, looming things, and they made Espira feel as if the ceiling was slowly coming down on top of him. If that madness was not enough, they had then filled both of those spaces to overflowing with more masonry and wooden construction than Espira had ever seen. The street had turned from broad walkways into cramped, narrow affairs, where no more than three men could have walked beside one another. Houses and businesses were pressed together, wall to wall, and the doorways were, by necessity, narrow ones. One literally could not walk twenty steps on the streets of Landing without brushing body to body with a fellow pedestrian. This wasn't a hubble; it was a warren for rats. And yet. There were expensive wooden doors on nearly every home. In places, entire homes had been constructed of wood, and they did not look particularly lavish either, being built with a sturdy, bland functionality that suggested the residences of craftsmen and tradesmen. Yet the amount of wood that went into building a single such residence would have sold for enough money to keep a man in food and drink for a lifetime. Rats, indeed. Greedy, gnawing, thieving rats, let them flaunt their wealth. Things would change. He stalked through the narrow streets and wound his way down an alley between two buildings to an old, rotting wooden door. He paused to knock at it. Three measured strokes followed by two quick ones, and it opened at once. Her Batman, Sark. 
stood on the other side of it. The fellow reminded Espira of a hunting spider. He was warrior-born, tall, gaunt, with long, slender limbs and hands that seemed a little too large for the rest of him. His hair was black and short and covered his face, head, neck, and what showed of his hands in a sparse, spidery fuzz. Sark had the feline eyes of his kind. One of them set at a slight angle to the other, so that Ispira could never be sure precisely where the man was looking. What? Sark asked. His tone suggested that he would rather have killed Ispira than spoken to him. Espira had not become the youngest major in the history of the Auroran Marine Corps by allowing himself to be intimidated by hard men. Is she here? Espira asked Sark. Why? There's a problem. Sark looked at, or slightly past, Espira, and made a growling sound. Espira lifted his chin and narrowed his eyes. This is above your pay grade, Sark. Unless you'd prefer to explain to her why you turned away the man who came with a warning of a threat to her plan. Sark didn't move for a moment. As still as any spider who senses that prey is coming near. Then he made a throaty sound and stepped back from the door, leaving it open. Espira walked in boldly and pressed his crate of vegetables into Sark's hands as though the man were a common servant. Sark accepted the burden but his crooked eyes narrowed. Ispira could feel them crawling over his back as he walked past the Batman and down the gloomy hallway to the copper-clad steel door to her chamber. He knocked and waited rather than entering. He was bold, not suicidal. After a moment, a woman's voice said, Come in, Major. Ispira opened the door, which moved easily and soundlessly on its hinges, and entered the room beyond. It was a luxurious chamber, a sitting room by design. Lumen crystals glowed in wall sconces. A large sculpture of Spire Albion resided in one corner of the room, with walking space all around it. Opposite the spire was the graceful shape of a large harp, nearly five feet high. A trickling fountain that had been carved into one wall made quiet, whispering sounds, and the water fell into a small pool filled with floating flowers and small, slithering forms that could only barely be glimpsed beneath its surface. She sat in one of two chairs near the pool, with a serving table placed between them. She was preparing two cups of tea, her motions calm and precise, somehow ritualistic. She wore a dark blue conservative gown, well-fitting, elegant and expensive. She was neither young nor old. Her lean, predatory features were intriguing, and something in the reserve of her movements whispered that a searing sensuality might lurk beneath her perfectly composed surface. It was her eyes that made Espira uneasy. They were the cold, flat grey of the mists that covered the world, and she rarely blinked. Espira made her a proper and polite bow. She remained still for a moment and then nodded to the second chair. Espira approached and sat. 
I pray you will forgive this intrusion, Madame Cavendish, but it was necessary to speak to you. Instead of answering, she passed him a cup of tea on a fine ceramic saucer. He accepted it, of course, with a smile, and bowed his head in thanks. Madame Sycorax Cavendish was a very proper woman. Anyone who behaved toward her in any other fashion, so far as Aspira could tell, did not survive the experience. So he smiled, waited until she had taken up her own cup, and sipped tea together with her. The tea, he noted, was his favourite, Olympian mint, and braced with the perfect amount of honey. Obviously, his visit had not taken her by surprise. She'd had no way to know he was coming, yet, damn it, she'd known anyway. Her flat eyes watched him steadily over the rim of her teacup. He suppressed a shudder. Ronaldo, she said. Her voice was extraordinary, mellow, warm, and soft, the kind of voice that could give rest to weary convalescents or gently lure an aeronaut to his doom on the surface. You know, I enjoy your visits. Is there something I can do for you? She would not be pleased by his news, but there was no helping that. Our command post has been discovered. Her cold eyes narrowed ever so slightly. How? A verminositor stumbled across it in the pursuit of his duties, I'm afraid, Espira said, keeping his tone neutral, simply reporting objective facts. He was captured before he could escape and warn anyone of our presence. Madame Cavendish arched an eyebrow. Captured? Espira pressed his lips together for a second, and then nodded. The Verminositor's Guild of Landing requires them to work in pairs. He claims that he was working alone, that he didn't want to split the contract with one of his fellows. And he volunteered this information? His story didn't change, even after vigorous inquisition. Espira said, but we are too close to our goals to allow some small mischance to undermine us now. We need to be sure. I see, she said. She took another small sip of tea, her expression thoughtful. You would like me to determine his veracity? In essence, Espira said. Better safe than sorry. One might say she murmured, her voice silken, that more foresight would have prevented this unfortunate event from coming to pass. He'd seen men die just after the woman used that particular tone of voice. Espira took a moment to consider his reply carefully. One might also say that the view behind us is always clearer than that before. There are always unforeseen problems, the most vital skill a commander can possess is to recognize them when they appear and adapt to overcome them. Madame Cavendish tilted her head as if considering that statement. I suppose that is a practical mindset for a military man, she allowed. Thus, you have sought out the support of an ally to adapt to this adversity. Indeed, madame he said.
You know how highly I regard your judgment and your skills. The barest hint of a smile haunted one corner of her mouth. Major, I know precisely what you think of me. She resettled her fingers on her teacup and nodded slightly. Very well. I will assist you. You are most gracious, madame, Espira said, rising. Time is of the essence, so... Madame Cavendish's voice came out in two pulses of dulcet music, and the lumened crystals in the walls flickered a sullen scarlet in time with them. Sit down. Espira's heart abruptly leapt into his throat, a thrill of something like distilled panic flashing through his belly. He arrested his momentum and clumsily, quickly, took his seat again. Madame Cavendish's mouth widened into a smile, and she said, as if explaining to a child, We're still having tea. Espira's mouth felt very dry. Of course, madame, I pray you, please excuse my enthusiasm. I should think most successful soldiers bear the same burden, she replied, still smiling. They sipped together for a few more minutes, the silence deafening. Then Madame Cavendish put down her cup and saucer and said, I trust you have arrangements in place to dispose of the remains once I'm finished. I do. Wonderful, she said. She picked up a matching serving plate, artfully arranged with a number of foods appropriate to the setting, and offered it to him with a smile. Do you have a scone, Major? I made them myself. Chapter 20 Spire Albion, Habble Morning, Spyrarch's Manor Gwendolyn Lancaster took the lead as they followed the Spyrarch's Batman deeper into the manor. Barely half a day had passed since the Auroran attack, but a good many things had changed, not the least of which was that she and Bridget, along with the rest of the recruits, had exchanged their training uniforms for the functional livery of the Spyrarch's guard, a simple white shirt with dark blue trousers and jacket, the arms and legs seamed with gold piping. I cannot but think that this seems ill-advised, Bridget said from behind her. A war has begun. Have we therefore somehow mystically acquired the knowledge we need to serve in the guard? I should say it is a practical act, Bridget, Gwen replied. We have, after all, already faced the enemy and triumphed. Bridget sounded doubtful. Triumph seems an awfully evocative word when compared to what actually happened. We met the enemy with deadly force, foiled their designs, and survived, Gwen said. And were rescued by those aeronauts. We were most certainly not rescued, Gwen said. Not by aeronauts, and most specifically not by a man who was cast out of the fleet for cowardice. This should be interesting, Benedict said. What did happen then, dear cuz? Gwen sniffed. My plan embraced the necessity of cooperation to overcome greater numbers. We kept the enemy pinned in place until the proper amount of force could be brought to bear against them. 
We were the anvil to the hammer of our reinforcements. Is she serious? Bridget asked Benedict. Sweet Gwen lives in a very special world, Benedict replied soberly, even kindly. Apparently, it looks only somewhat like the place in which we mere mortals reside. Gwen turned and gave her cousin a narrow-eyed glare. In function, which part of my description is inaccurate? At that, the tall young man frowned. After a moment, he shrugged and said, "The part where you make it sound like that was your plan all along, instead of something you desperately improvised on the spur of the moment." Of course, I improvised it on the spur of the moment," Gwen snapped. "They ambushed us." But Bridget said, "Gwen, the fight started when you discharged your gauntlet into that officer's face. It is hardly my fault if they did not ambush us more effectively than they did," Gwen replied. "And if they had, or if I had not done what I did, none of us would be here right now." She walked a few more steps before saying, "And in any case, we did keep our heads in the midst of a great panic, and we saved poor Barney's life, which is what trained members of the guard are supposed to do, I believe." That is certainly true," Benedict said with a note of approval in his voice. "I should say as well, Cuz, that I've never seen you flinch in the face of adversity, but one can never tell how a given person will react to real combat." You more than lived up to my expectations. Nerves of steel. Thank you, Cuz. Gwen said in a more subdued voice. She didn't turn to look back again. The flash of a gauntlet's discharge kept playing back through her thoughts. The Auroran officer had been taken completely unaware by her sudden blast. There had been a slightly confused expression on his face, as if he hadn't quite heard the last phrase she'd said, and wished her to repeat it. She hadn't realized until much later how young the man had been. In the panic and concern for Barney, in the dust and the blood, she had seen a man in a uniform. But in her mind's eye, she had gradually discerned that he had been little older than she was, and certainly no older than Benedict. A young officer, perhaps one of the elite new crop of the Auroran Marine Corps. Chosen to lead a small team on a straightforward but important support mission, bringing explosives to an assault team at a critical target. In the eyes of the men who planned the attack, it must have seemed an ideal assignment for a bright young prospect, simple, unlikely to lead to direct combat, in which an officer with an agile mind would be far more valuable than one experienced in battle, especially if he had the watchful eye of an experienced non-commissioned officer like Siriaco to guide him. Surely, to some commander, it seemed a fine mission to set a new rising star upon his ascendancy. And Gwendolen had wiped the life from him as swiftly and as surely as the darkness swallowed shooting stars in the night. She wanted to feel remorse over it, to regret what she had done. It seemed to her that it was the sort of thing a decent person should feel. But when she sought for such emotions within herself. She mainly discovered a profound relief that she and her companions were still alive. But she couldn't stop thinking about his face. The blast had left a ruined mass where his face had been. She'd had to shoot him there, of course. There'd been no way of knowing whether he wore ether silk beneath his false uniform. 
She kept seeing his face in that brief, fatal flash, kept putting words into his mouth that had matched his expression. Beg pardon, miss. Could you repeat that, please? What on earth are you doing? Whatever would she have said in reply? Why, making a corpse from someone's beloved child, sir. She hadn't eaten since. Lord Albion's Batman reached the end of the richly appointed hallway and knocked on the door. At a word from beyond the door, he opened it for Gwen and her friends and bowed slightly, waving them in. Gwen swept into a room that was decorated and arranged like a small private study, but which was, in fact, something much more. Oh, certainly the desk and the lights, both lumen crystal and candles, were studious enough, as were the bookshelves, packed thick with many more volumes than they had been designed to hold. It was the subject matter of some of the titles that made it seem otherwise. The histories of Albion, written by Daggett and Dean, were common enough, but the set by Montclair that had been outlawed two centuries before due to the scandalous rumours they had spread about the first spirarch of Albion, were another matter. One rather thick volume was titled Means of Execution Through the Ages and was placed with an elegant balance of nonchalance and availability at the eye level of anyone entering the room. As threats went, it was nearly subliminal, and perhaps it was placed there for that very reason. Behind the desk, in a case, were miniature replicas of each and every airship in the Ethereum fleet of Albion. From the mighty battleship Dreadnought, the size of Rowl, down to the tiniest destroyer, energetic, no larger than Gwen's smallest finger. There were several spaces in the case that had recently been emptied, those spots showed a lack of fine dust where the bases of the models had rested. The ships destroyed in the Auroran attack, perhaps. Opposite the replica's case, behind the desk, was a large section of wall that had been papered with a variety of maps, from large-scale renderings of the known world down to ancient copies of the schematics of Spire Albion. Gwen had seen similar maps in her father's study. They were continuously updated hyper-accurate charts of both geography and etheric currents, the ones used by the fleet and kept in secret storage by ship captains, with orders to destroy them should the ship be in danger of being taken. All in all, Gwen thought, for a monarch who had claimed to be rendered obsolete by the tides of history, Lord Albion seemed to be following the game rather closely. This was no study. In every way that mattered... It was a throne room. Two men occupied the room. One of them was the Spirearch, obviously, seated behind his desk, looking as affable and unthreatening as he had the first time she'd met him. The other was the outcast officer, Captain Grimm. He stood in the corner nearest the miniatures with one arm in a sling and his back against the wall. He was dressed in the very clothing he'd worn when his men had come charging down the tunnel though perhaps his coat was stained with even more blood. Lord Albion rose, smiling as they entered. Ah, the heroes of the truly desperate hour. Had that group managed to carry their explosives to their companions, Albion might have suffered a crippling and permanent loss in the form of our largest crystal battery. 
Please, be seated. Gwen and Bridget stepped into curtsies, which Bridget had not quite gotten the hang of. Benedict swept into a polished bow, and then each of them sat down in one of the five chairs in front of the Spyrarch's desk, with Raoul settling on Bridget's lap. Sire, Benedict said, how may your guard serve you? Well, you could start by leaving out the honorifics, Albion replied, at least while we're in here. I know, I'm the Spyrarch, and you obviously do as well. That seems, to me, sufficient, and it will save time. Benedict said, Ah. But he frowned as he settled back in his chair. In that case, how may your guard serve you? By waiting a moment, Albion said. I'm expecting two more. Not half a minute later, the doorknob to the study rattled. It made a few fitful clicking sounds, and then a man's voice sighed audibly. Blast and curse the confounded things, folly! The door opened, and a rather odd old man entered. He was dressed in a bottle-green suit that looked as if it had fit him properly at some point in the last few decades. It had an odd sheen on it, as if... Gwen arched an eyebrow. God in heaven, the man wasn't wearing a silk-lined suit. He was wearing a suit made entirely of ether silk, with what had to be multiple layers of the expensive material. A girl with the bearing of a servant or apprentice followed him into the room, her eyes on the floor. She was dressed in a collection of cast-off clothing worn in very odd ways, and her eyes were rather unsettling, one a grey-blue, the other a fiery green-gold. She carried a jar of what looked like common expended lumen crystals, which she held as one might an infant. The other hand was stretched out behind her, dragging a pair of small children's wagons in a little train. Both had been filled to overflowing with all manner of apparently random articles. Addison! the old man cried, hurrying in. He peered owlishly at Grimm, standing in the corner. Ah! he said. Exactly who I was looking for. I need this man. Lord Albion lifted an eyebrow. Yes, he said, drawing the word out a bit. That's why he's here. That was deucedly clever of you, Addison, the old man said. However, did you manage it? You told me about him yesterday, Master Ferris, said the Spyrarch in a patient voice, and advised me to secure his services. The old man's head rocked back. Really? Are you quite sure? Entirely. Albion said. There were only so many experienced independent captains with damaged ships willing to take you to landing to choose from. Extraordinary, Ferris muttered. And you're sure he's the proper one? I am. Master Ferris, this is Captain Grimm. Captain, I believe you have met Master Ferris. I have indeed. The outcast replied, Ha! Ferris said, Aha! Captain, I told you, did I not, that you and I would meet today? As I recall it, you did. I thought as much, Ferris said, nodding. Very well, then. Shall we get going? Albion cleared his throat. Master Ferris, if you please, could you possibly share the reason you need the good captain's vessel? 
To find the enemy, of course, Ferris said. There's mischief afoot. Ah, Albion said. He did not say it with much enthusiasm. Is there anything more specific you can tell me? Ferris considered that. Doorknobs are extremely complex technology. Albion nearly failed to suppress a sigh. Do you think landing is in danger? Of course it is. We all are. It's not impossible, Grimm said quietly. Except for morning, Habel Landing is the largest centre of commerce in the Spire. If the Aurorans have more explosives and use them on the docks, it would cause chaos. I'm not an economist, but a very significant portion of Spire Albion's interhabitable trade passes through landing at some point. Seventy-five percent, the Spirearch provided. God in heaven, Grimm said. Is it that much? Every habel charges for passage through its portion of the transport spirals. Albion said, nodding. Transport by barge or windlass is cheaper, faster, and safer. By bypassing some or all of the tariffs, a merchant can as much as double his profit margin. And if the shipyard at Landing were destroyed, how much harm would it do the spire? Incalculable, Albion said. Eventually, the shipyard at Landing would be rebuilt, but the economy would be crippled or paralyzed in the short term, and our capacity to support a war effort would certainly be greatly reduced until it was functioning again. Excuse me, sir. Uh, that is, excuse me, Gwen said, trying to sound properly respectful while utterly ignoring the propriety of the Spyrarch's title. It felt clumsy and wrong, like trying to sing with a mouthful of breakfast. I don't understand. If the Aurorans wanted to destroy the landing shipyards, why not just do it with their ships? Presumably, Grimm said. Because the only ships fast and quiet enough to slither in past our patrols are their destroyers. Their weapons are destructive but relatively light. It would take them time to pound the landing yard to splinters, and the landing defence guns and our fleet would object. It takes armoured capital ships to accomplish something like that. Their larger guns will destroy the target far more rapidly. And their armor and heavy shrouds will enable them to stay until the job is done. Bridget frowned. I thought the Aurorans who entered the spire had been defeated and captured. Would that they had. Albion said quietly. The ships that strafed the morning shipyards managed to evade the fleet, but Captain Bayard got valiant in close enough to the enemy formation. To confirm the presence of an Auroran troop transport. I don't know what that means, Bridget said. Auroran troop transports carry a full battalion of their marines, Benedict said quietly. Round five hundred men. How many have been accounted for? Gwen asked. Forty-nine, Albion replied. Those taken in the attack on Lancaster Battery, and several men who evidently attempted to parasail into the vents and missed their target. Their bodies were found on the surface. Gwen imagined men, their parasails tangled and collapsed, screaming as they fell nearly two miles through the mist, faster and faster and faster. She tried not to shudder. I see. 
I'm not sure I do, Benedict said. What is our part in this to be? Albion spread his hands. You three are, I'm afraid, a remainder, as it were. Sire? Gwen said. Oh, bother. I'm sorry. Excuse me? Lord Albion rose and took a couple of the large maps down from the wall behind him, revealing a two-scale rendering of the entire spire. Spire Albion, he said. Ten thousand feet high, two miles across. There are two hundred and fifty habbles, of which two hundred and thirty-six are occupied. As many as four hundred and fifty heavily armed enemy marines are in here with us, somewhere. Do you remember how many guardsmen are in active service, Miss Lancaster? A little more than three thousand, she said. Albion nodded. Mr. Sorolin, do you know how many marines serve in home fleet? A full regiment, Benedict replied. He glanced at Bridget and added, Fifteen hundred, more or less. Precisely, Albion said. Forty-five hundred bodies to protect two hundred and thirty-six potential targets. He spread his hands. I've been forced to dispatch them all up and down the spire. But why? Bridget asked. Wouldn't it be wiser to fight the Aurorans with all of them? I mean, it seems to me that forty-five hundred men could see to five hundred foes. We do not yet know where the Aurorans are, and our numerical advantage means nothing until we do, Albion replied. More important, some enemies are far more dangerous than mere soldiers, however formidable. Right now, rumours are spreading, and fear spreads with them. Fear kills. Before all else, order must be maintained, and that means reassuring the citizens of Albion that they are protected. And you're sending us to protect Habble Landing? Gwen guessed. In a way, Lord Albion said, the Auroran fleet knew precisely from which angle to attack Morning's shipyards to minimize the effectiveness of defensive fire. They sent their troops into the spire, and they evidently know its tunnels and vents well enough to remain hidden, at least so far. They knew exactly where to find the Lancaster Vattery, and their uniforms were all but identical to ours. Gwen frowned, thinking. No one of those things seems particularly important, but when you put them all together... Lord Albion smiled at her, clearly waiting for her answer. There's a hidden hand in this, Gwen said. Someone who knows the spire, she blinked. Someone who lives here. Top marks, Lord Albion said. There is a traitor among us. Perhaps even within my guard. Raoul looked up at Bridget and made a sound. Bridget translated... That is why you are sending kits to do a hunter's job. Albion looked at Raoul and nodded. Precisely. I need to send someone I can trust. When this operation was being planned, none of the trainees had reported for duty. The enemy's operation pattern suggests intimate knowledge of the workings of the guard and fleet alike. What about me? Benedict asked. Albion waved a vague hand. Oh, come now. It isn't you, Sorlin. 
Gwen thought that her cousin didn't know whether to look relieved or somewhat insulted, but he managed to nod at Lord Albion. So you're sending us? Bridget asked. Um, to do what? I only ask because it seems that it will be easier to follow your orders if we have actually heard them. Lord Albion's eyes crinkled at the corners. I've dispatched a number of small teams of recruits on various errands to various Habbles. I'm sending you to Habble Landing with Master Ferris so that you may assist him in his inquisition. Ah, Gwen said, nodding. If I may be so bold, what are you to be looking for, Master Ferris? You apparently are, Master Ferris said, and I'm all but certain I'll know it when I see it. Albion did smile that time. Landing has more residents and more people constantly coming and going than any other habble in the spire. It's a hotbed for information and black market trade. If there is anything to be learned about our guests or of the viper in our midst, it will be learned there. Ah, Ferris said in a more subdued voice. Yes, precisely. I will also be gathering information. Albion pointed a finger at Benedict. Your sole concern during this operation is the physical well-being of Master Ferris. He is of critical importance to the security of Spire Albion. You are to stay with him at all times. You are to protect him. Whatever happens, he must return safe. Do you understand? Benedict nodded soberly. I do. Albion's gaze moved on to Bridget. I'm sending you and Mr. Rowell because if there's trouble afoot in landing, the local cats will know it. They rarely have cooperative dealings with any human, but I believe they may make an exception in your case. You are to serve as Master Ferris's liaisons with the local cats. I can do that, Bridget said. What about me? Gwen asked. She was sure that she had kept her impatience out of her voice, but Lord Albion's eyes smiled again. Miss Lancaster, having taken note of your talents and your obvious、uh, determination to stay your course, regardless of how ill-conceived it may be, I'm sending you along to be a smoother. A what? Your duty is to smooth the way for Master Ferris's inquisition. The inquisition must keep moving forward. You are to avoid, overcome, or knock down any obstructions that may block his path. Gwen found herself frowning. I'm not sure I understand how to do that. I'm not sure you understand how to do anything else, Benedict quipped. Gwen fetched him a quick kick in the ankle with the side of her foot. Captain Grimm, Albion continued as if he hadn't noticed, will be transporting you down to landing, and will be ready to lend you his support and that of his crew should you have need of them. He looked back and forth between them. Do you understand your objectives? Do you have any questions? Um, Bridget said tentatively. What is it we're doing exactly? She hurried to add. Oh, I understand that each of us has a responsibility to help Master Ferris, but we still don't know what we're to be helping him with. The spyarch regarded her gravely. Do you know what the phrase "operational security" means, Miss Targwin? No. It means that not everyone has all the information, he said. That way, 
If you are spied upon or captured and interrogated by the enemy, it will not benefit them. You cannot accidentally let slip secrets you have not been told. You cannot be tortured and forced to reveal information that you do not possess. Bridget's eyes opened very wide. My goodness! I leave it to Master Ferris to decide how much each of you must know to perform your duty adequately," the Spyrarch said. "He will inform you at his own discretion. Until such time as he does so, you have your duties. Is that clear?" It seems simple enough," Bridget said. "The most difficult things often are," said Lord Albion. "Pack for the trip and do it swiftly. You leave within the hour." Chapter Twenty-One, Spire Albion Fleet Shipyards. Bridget held Raoul in her cradled arms as they walked up the spiral ramp. Leading from Habel Morning to the shipyards on the spire's rooftop, and tried to keep her breathing steady. Honestly, Raoul said, "What are you so concerned with, little mouse?" "I've never," Bridget said. "I've never really been outside." "There are many things you have never done," Raoul responded. "To be frightened of them is of no use to you." Bridget glanced over her shoulder, where Benedict was walking with Master Ferris, never more than a couple of strides away from the old man. He'd shouldered his own pack and an enormous duffel, apparently meant for Master Ferris and his apprentice, and carried them absently, his eyes sweeping everywhere, even here in Habel Morning. "I'm not frightened," Bridget replied. "I'm simply considering the possibilities." Such as falling off the spire, Raoul asked. Bridget swallowed. Yes. Or some enormous monster flying in from the mist and devouring you. I'm certain the tower's defenses are perfectly adequate to repel mist moors. Or being driven mad by the light of the sun. Bridget's fingers immediately went to her neck, where her goggles with their protective lenses hung. Raoul, my friend, you are at times a perfect little monster. Raoul gave his tail a disdainful flick. I am a perfect everything. You speak with the cats, Miss Targwin. Asked the man walking beside her. Captain Grimm, his arm still in its grimy sling, looked like a man who should be collapsing from exhaustion, but his voice was steady, polite, his eyes alert. Imperfectly. Bridget said, "Though honestly, I think most of them understand every word we say, except when they don't. Of course." He glanced at Raoul, smiling. An unkind thing to say of a hero. Raoul flicked his tail again, his expression unrepentantly smug. Bridget smiled at that and rubbed her nose against Raoul's furry head. He is a hero, and a tyrant. The cat looked up at her and yawned. Grim let out a short bark of laughter. Ay, ay. The cat who lived on Perilous was much the same. He didn't take orders well, and we were lucky to have him. This one, Raoul said, looking at Grim. This one seems smarter than most humans, little mouse. 
I have decided that he may stay. Given that it is his ship that will carry us, Bridget said, her tone dry, that seems very practical. Grimm seemed to infer Raoul's portion of the exchange and inclined his head slightly to the cat. At your service, sir. Ah, the guard station. Good. Their small group had reached the top of the ramp leading up to the shipyards. A large metal grate had been lowered over the doorway out, and at least twenty marines stood on guard at it. Gwendolyn Lancaster had evidently taken her duty seriously. She was already there, speaking quietly with a senior sergeant, showing him the letter of authorization from the Spyrarch. The marine did not look pleased with her. Gwen frowned, put one fist on her hip, and said something to the man with a rather tart expression on her face. The marine's weather-beaten face grew redder, but he growled and jerked a hand in a quick motion. One of his men went to the grate and began pulling on a rope that lifted it, opening the way to the shipyards. Light, nearly as bright as the flash of a discharged gauntlet, poured down the ramp from the outside world. With it came a breath of wind and air that was much colder than that of the habble in which Bridget had grown up. There was a strange scent to it, wood, and burnt wood, and metal, and something else, something sharp and fresh. Bridget's heart started pounding. Captain Grimm said something to her, but she wasn't sure what. They walked up the ramp and into the sharp-scented air and the dazzling light. It was bright, painfully bright, like suddenly understanding a truth she would prefer to be anything else. She had to blink her eyes closed as the cold air hit her in the face, an utter shock of sensation. She had never felt anything like it. Then she remembered in a panic how dangerous it was to let the light touch her unprotected eyes, and she fumbled blindly at the goggles around her neck. It was difficult, with only one hand to use, but she finally managed to lift them to her face and hold them there with her quivering fingers. The dark lenses reduced the glare of the light, and she could suddenly see. For a moment she wished she couldn't. There were structures and airships and people everywhere in the shipyard, but that was of distant secondary importance. She looked up and felt as though she might simply fall over onto the ground out of sheer disorientation. There was no ceiling. There was no ceiling. She looked up, and up, and up, and up, and there was simply nothing overhead. Nothing but a light, fine veil of mist that rose into infinite distance above her. She felt an irrational conviction that she was balanced on a precipice and that a single misstep might betray her and send her body flying up into the void. She jerked her eyes back down to the floor. She fought away a sudden overwhelming impulse to throw herself prone and hang on to the solid spirestone floor for dear life. Easy, she heard Captain Grimm saying. For some, the first time is a shock, Miss Targwin. I'm sorry, she managed to say. I don't mean to make a scene. Normally I am quite composed. You're doing better than I did, Grimm said. I lost my breakfast and couldn't make myself look up again for days. What did you do? I kept trying until I looked up. 
he said. It got better. Don't be hard on yourself, miss. It will pass. I think it's very interesting, Raoul said in a calm, pleased tone. Bridget choked off something that might have come out a laugh or a sob. She wasn't sure which. She still felt dizzy, sickened, but clearly this problem wasn't going to solve itself. The sky wasn't going anywhere. So she took a deep breath and forced herself to lift her eyes again. She could see a burning orb outlined in the mist. The sun. She had never seen it like this, without it being filtered and diffused through the translucent sections of spire stone around the habel. It burned. Like no candle or crystal she had ever seen. That's, she breathed. That's lovely. Grim glanced up and then smiled. A bit of a dingy view, he said. When time serves, you should see what the sky really looks like. You mean, Bridget asked, pointing, up there. She turned to find Captain Grimm staring up and smiling serenely. Up there, up in the deep blue sky. If you think the sun is beautiful, wait until you see it without all the mist, and the moon, and the stars. There is no beauty like that of the stars on a clear night, Miss Darwin. But she said, "Isn't it dangerous to see such things?" I thought men who did went mad. Ah,、oh, you'll need goggles during the day. It's true, Grim replied. Airships sail in etheric currents, and they interact oddly with sunlight. If one doesn't protect one's eyes from them, it can do strange things to one's mind. Bridget glanced ahead of them at Master Ferris. Is that, is that why Lord Albion's man is so, so odd? He's an etherealist, Miss Targwin," Grim replied. "For most of us, etheric currents flow around us like a stream of water flowing around stones. But for some folk, etheric energy doesn't go around; it courses right through them. They draw it to them." He shook his head. "Goggles are sufficient for the likes of you and me, Miss. But there's no protection for a man like Master Ferris." "He's mad," Bridget asked in a quiet voice. So is his apprentice, though less so," Grim said. "Master Ferris is the fourth etherealist I've met in my lifetime. They've all been mad. The only question is whether or not it shows." "Oh," Bridget said. "I do not mean to pester you with more questions, Captain. If you have duties to see to," he shook his head. "By all means, Miss, ask. I am to provide you with my support, after all." Presumably, sharing what modest knowledge I have falls into the purview of that duty. Ask your questions. Thank you. The etherealists, can they really do what the stories say? Asked Bridget. It depends on which stories you've heard, I suppose. Grim said. The usual, I think. Bridget said. Burnham's tales, the stories of Finch and Broom. Grim smiled a bit and spread his hands. Well, they are perhaps a touch overblown. But etherealists really can do such things, Bridget asked. Call lightning with a word of power. 
make a mystic gesture and fly. Try not to think of it that way, Grimm said. Etherealists are, in many ways, simply etheric engineers. Etheric engineers cannot call lightning, sir, or fly. No, Grimm asked. But they can design etheric weaponry, such as gauntlets, long guns, and cannon. Can they not? Can they not design an airship and send it aloft into the sky? True, Bridget said. But those are, they're weapons and ships. Of course they do that. They design and build devices to a function. It's what they do. My point is that an etherealist does the same sorts of things, Miss. It's just that he skips the troublesome part in the middle. Bridget found herself smiling. Oh, she said. Is that all he does? Grim winked at her. Are they dangerous? She asked. He was silent for a moment before he said thoughtfully. Anyone can be dangerous, Mister Ogwen, etherealist or not. He smiled at her, but then his face sobered. But between the two of us, I think they are capable of more than we know. For myself, I think it wise to keep a very open mind. They had walked down the length of the shipyard as they spoke, and had come to a large boarding ramp that led up to an airship. Captain Grim, Bridget asked, "Is this your vessel?" I, Grim replied, unmistakable pride in his voice. This is Predator, Miss Tarquin. I take it you have not been aboard an airship before. Bridget shook her head, staring up. I've never even seen one. Predator was, Bridget thought, rather impressive. The main body of the ship seemed to be a large and oddly contoured half tube suspended between three rounded towers that rose up at either end of the ship. And in her very middle, folded along her flanks, were a number of bundled rods of some kind that looked like they could be folded out, and old-style canvas cloth hung from them. Sails, she realized, made to be extended horizontally along the ship's flanks. Other masts had been folded against her belly, which was held clear of the stone of the shipyard by heavy struts that supported the vessel's weight. And she saw two more masts on the ship's main deck rose up above the ship, their yardarms spread, with more sails reefed against them. Running up the length of both masts were large metal rings that encircled twisted lengths of ether silk sail, the ship's ether web. Most airships she had read about had steam engines in place as their secondary propulsion system. The only ships that favoured sails were those operated by the fleets of very poor spires, or by scoundrels such as pirates, smugglers, and the like, who were willing to dare the dangers of the mists rather than sail in open skies. Positioned all around the vessel, at the bases of the masts, she could see large reels lined with the net-like woven ether silk webs that harnessed the etheric currents that would drive airships faster than any other transport in the world. She understood the principle simply enough: the more webbing one let out of the reel, the more etheric energy it could catch, and the faster it would drive the ship forward. Of course, the web had to be charged with electricity in order for it to function. 
so airships were limited in the amount of web they could charge by the strength of their power cores. And there were the weapons. The gun emplacements protruded bulbously from the ship's deck, the copper-barreled cannon snouts nosing out from a costly rotating ball assembly that would allow the gun crews to swing the cannon forward and aft as well as up and down. She had no way to judge how large the weapons were in comparison to others of the breed, but they certainly looked formidable. One of the gun emplacements, Bridget noted, was simply missing. There were a number of freshly cut boards around it, suggesting that it had been damaged in some fashion, necessitating the removal of more wood in order to provide a stable platform to replace the missing assembly. And the entire ship, she realized, was made of wood. So much wood that it beggared her imagination. She remembered how proud her father had been when they had been able to afford the polished wooden service counter at the battery, and how careful he was to clean and maintain it. It had cost a week's profit for enough wood to build a counter ten feet long and three feet wide. And Predator, Bridget realized, was a dozen times that length, and as high as a two-story house. All of it wood. There were men on the ship, moving all over it. Men carrying crates and bags up the boarding ramp. Men on lines hanging down the side of the ship, applying oil to her hull. Men atop the towers. Men climbing the masts and working with the reefed sails. Men scrubbing down the deck. Men inspecting the weapon emplacements. Men coiling costly ether silk webbing more neatly onto its reel. There was a small army aboard this vessel. Bridget realized each of them performing some kind of specific task, and it was a good thing there were so many of them. They might not have survived the confrontation in the tunnel without the aeronauts, whatever Gwendolen seemed to think. If you will excuse me, Miss Targwin, Captain Grimm said, there are many things to which I must attend before we can leave. Bridget inclined her head. Of course, sir. He nodded and bowed slightly at the waist. Someone will be down momentarily to show your party where to go. He ascended the ramp, weaving between several men carrying various burdens without missing a step. Raoul was staring up at the ship, his eyes intent, tracking motion, his ears pulled to quivering attention, straight forward. Little mouse, he said, that looks interesting. Not too interesting, I trust," Bridget said. "Airships are quite dangerous, you know." Dangerous," Raoul said, contempt dripping from the word. "For humans, perhaps." "Don't be foolish," she said. "There could be any number of hazards in there: machinery, electrical wiring, weaponry. If you go exploring, you might find something that could hurt you." "If one doesn't." One is not truly exploring," Raoul replied. "But since you worry so badly, and since I know you will not stop speaking of it, regardless of how foolish you sound, I will remain near you to make sure that you do not run afoul of hazards aboard the ship. Of course." "Thank you," Bridget said. "But those tall ship trees." Standing up on top, we call them masts," Bridget said. 
She had to use the human word for them. The tongue of the cats had the occasional shortcoming. Ship trees, Raoul said in an insistent tone. Those interest me. I will climb them. All the way up there, Bridget asked. She felt slightly dizzy just thinking of the view from the mast tops. It seems unnecessary. Raoul turned his head and gave her a level look. Then he said. I sometimes forget that you are just a human. He flicked his ears dismissively and looked back up at the masts. A cat would understand. Just so long as the cat doesn't fall, she said. Raoul made a growling sound, an expression of displeasure that needed no special skill to understand. Bridget smiled. She couldn't help it. The little monster was so full of himself that she couldn't help but tease him from time to time. She hugged Raoul gently and rubbed her nose against the fur on his head. Raoul growled again, but with much less sincerity. Suddenly, there was a presence beside her, and Bridget looked up to see that the etherealist's apprentice was standing next to her. The girl with the oddly coloured eyes stared up at the ship, but not, Bridget noted, at the features to which her own eyes had been drawn. Instead. The girl seemed to stare intently at the featureless planks of Predator's flanks, and left Bridget with the slightly unsettling impression that the girl's mismatched eyes were peering straight through the wood. Oh my! The girl said, ducking her head enough to make it clear that she was speaking to the jar of expended lumin crystals she still held cradled in one arm. Have you ever seen one like that? Beg pardon, Miss. Bridget said politely, "Oh, they're talking to me again." The girl told the jar, "Why must people always talk to me when I leave the house?" Bridget blinked several times at her response. What did one do in such a situation? It seemed unthinkable that they should stand together, looking at such an impressive creation, and not carry on some sort of polite conversation. "I, I'm afraid I don't know your name, Miss." We are to be working together. It seems my name is Bridget Targwin, and this is Raoul. The girl smiled and said to the jar, "This is Bridget Targwin, and Raoul, and we are to be working together." Bridget frowned. The girl's response had not been rude, precisely. It had simply been so disconnected from the situation that etiquette utterly failed to apply. May I know your name, please? The girl sighed. She wants to know my name, but I'm simply awful at introducing myself. Perhaps I should tattoo "folly" on my head, and then people can just read it. Folly, Bridget said. It's a pleasure to meet you, Folly. She seems very sweet, Folly told the jar. I'm sure she means well. Raoul said. This girl has too many things in her head. I think. Folly replied, "Oh, the cat is right. All the things I've forgotten, plus all the things I haven't. I keep forgetting over which ones I need to throw a dust tarp." Bridget blinked again. Before she left the battery, she could have counted on one hand the number of people she'd met who actually understood cat. She glanced down to find Raoul staring into infinite distance, exhibiting no reaction. Bridget knew the cat well enough to know that he had not been surprised. 
Gwendolen and Benedict caught up to them, finally, with Benedict staying close to a bemused Master Ferris's side. Simply saying, Benedict said, that perhaps you could have gained the guard's cooperation without resorting to threatening to arrest him for impeding an inquisition. Gwendolen frowned. Ought I have threatened to charge him with treason, do you think? That one bears the death penalty. Benedict gave his cousin a rather hunted look. Gwen, you... I don't even... I can't possibly... He shook his head, mouth open for a second. A very small smile touched Gwen's mouth and her eyes sparkled. Benedict sighed and shut his mouth again. Touché. I'll stop telling you how to do your job now, cuz. Thank you, Gwen said. Bridget smiled slightly at the exchange, and even Raoul seemed amused. Not a minute later, a very tall young man, dark-haired and square-jawed, descended briskly from the ship and approached them, dressed in an aeronaut's leathers, his goggles hanging around his neck. He came to a stop before them, gave them a bow, and said, Ladies and gentlemen, I am Byron Creedy, Predator's Executive Officer. Master Ferris, Captain Grimm has asked me to bring you and your party aboard at your earliest convenience. The old etherealist blinked and looked up from whatever private thoughts had preoccupied him. He looked the young man up and down, nodded, and said, Convenient would have been yesterday. Now will suffice. Creedy arched a brow at this answer, but he bowed his head and said, Then if you would all please follow me. Welcome aboard Predator. Chapter 22 AMS Predator Gwendolyn Lancaster looked around Predator with what she felt was well-earned scepticism. It seemed that in following the orders of the Spyrarch, she had fallen in with scoundrels. Though granted they had been fierce enough in battle, and granted that they had, in fact, quite possibly saved her life, probably, even. But after asking a few questions of passing crewmen, she had determined that the help of Captain Grimm and his men had gone first to the Lancaster Vattery. Possibly that had been coincidence at work, but Gwen's father put precious little store by such notions. The crystals her family's vattery produced were quite literally the most valuable resource in the world, the most expensive piece of equipment one could purchase. It seemed to strain coincidence that the captain of a ship in dire need of replacement crystals should happen to wander by the vattery. It seemed an equal stretch that he should then proceed to rescue the heir apparent of House Lancaster purely by happenstance. She supposed that a military-minded man might have deduced that the Lancaster Vattery would be a prime target of attack, but if Grimm had managed to piece all of that together in the chaos of the attack, he was the tactical equal of old Admiral Targwin himself, and Gwen hardly thought that the fleet would have cast out a captain of such ability. Of course, coincidences happened, and this could be one, but if it was not coincidence then it meant that Captain Grimm had known enemy movements and intentions. It was possible that she was doing a courageous and capable man a grave disservice, but a determination to protect the Vattery was something that had been fed to her with her mother's milk and drilled into her during every hour of every day that had passed since. 
As theirs was the only crystal battery in the spire capable of producing core crystals, there simply was no alternative but to take every precaution possible. So while she felt a regret that perhaps Grimm deserved better of her, she faced her duty squarely and kept a quiet, calm eye upon the man. She mounted the steps to the airship's bridge, the conning tower at the forward end of the ship. The roof of the tower had a small raised platform at the rear, where the ship's steering grips were. The pilot would stand upon it, with the clearest view of anyone aboard of what was in front of the airship. The captain and his executive officer stood on the deck in front of the pilot, enjoying a similar view. Gwen supposed clear sight of the ship's surroundings would be quite vital in wartime. At the moment, the view was rather pedestrian. The mists had thickened as Predator cast off from her pier, and the ship currently hung in cloudy limbo. The sun only a dim suggestion somewhere far above. The dull black walls of Spire Albion stretched out ahead and astern of the airship on its left, or port, side. A pair of heavy lines were fastened to a long tether cable that ran down the side of the spire, in order to prevent winds from causing the ship to drift away from the tower. A pair of long poles set out to the side of the ship kept winds from pushing it into the tower too. They had already been underway for a quarter of an hour, and the black stone of the spire rolled slowly upward as the vessel sank down into the mist, heading for the shipyards of Habel Landing. The pilot, a rather hard-looking man whose name was Kettle, took note of her presence first, and cleared his throat loudly. Captain Grimm and Commander Creedy looked back at Kettle, and then at her. They glanced at one another, and then Creedy came over to her wearing a polite smile. "'Miss Lancaster,' he said, "'how may I be of service to you?' Gwen straightened her dark blue uniform jacket and said, "'I wished to ask you a few questions, sir, if that is quite all right.' "'Certainly, miss.' Gwen nodded. "'Are you the same Byron Creedy who'd lately served on the battle cruiser Glorious?' Creedy's friendly expression suddenly became very closed. "'Indeed, miss. I had that honour. "'Were you not habbled by the Fleet Review Board "'for conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman?' A muscle along the young man's jaw twitched, and Creedy gave her a brief, stiff nod. "'I see,' Gwen said. "'I may be required to place the success of our Inquisition "'and our very lives in your hands, Commander. "'I need to know what kind of man you are, "'and whether or not you will be there to help if I should call upon you.' "'Thus far, Miss,' he replied in a very precise, polite voice indeed, the captain and crew of Predator have been there to help you even when you have not called. Also, I judged the situation we found in the tunnel. Forgive me, sir, she said, but we have little time, and I fear I must be direct and plain. You were cast in disgrace from the active service roles of the fleet. Your captain was exiled from the service entirely. Many of your crew members have similar service records with the fleet. It is quite the collection of men in disgrace. Perhaps, miss, Creedy said with a coolly lifted chin, you would prefer to travel the remainder of the distance to landing without enduring the disgrace of our company. Byron, 
said Grimm in a gentle, firm tone. Creedy glanced over his shoulder, let a breath out through his nose, and then turned back to Gwen to speak in a low, hard voice. Miss, if I were you, I would have a care what you had to say about the captain in front of any of his officers or crew, myself included. None of us particularly care to hear ill spoken of the man, and none of us will care who your parents are if you insult the captain. Do I make myself understood? Gwen arched an eyebrow at him. Have I said anything that is untrue, Commander? You have said nothing untrue, he replied. You have also said nothing that is complete. There is more to the world than what a review board publishes about an officer or aeronaut, Miss Lancaster. Guard your tongue. And with that, he gave her a rigid bow and strode off the bridge. His boots thumped solidly on the deck and the stairs as he left. When Gwen turned back to the front of the ship, she found Grimm standing two feet from her. The man had not made a sound to give away his approach, and Gwen had to force herself not to flinch as she found him facing her. He was, she thought, a rather striking man. He wasn't beautiful. His features weren't balanced. He had a rather heavy brow, which gave him a slightly brutish look. One that was belied by the glitter of intelligence in his dark eyes. His cheekbones were sharp and wide, and contrasted with his thick jawline. His mouth was narrow, though whether that was its natural form or simply his current expression, Gwen couldn't say. He was of unimpressive height, but well muscled, and he had the look of a man who could do heavy work for hours without tiring. His hands were blocky, square, and strong, and he carried himself with the rigidly proper posture of the fleet, despite his disgrace. It was the blood on him, she thought, that made her uneasy. He had not yet changed out of the clothes he had worn in battle, not even the sling that cradled one of his arms. Captain Grimm, she said calmly. Miss Lancaster, he replied. Why were you provoking my executive officer? Because I've always found that people's reactions are more honest when they're tired, and I wanted to test his before he went to his bunk. He seemed to consider this for a moment and then nodded. And you're speaking to me now for the same reason, I take it. Gwen gave him a tight smile. Something like that. The captain grunted. You're too young to be that ruthless. My nanny and several instructors told me the same thing, she said. Your men still think well of you after the battle, Captain. That's remarkable. Do you think so? Gwen shrugged. There are many fleet captains whose men would sour on them if they suffered the casualties your crew did in battle. There are many fleet captains who are idiots, he replied. Your men do not seem to have been phased. It was a fight that needed to happen, Grimm said. They understand that. I didn't kill those men. The Aurorans did. They understand that too. All the same, Gwen said. I asked around about you, Captain Grimm. I have some questions for you as well. I'm certain that you do, Miss. Please proceed. Gwen nodded. What can you tell me about the perilous incident, Captain? Grimm's weary expression never flickered. I have nothing to say about it. That's what everyone seems to think, 
Gwen said, nodding. The records of the Inquisition afterward have been sealed. Not even my father's influence could acquire them. It's done, Grimm said. It's in the past and best left there. Sir, the Admiralty seems to think, Gwen said. A fleet captain dead in mid cruise, his executive officer beaten into a coma. Three young lieutenants left to bring a warship and her crew safely home through pirate skies. Lieutenants Grimm, Bayard, and Rook, to be precise. Grimm regarded her impassively. To this day, no one is sure what happened on Perilous, she told him, but she came home with heavy losses, and when the dust cleared, Lieutenants Rook and Bayard had been promoted to Lieutenant Commander. While Lieutenant Grimm was summarily drummed out of the service for cowardice in the face of the enemy, his voice turned dry. I am somewhat familiar with the tale, Miss. It gives me serious concerns, Gwen said. Are you a coward, Captain? The man stared at her with those shadowed eyes for several moments before he said, his voice very soft, "When needed, Miss. When needed." Gwen tilted her head. "I'm not sure what to make of that answer, Captain." "Good," he said shortly. "Mr. Kettle, if you would send for me a quarter of an hour before arrival." "Aye, Captain," said the pilot in a laconic tone. Grim gave her a short, brief bow. "Miss Lancaster," he said. Then he turned and walked wearily down the steps to the deck. Gwen watched him cross to the centre tower and enter his cabin. The man did not seem much like a scoundrel to her, nor did he seem to be a coward. She frowned thoughtfully until she felt the weight of the pilot's gaze on her. She looked up at Kettle and said, "Do you believe what they said about him at the court martial?" Kettle grunted and peered ahead for a moment, and Gwen thought he had simply declined to answer. She had turned and begun to leave when he said, "Miss Lancaster." She paused. Yes. I didn't know him when he was in the fleet, Miss. But Kettle took a slow breath, his lips moving slightly, as if composing his answer before he spoke. Then he nodded and turned his eyes to her, his expression intent. Miss Lancaster. Spirestone is heavy, fire is hot, and the captain does his duty, no matter what it costs him. Understand? Gwen regarded Kettle's unshaven face for a slow breath and then nodded slowly. I believe I'm beginning to. Thank you, Mister Kettle. There's nothing, Miss. How long will it take us to reach landing? Another hour of travel, and then we wait in line for a berth. Few hours, probably. We'll ring the ship's bell when we arrive. Thank you, Gwen said, and she turned to leave the pilot to his duties. Interesting. Her father had always said that a man could be fairly judged by the quality of his allies and that of his enemies. Captain Grimm seemed to have a number of rather staunch allies, despite his disgraced status, apparently including Lord Albion himself. And despite what had happened to him, his pride was unbowed. If what Kettle said was true, then Grimm was a rather remarkable man, perhaps even the kind of man who could match tacticians of historic brilliance, the kind that made coincidences happen, 
rather than letting them happen to him. Perhaps he had saved her family's vattery and her life because he had believed it his duty to do so. Or perhaps not. Time would tell. Chapter 23 AMS Predator Grimm's dreams were unpleasant and concluded in a hectic racket that eventually resolved itself into the sound of someone knocking firmly at the door to his cabin. Before he'd had time to realize that he was actually awake once more, his legs had already swung out of his bunk and he was sitting up by the time he muttered, In. The door opened and Stern leaned his head into the cabin. Begging your pardon, Captain. Grimm waved a dismissive hand. We're there already, Mr. Stern. Still waiting for a berth, the wiry young man replied. But you've got a visitor from the fleet, sir. Grimm gave the young man a sharp glance and then a brisk nod. I'll be out momentarily. Aye, Captain, Stern said and shut the door again. Visitors from fleet. Now. At least Grimm had been able to wash himself down at a basin of water before he slept. Now he rose, dressed himself as best he could in clean clothing, and awkwardly tied off a fresh sling for his wounded arm. He raked a comb through his must hair several times, scowled at himself in a small mirror, and eyed the stubble of a beard that marred any chance he might have of presenting himself in an officer's proper condition. Of course, he wasn't an officer of the fleet any more, was he? Grimm shook his head, tried to shake off the bone-deep exhaustion he still felt, failed to do so, and went out of his cabin anyway. Captain on deck! Stern barked as Grimm opened his door. Grimm stepped onto the deck to see every crewman in sight stop whatever they were doing, turn toward him, and snap him a perfect fleet salute. He kept himself from smiling. Mr. Stern, Grimm said beneath his breath, why is it that the crew bothers with formal protocol only when a serving member of fleet comes aboard? Because we like to remind the uptight bastards that on this ship you're in command, Skipper, regardless of what fleet thinks of you. Ah, Grimm said. He lifted his voice slightly. As you were. The crew snapped out of the salute with near parade ground precision and returned to their duties. A dapper little figure in the uniform of a fleet commodore swaggered across a boarding plank laid out between Predator's deck and that of a fleet launch, hovering alongside Grimm's ship. The man hopped down onto the deck and shook his head in bright-eyed amusement. Permission to come aboard, Captain. Bayard, Grimm said, stepping forward and offering the other man his hand. Mad, Bayard said, trading grips with him. Good God in heaven, man. I knew Predator had been injured, but... Were you talking to strangers again? To Captain Castillo of Atasca, briefly, Grimm replied. I took my leave before the conversation could go any farther than it did. What are you doing here, Alex? We heard that you'd been injured again while playing hero during the attack, and Abigail insisted that I look in on you. Grim gestured to his arm. The rumor mill is performing to specifications, I'm afraid. 
I already had this when it started. I remember, Bayard said. So, you repelled an assault by Aurora Marines with one hand? My crew did the majority of that. Bayard made a little ah sound. Naturally. While you stood about offering critique, I suppose. It's as if you know me. Bayard's teeth shone in a sudden smile. And you had no further injuries? From a critically pilloried crewman, perhaps? A few scrapes and bruises. I'm well. That will ease Abigail's mind greatly, Bayard said. Now, about that brandy. What brandy? The excellent brandy you're about to pour me in your cabin, naturally. Bayard said in a cheerful tone, but his eyes were quite serious. I see, Grimm said, nodding. I suppose if it gets rid of you more rapidly, it's a worthy investment. This way, Commodore. Bayard grinned. And to think that they call merchant captains uncivilized. Once inside the cabin, Grimm shut the door behind them and turned to his old friend. All right, what's this really about? Bayard made a half-circle out of the fingers of his right hand and frowned down at them in puzzlement. That's odd. There's no drink there. Grimm snorted. Then he went to the cabinet and came back with a couple of small glasses of brandy. He offered one to Bayard. Bayard took it, lifted it, and said, as he ever did when they drank together, Absent friends. Absent friends. Grimm echoed, and the two of them drank. It's official, Bayard said after. The Spire Council has declared a state of war with Spire Aurora. Grimm frowned. Inevitable, I suppose. Inevitable and ugly, Bayard said. We're already sending out word to call in our ships in first and second fleets alike. The Admiralty, in its wisdom, has decided to remain in a defensive posture until we have concentrated our entire fleet presence. Grimm felt his eyebrows rising. Aerial warfare was the very soul of sudden and overwhelming violence. A commander who surrendered the initiative to the enemy was a commander who might well be obliterated by a surprise offensive at the time and place of the enemy's choosing before he could ever give the order to engage. What? Bayard flopped down onto Grimm's narrow sofa. Exactly. This raid has rattled old Watson rather badly, I'm afraid. Why? Because the enemy set this attack up to manipulate him, and they succeeded. They jerked him around like a puppet on strings. If some poor fool hadn't been randomly wandering by the Lancaster Vattery... Bayard lifted his glass to Grimm. Grimm rolled his eyes. Watson's response might have cost Albion its most precious resource. Bayard sloshed down a bit more brandy. So he is proceeding with utmost caution in order to avoid falling into another such trap. Unless, of course, Grimm said, they're trying to manipulate him into sticking one of his feet to the floor and piling up all our ships in one place. Exactly, Bayard sighed. 
Every element of First Fleet is currently sailing in a giant circle around the spire to watch for trouble, like some kind of bloody carousel. Several of us tried to talk sense into him, but you know old Watson. He's a rather brilliant defensive tactician, Grimm said. I agree, Bayard said. The problem is that he's an inept defensive strategist. We should be dispatching ships to hammer the Aurorans hard in their home skies, force them to think defensively. The damned fools encouraging them to take the initiative. Grim frowned down at his drink and said, "What does this have to do with me?" Bayard scowled. "Don't give me that. You're fleet mad, same as me." The fleet rolls say otherwise. There's a war upon us," his friend replied. "This is no time for petty grievances. We need every skilled captain we can get. I want you to come back. I've been dishonorably discharged. I can't come back. You're an experienced combat commander," Bayard countered, "and you've won more than a little respect for your actions at the Lancaster Battery." The Prime Minister of Albion himself watched you defend his home, his people, and his livelihood through his study window. If you come back to Fleet and offer your services, I think the winds are right to make it happen. And there happens to be a captain's slot I need to fill in my squadron. Grim looked up sharply. Valiant, Bayard said simply. I need a flag, Captain. Something lurched inside Grimm's chest. Something that he'd forgotten over the past decade. The voice of a much younger, much less experienced Francis Madison Grimm, determined to win command of a fleet ship of his own. He wasn't sure whether it felt like fireworks exploding in his chest, or the vertigo of a drunken tumble down a flight of stairs. You're insane. I never commanded a fleet ship. Yes, Bayard said. His voice hardening. You did. Not officially. Grim spat. Not on paper. And no officer, no matter how popular or favoured, is given a bloody heavy cruiser as his first command. Rules are made to be broken. Bayard replied. What they did to you wasn't right. I don't see how reversing that injustice could be wrong. I'm working for the Spyrarch now. Grim said. I know, but this is your chance, Mad, to make it all right. Come back to Fleet Command with me. Offer to rejoin. Grim narrowed his eyes. You want me to go to them? You want me to go to them with my hat in my hands and ask them to let me back in? Pretty please, your lordships. War, Mad, Bayard said, leaning forward. This is bigger than me. It's bigger than Hamilton Rook and his family. It's even bigger than your wounded pride. We need you. Then I look forward to being notified in writing of the clearing of my name and the restoration of my rank and standing in fleet. Grim said. Bayard's face became furious. Damn it, Mad! You have a responsibility, a duty. You're right about that much, at least. But my duty to fleet ended years ago. I have other responsibilities now. 
Bayard simply stared, anger radiating from his every pore. Grimm met his gaze without hostility and without yielding. After a moment, Bayard seemed to deflate. He made a disgusted sound and finished off the brandy in a gulp. Damn your pride. Grimm finished his own glass and let the liquor burn down his throat, half afraid that the turmoil in his chest might set it alight. Alex, what you're asking me to do, I won't do it. I can't do it. I can't. Silence fell. Abigail said as much. Bayard said finally. But I had to try. Thank you, Grimm said. Truly. Bayard moved one shoulder in a shrug, set his glass aside, and rose. I also wanted to give you some advance warning. Your XO is about to be put back on active duty. They're calling in everyone they've habbled and every reservist they can from the merchant fleet. I suppose that's hardly surprising, Grimm said, rising with him. How is he? Bayard asked. He'll do. Grimm said in a firm tone, "When? A week at the longest," Bayard said. "I'll make adjustments," Grimm said, and the pair of them walked back out on deck together. "Please give Abigail my regards. You'll need to have a meal with us soon," Bayard said. Then he grimaced, wartime permitting. "I should enjoy that." This. Arrangement you have with the Spyrarch," Bayard said. "Will it last? Perhaps, perhaps not. Then I reserve the right to speak to you on the subject again. My answer shall not change. No, I don't suppose it shall." Bayard glanced up and then tilted his head a bit to one side. "Captain," he said, "what is that at the very top of your forward mast?" Grim looked up, following Bayard's gaze to where a small, solid form was outlined against the sunlit mist. Apparently, he said, "It is a cat."